Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Infinite blessings as we approach this new moon on the 20th, another super new moon that is exact at 2.06 a.m. Eastern Time. So infinite blessings. We're going to work with a lot of different activities here, but we begin by going into the heart center. So please set aside the rest of your day. Go into your heart at this time. As we call forth the full emergence and integration with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, with all of our multidimensional beings, through to our God presence and goddess presence. We see ourselves in our pillar of light, filled with the beautiful pink and gold of ascension energy, the divine love, the divine illumination, filled with divine peace and infinite abundance, all of the gifts that these frequencies fill us with. So see that light flooding through your pillar of light that is anchored directly from source into the heart of Mother Gaia as we share this with the planet and all upon her as we recommit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. Expand your pillar to its fullest breath as you open your heart, as you open your heart to both give and receive. And we invite in everyone across the planet by saying the following prayer. Please repeat after me. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with every family member and loved one. I am one with all of my friends and everyone in my community. I am one with all that is. And feel that oneness, that unity consciousness grow and expand. Allow yourself to connect to everyone heart to heart, soul to soul, high heart to high heart, cosmic heart, to cosmic heart as we are all connected to the cosmic heart of all that is. So we invite in for everyone to receive all that we receive here today. All of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, 
our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward. Our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pots. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing team, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the bird kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim. We welcome all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome as well all of the ascended master realms, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters. All Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. We welcome our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light, especially those that we work so closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus, and many more. We welcome all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking our Mother, Father, God, to overlight all that we do here today and magnify, magnify, magnify each activity. 999 times, 999 billion times, in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call in all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively through every cell, <clears throat> chakra, meridian, layer of our auric field, multidimensionally, through the conscious, subconscious, superconscious mind as well. We ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we receive with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. We call forth all in our circle of support. (laughs) From the very first name that created us, to every man, woman, and child, every family member and loved one, each and every animal and pet, 
business, an organization, corporation, every group. <clears throat> all of the weather patterns, all of the climate issues, be it drought or flooding or storms, earthquakes, tornadoes or hurricanes, typhoons, all weather patterns, including excess snow, and all of the patterns that do not demonstrate perfection. All those that have transitioned in this last week and all those left behind. All of the situations, all of the conditions, be it homelessness, lack of food or clean water, all of the situations across the planet, we have them in our circle of support as we hold the vision for every man, woman, and child to live heaven on earth. To always have enough to know who they are as a divine being and to act out of their Christ self. And we call forth all of the energy of this month from the cross point to the to an invoke and Candlemas and the Tutu portal to the full moon to the to Valentine's Day to President's Day tomorrow or Sunday Monday to the Super Bowl to the Grammys to all the different events that we have been experiencing to the attention given to the earthquake and all of the other things going on on this planet, all the things that people are paying attention to. We call in all of that energy once again into our collective cup of consciousness that we might manifest heaven on earth, that we might utilize it for the creation of heaven in every single person, every single aspect of life. We call upon the new moon energies to magnify this for us. And for every person to be able to create a new that which is in alignment with divine will or true heart's desires and loving relationships and successful outcomes. And we call this forth as we hold that vision of heaven on earth for ourselves, for our family members, our loved ones, for everyone across the planet. And we ask Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc sealed multidimensionally through her ley lines and song lines, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system. 
and through every portal and vortex and monuments and sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light, including every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire. And we see that golden pink light surrounding Gaia and all upon her as she continues to raise in vibration each and every moment. And we continue on the spiral of evolution as she takes her rightful place as freedom star. We call forward the sapphire blue ray and the violet ray as we call forth for protection for all on the planet, including ourselves and our loved ones. Beloved Christ, I am present. Beloved Akasha, ascended host. I call upon the mighty Christ I am and the ascended and angelic ones to come forth now around myself, around all of my family, all of my loved ones, and provide them with your invincible sacred fire love and protection, enfolding them forever. Beloved Master St. Germain, beloved Archangel Michael, and beloved Lord Estrella, blaze your violet healing flame protection, blaze your cosmic Christ blue flame protection, Blaze your sacred fire protection and blaze the illumining Christ presence around myself, all of my loved ones, and protect their mental, physical, and feeling bodies. Keep them safe, safe, safe from the sinister force and all discord in this world. As we call this forth for all those that we know and love, we call this forth for all of the family of humanity. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Great cosmic beings of light, come, come, come. Step into the lower atmosphere of earth with your uncountable legions of the angelic host and dissolve all that is of the sinister force through the power of the sacred fire love. So it never touches another part of life ever again. We call all your sacred fire protection in our lives, your messengers, and all around us, all of our loved ones, every man, woman, and child. Beloved angels and great ascended ones, release the illumining Christ presence into their minds and feelings to quicken their awakening with the illumining presence that is the light of the Christ. We call forth your sacred fire protection for our families and our communities and that they be charged with the illumining presence of the Christ. I am the sacred fire protection of all the children of the light who are ready to speak and embody the command of the great I am. I am the perpetual sustaining action of this prayer call. In the name of beloved Mother Akasha and by the power of the great central sun. So be it, and so it is. 
Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Feel the sacred gift of protection around you. We call forth for everyone across the planet to be aligned with divine will. In the name of God, Goddess, I am. I invoke the presence of beloved Master El Moria, Archangel Michael, and all ascended masters and angels of the blue flame love of God's will to guide and protect myself, my family members, and each and every person across the planet daily and hourly. Archangel Michael, come into my life. Help me overcome all density with your sword of blue flame. Cut me loose and set me free from all negativity and errors of the past. I ask for a shaft of blue lightning of divine love to be established over my being, over my home, my family, my work, and all my affairs. I call the guidance I need to manifest God's will in all aspects of my life to fulfill my divine purpose here on earth and make my ascension in the light. I claim for God's will to manifest everywhere on earth as it is in the realms of light and freedom. As I call this forth for myself, I call this forth for every man, woman, and child. I give thanks that my request is answered according to God's most holy will. So be it, and so it is. Beloved I am. Beloved I am. Beloved I am. Take a nice deep breath as we call forth to Michael and the legions of light, feeling their divine presence entering around us and entering around the planet. As we call this forth for ourselves, we call this forth for every man, woman, and child. In the name of God, Goddess, I call forth the blue flame of divine love of Archangel Michael to now clear my path of all interference to the fulfillment of my divine plan, the expansion of my faith and my ascension. Infuse my soul with the energies of divine will and surrender to my holy vows. I ask for a golden dome of protection to be placed around me each day to repel any negative energy directed against me and the light for which I stand. I ask for your legions of blue flame angels to stand by my side. By the power of your sword of blue flame, cut me loose and set me free from all discordant energy in my world, in my home, in my work, and in the city where I live. I thank you for your relentless love and service to all humanity and to the earth. I thank you for your loving assistance in my own unique pathway. Help me develop faith and trust in myself and in God, Goddess. Let blue lightning bombs of divine love bring cleansing and transformation within me and within everyone and everywhere on the earth. 
so be it. And so it is, beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am presence, light of my soul. Beloved, El Moria. Beloved Archangel Michael and your legions of the same angels, infuse my soul and all around me, within my soul and all around me, a river of blue flame love. By the power of three times three, sustain and expand this love without limit. Let your protection take dominion over the earth and over every man, woman, and child on the planet. Protect the youth, the elderly, and the innocent. Consume within me and within the earth all that does not portray the divine will of Mother, Father, God. Let love, freedom, and true knowledge of the divine be reestablished on earth now and forever. I am that I am. By all God's love, I know that I am the power and authority on earth to command life free and to return to the wholeness of everything on it. I call the power of blue flame love to establish the new golden age of enlightenment and true brotherhood and sisterhood on earth. Let the will, the victory of the will of God goddess prevail on earth now. Let the flame of cosmic love and wisdom prevail on earth now. So be it, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So any time that we work with the blue ray, we're automatically calling in the violet ray. So we're going to ask the violet flame to flood the planet as well. As we say in the name of the great I am, I call forth for the light of a thousand suns from the great central sun, angels of the violet fire, beloved Saint Germain, beloved Zadkiel, and holy Amethyst, Amritas, ruler of the violet planet. In the name of God, Goddess, I am that I am. Saturate the earth and all of her evolution with limitless waves of violet fire. I call for the action of the violet transmitting flame and the action of the will of God to manifest on earth now and forever. An ever-increasing spiral of divine perfection. I call for all discord and activities on earth that are not reflecting the highest light and love of Mother, Father, God's holy purposes to be miraculously swept and transformed by the power of the violet flame into divine love and harmony for the restoration of earth and all of her people into their original blueprint of perfection that was originally intended. Violet flame, violet flame, oh violet flame. In the name of God, Goddess, Flood the earth, her people, and all her kingdoms with oceans and oceans and oceans of violet fire until every particle of life is restored to divine perfection. May peace and love be spread throughout the earth. 
may the earth abide in the aura of perfect love. May the earth abide in an aura of peace, love, and freedom. I give thanks that it is done now according to God's most holy will. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. We've had so much enter our circle of support this week. Whether it's shootings or environmental disasters the last couple weeks. So we're going to continue our work with the Violet Flame and then do some work for the environment. So we call for the Violet Flame individually and collectively once again. Mighty I am presence, beloved God, goddess, beloved heavenly source. Make manifest in me now the sacred violet flame of transmutation in its highest crystalline solar diamond frequencies. Bring the violet flame into every cell, molecule, and atom of my body, filling me totally and completely. As we call this forth for ourselves, we call this forth for every man, woman, and child. Blessed violet flame, blaze into my heart and expand out and around all of my bodies, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, surrounding my entire being with your divine grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness. Transmute all karma, negative thoughts, actions, deeds, and energy that I have ever created at any time in all dimensions, on all levels, in all bodies, through all time and space, past, present, and future for all eternity. Transmute anything and everything that stands in the way of embodying the ascended Christ being that I am. Beloved Violet Flame, turn all that has been transmuted into the gold and platinum light of God, the Christ consciousness, the light of God that never fails. Send this gold and platinum light to me now, filling and surrounding my entire body with this divine radiance. Raise my vibration and frequency to the highest level possible for me at this time. As we call this forth for ourselves, we call this forth for every man, woman, and child. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Send the violet flame and the cosmic blue flame love to the planet, to the environment. We ask for the highest purification of the um, environment and all that has taken place in the environment in the last in this month. As we call forth and invoke a thorough transmutation of all the destructive thought forms contributing to the appearance of environmental degradation and pollution in Ohio, in Michigan, 
due to the earthquake or any other reason or any other location across the planet. Through the clarity of our intention, cleanse the water, soil, air, plants, and the wildlife in these locations and all across the earth. Cleanse them of all forms of toxicity. Saturate every living thing in the environmental areas, disaster areas of Ohio and Michigan and all across the planet with the great healing wave of divine love. Restore harmony and homeostasis in the entire geographical area. We want it all across the planet, but especially at the point of the environmental disaster in Ohio. And the same thing happened here in Michigan, as well as in Syria and Turkey, where the earthquake took place in every other location across, across the planet. Please restore that harmony and homeostasis. Inspire the people of each region to act as as empowered stewards of this region. We ask that East Palestine that was affected in Ohio, um, I can't think of the spot in Michigan, but here in Michigan where they experienced the same train company having a a derailment and and, um, issue with all the chemicals, as well as Syria and Turkey and, again, every place across the planet. We ask that every place be surrounded in a permeable membrane of universal light that purifies, protects, and uplifts everyone and everything within it for the highest good of all. By and through the rehabilitating power of divine will, it is now done. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We call forth the super new moon to assist us and bring forth the energies of abundance. We call forth the golden light of eternal peace and infinite abundance. We call for peace on this planet at this time, as well as the abundance brought forth with the new moon. So see that golden light, again, surrounded by the pink love, filling you, surrounding you, your environment, your home, your community and all across the planet as we call forth for infinite abundance and financial freedom for all. In the name of my beloved I am presence and my beloved Holy Christ self, I call to the lords of manifestation, angels of prosperity, Fortuna, goddess of supply, and the lord of gold, to assist me now in mastering all outer conditions of my life in God's perfect way, including my true abundance. 
charge, charge, charge into my life and use today all the blessings that are mine to receive. Infuse me with ascended master wisdom and purity that I may never again experience lack or limitation. Blaze your heart flames through my four body systems and expand without limit a great flow of divine abundance. Saturate me with enough violet flame and emerald healing light as well as the golden light of eternal peace and abundance to keep my life in balance and harmony. I demand God's invincible protection and wisdom in all of my financial endeavors. I demand it become a magnet of attraction, drawing to me all the wealth that I require to fulfill my divine plan on earth, to make my ascension and to lift all my fellow humanity to do likewise. I give thanks that this is done according to God's most holy will. I accept my abundance now with love and gratitude. I am so very grateful. So be it and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Breathe and receive as we decree. Beloved, mighty, victorious, I am present. Beloved, lords of manifestation. I call for the entire spirit of the great white brotherhood and sisterhood for your assistance and the release of the supply needed to fulfill my destiny here on earth with ease and grace and joy and without financial limitations. Release, release, release your unlimited supply of money and every perfect gift into my life and into the lives of all those who are serving the light of Almighty God and fulfilling the divine plan on earth. I am the resurrection and the life of my ever-present and increasing supply from the heart of Mother, Father, God. I acknowledge my I am presence as my source for unlimited supply flowing through me in the service to the light. I am the master presence manifesting a constant flow of wealth into my life to produce the perfection needed to manifest my divine plan on earth at this time. I am the master presence directing and manifesting great abundance in my life, including all the money I will ever need from the great storehouse of heaven. I give thanks and praise God that I have it now and that as I speak, my prayers are instantly answered. So be it, and so it is. And beloved, I am, beloved, I am, beloved, I am. And we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. So we began with the gold and pink light. See it flooding yourself and the planet as we call forth these highest ascension frequencies, as we see every man, woman, and child filled with divine love and illumination, and we say, in the name of the victorious presence of God, Goddess, I am. I call to the heart of beloved Serapis Bay and the Brotherhood of the Ascension Flame at Luxor 
Beloved St. Germain, Beloved Sananda, Beloved Sanat Kamara, Lady Venus, Seven Mighty Elohim, and Eloam, Seven Beloved Archangels and Archai, and the Seven Kohans of the Rays, I invoke the golden pink ray from the heart of God Goddess to unfold my four main body systems and all of my other subtle bodies. And I say, feel free to say after me, (laughs) golden pink light from the heart of God. Golden pink light from the heart of God. Golden pink light from the heart of God. Infuse my form with my dazzling golden pink radiance. Saturate me with the golden pink light from above. Saturate me with the pure white ascension flame. Raise me up into thy eternal glory. Resurrect my entire consciousness, being, and world. Illumine and charge me with the light of cosmic love for the victory of my ascension and the victory of my eternal freedom and the light. As I call this for myself and for the earth, I also call this for every man, woman, and child on this planet. And so it is, beloved, I am. Gold and pink light from the heart of God. Gold and pink light from the heart of God. Gold and pink light from the heart of God. Infuse my form with thy dazzling gold and pink radiance. Saturate me with the gold and pink light from above. Saturate me with the pure white ascension flame. Raise me up into thy eternal glory. Resurrect my entire consciousness, consciousness, being, and world. Illumine and charge me with the light of cosmic love for the victory of my ascension and the victory of my eternal freedom and the light. As I call this for myself and for the earth, I also call this for every man, woman, and child on this planet. And so it is, beloved, I am. And one more time, golden pink light from the heart of God. Golden pink light from the heart of God. Golden pink light from the heart of God. Infuse my form with thy dazzling golden pink radiance. Saturate me with the golden pink light from above. Saturate me with the pure white ascension flame. Raise me up into thy eternal glory. Resurrect my entire consciousness, being, and world. Illumine and charge me with the light of cosmic love for the victory of my ascension and the victory of my eternal freedom in the light. As I call this for myself and for the earth, I also call this for every man, woman, and child on this planet. And so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. As we call forth all these gifts and blessings of this new moon, eternal peace, infinite abundance, 
prosperity, protection, supply, transmutation, divine will, purification for ourselves and the planet. We ask this to be sealed in divine order. Sealed in divine order. For ourselves and for every man, woman, and child, individually and collectively. And we ask that it be ever-expanding to divine perfection as we call forth this new moon energy to create heaven on earth within each individual and across the entire planet. And so it is. So I wish you a most wonderful, magical new moon week with infinite blessings of every kind. I hope you enjoyed our divine service work here today. And I invite you to join us every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. Gosh, I guess I need to, I didn't memorize my new number here. I'll bring that up. So, yes, we, uh, we've been using one particular number that we've been giving out over the years. And um, I'm going to give you a number that um, appears to work better. I'll give you two numbers, actually. Um, you can experiment with them. Um, so you have greater clarity and hearing and, and participating, uh, having a more fulfilling experience. But you're invited, again, every Sunday and Monday evening. We start at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about 25 minutes of greeting. We have a brief update from Tarn Rama. And at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time, we start our work in earnest of bringing heaven to earth, of doing the visualizations, the prayers, the invocations, the meditation that anchor heaven within our own worlds and across the planet. So here's the number, um, two of the numbers that I would recommend. The first one is area code 480 Two, four. And I like that one because 222 two, two is both resurrection and ascension. Okay, so that number is area code 480-660-2224. And the access code is always the same. It's 946-7441-POUND. Nine four six seven four four one pound. 
Another one recommended by the conference company is area code 712-832-8330. Again, 712-832-8330. Same, same code, 946-7441-POUND. If you have any questions, let me know. Contact me by email, and I will give you a list of phone numbers. It's actually probably 15 phone numbers that we can access um, the uh, Ascension call through. There's also international numbers you can get on through the computer online. You can join. So let's let's do this. Let's make it a more powerful, a most powerful year. We we're in our our uh, year 14 of doing these calls, and we'd love to have you join us to be a regular part of the Ascension Meditation and Activation Program. Truly unique each and every time, truly blessing ourselves and the planet. So I hope you will join us, and I thank you for your service here today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you to Tarn Rama for their service all of these amazing years. Thank you to Rainbird for her service and have an infinitely blessed new moon and um, a magical, magical week filled with um, blessings and victories of every kind. My love and gratitude goes with you. And with that, I'm going to pass the talking stick filled with all of these amazing frequencies, our violet transmitting flame, our blue flame of divine will, our pink and our gold and our white ascension flame and every single frequency imaginable that is that will help us to manifest heaven and all of the kingdoms working with us. And with that, I'm going to pass the talking stick to you, Rainbird. Thank you, my dear. Namaste. Blessing to you. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for your divine service as well. We're so grateful for your words today. And may it be so. So I'm here to do the housekeeping as we're a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us make it, that make it happen. So each week we need, uh, for the month of February, $260 a week. And we're behind. And so this week, by Monday... We need $777, and we're hoping to get as much of that done as possible. All of it would be wonderful and magical. So here's how I make a contribution to the PBS radio expenses. First, go into your heart space and see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And you want to go to Radio Station 2 to find this program at the 1.30 hour, and that's Pacific time on Saturdays, the true history, history of Nasera and our galactic origins. And when you locate that, you see the icon for our program. Just click on that, and that links you directly to our account with BBS Radio. And we have two other shows on Friday and Thursday, Thursday and Friday, on Radio Station 1. And so you'll find them listed as well. It's also a place to make that donation. So on Thursdays, it's the night at the round table with the panel. 
and you can click on that icon there at the six o'clock hour. You'll see it listed on Thursdays at uh, Radio Station One, and then on Fridays on Radio Station One, you'll find a listing at the six o'clock hour. These are Pacific times. The hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. And so either one of those two, as you click on it, will take you to our account as well. And there you can make a donation. Is either either way or all three, <laughs> however you want to play. So there you go. That's how we make that connection and make those donations. And so as all of us could just pitch in a little, maybe we could catch up. Um, I'm sure we can. So let's just participate this week and make it happen. And something we want to do by Monday, if we could. But any time that's convenient for you will be just wonderful anyway. So, uh, so much gratitude. Thank you for all the ways that you show up in your lives. And thank you for showing up in this way. It's a very profound way to participate in the work that we do here, bringing heaven on earth. So, um, yeah, we're also assisting Tar and Rama with their needs. And this week they have a bill due on Monday that's $95. This is a car insurance bill. And you can't be late with that. And then um, they've got most of it and just need $21 if they don't eat. But uh, let's be generous. They also have a to have uh, collect $300 to uh, buy a CV joint for the car and pay for the for the mechanic to put it in. And that needs to happen as soon as possible. These CV joints could leave you, leave you stranded on the road. It would be dangerous to drive your car if you're not, if you don't get it fixed. So we want them, we want Rama to be in his shuttlecraft in safety with, with the technology that we have at this time. And uh, <clears throat> so let's let's see if we can help them out with that $300 for that CV joint um, as soon as possible. So they also need money for food and gas, and we're asking for $250 to cover that. Um, gas is higher, and food, of course, is, and so uh, <clears throat> if we can make that happen, that'd be wonderful. And what else do they need? That's it. Let me tell you how you make that donation to Tara and Rama. You can access the PayPal account for Rainbow Roundtable in two ways. One is through the web address, and I'll give you that, rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, you'll see the menu grid um, on that page. So click on that, and that... Menu will drop down, and near the bottom of that list is the word donate. And you click on that, and that links you to Rama's PayPal account or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. And then the other way to access it is through uh, the direct email uh, that Rama has with PayPal. And so you do that by going to paypal.com. And then where it says who you want to give to, you put in Rama's email address, and that would direct direct it to his account there. So it is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 
at hotmail.com. And you just follow direction there for how to donate to that address. And it's pretty simple. So thank you. Thank you for taking that action. And as you do send money through PayPal, let let Rava know through uh, his personal email that he uses at home and checks all the time. Com- uh, it's Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999-39s at Comcast.net. So let him know what you sent and when you sent it. And you want, if you want to delineate part of that um, <laughs> in the menu, um, I think they give you an option if you want to specify anything, how you want to send that money. It works. But however you want to do it. But, um, yeah, thank you for taking that action. And then as you're needed, the mailing address, it's Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip there, and I'll say it again. Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information you need. And again, thank you for all the ways that you show up in your lives and for all that you do. We're so grateful to have you here and join us each and every week. Um, so this is how we can keep it happening <laughs> and we are we definitely honor what Tara and Rama do the hard working people that keep us connected to the the galactic information that we seek and and how that affects us here on planet earth and how we bring heaven to planet earth so we're all of service here so much gratitude for all of your your service and so what else? I think that's it. So 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Long life, no evil. And I'm passing this talking stick that's just full of all those beautiful frequencies. And the, the blue flame and the bio flame and the gold and the pink and all the frequencies, heavenly frequencies. And um, there's also a lot of fairies and feathers here on this magical day as we come to this new moon and uh I'm and I'm seeing that Quetzalcoatl sort of truth and the sort of Excalibur sort of truth and I'm seeing all kinds of help with the little pe- from the little people and the elementals. So lots of uh dwarfs and Benahunis and they're all decked out and ready to go. And the gnomes and the magical dragons and unicorns are also on this stick. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick, and welcome. Greetings. Are you commanders, eagles, and angels? Happy new moon in Pisces. Coming up on Monday. Yes. Time for peace. Time for peace. Um, so, 
Uh, we didn't take time to give the report, but you can, I can pass the talking stick to you, Ella. I can just say that um, Earth is being showered with the gold dust in the form of big, big solar flares. There was a X class flare yesterday, 2.2. 2.1. Yeah, 2.2.1, whatever that means. I don't know. And it's quite a wild time to be in the energies right now. Things are extremely imminent from our family and friends from the stars and uh, the 13 families know what time it is and, you know, send more love. I got a short text from Tom and Larry and they said, you know, Britain is, you know, Mr. Sunak needs to go. Another prime minister needs to take his place. Maybe Jeremy Corbyn. And who knows? They did something that he won't be able to be in Parliament ever again. That's right, because, you know, the empire is continuing to fall. And it's, you know, all kinds of different beings are showing up uh, in the skies, showing themselves in whatever form they show up and... It's not the deep state, it's our family and friends, I'll put it that way. Mm. What's not the deep state? The things that are showing up in the sky that are... Oh, yeah. Yeah, awesome, pitch, awesome pictures of the auroras and the rainbow rays coming in. Well, um... We're going to start with a piece by Dr. Greer, and he's got something to say about those things that have been showing up in the sky. Yeah. And right before that, Rama gets, he has a friend that sends him every day a different owl picture. Yeah. And I, you know, he showed me the picture of the owl for the day. And there are all kinds of different types of owls, yet... In the medicine wheel cards, owl medicine is described as masters of deceit. So let's keep our eagle eyes out. And I would say Dr. Greer is a master of deceit. He must have an owl medicine in him somewhere. So let's start with that. We'll talk about the other things in the news because Rama hasn't had a chance to print out what Penny sent him. But he'll print it out while we're playing this. So tell us what this says here, Rama. Um, Dr. Greer reveals the truth behind the recent UAPs. In this video, we discuss the recent events of the U.S. military shooting down UAPs over Alaska, Canada, and Lake Huron, leaving to us to wonder if we are at war. We explore some of the possible explanations sir, for these mysterious objects and speak with Dr. Greer, a renowned UFO researcher. Here we go. Here we go. 22 minutes, everybody. 
The U.S. has been shooting down objects out of the sky for the past few days, leaving many of us to wonder if we are now at war with sophisticated, unidentified aerial phenomenon. On Friday and Saturday, two objects were shot down over Alaska and Canada, with an additional object shot down over Lake Huron and Michigan. And everyone is wondering what the hell is going on. The Pentagon is being vague, but telling us the objects are not balloons, even though they released this statement, quote, In light of the People's Republic of China balloon that we took down last Saturday, we have been more closely scrutinizing our airspace at these altitudes, including enhancing our radar, which may at least partly explain the increase in objects that we've detected over the past week. Oh, okay. So before they couldn't see all of these objects, but now they can. And apparently we've been under surveillance this whole time and our super sophisticated multi-trillion dollar national defense had no idea. Some of the pilots claimed the objects interfered with their radars and had no obvious signs of propulsion. So these objects are mysterious, advanced, and we've never seen them before, allegedly. Okay, so what are these objects? Well, one of the ideas is that these are some sort of spy craft from China. That's the obvious low-hanging fruit narrative that allows the Pentagon to advocate for billions of more dollars. (laughs) Many of the politicians skeptical of endless spending for Ukraine are, interestingly, Very hawkish on China. You can get defense money from them. You just need to push the right buttons. This, however, poses a slight narrative challenge. We've been told for a long time that China has crappy versions of stolen tech and wouldn't be able to hold up at all against the U.S. in a hot war. And if they now have some sort of mysterious tech we've never seen, what does that mean? Another idea is that these objects are just some of the hundreds of weather balloons that are released each and every day and are no threat at all that the administration is just using these harmless balloons as a distraction away from the reporting that the U.S. attacked Russia and Germany by blowing up their infrastructure, that they are using these balloons as a means towards increased surveillance, increased militarism, and increased warmongering. The idea that they are rogue balloons actually makes a lot of sense because if you look at the path of the polar jet stream, you'll find it's exactly where these unidentified flying objects have been spotted and shot down. The stream goes down through Alaska, over Canada, into Montana, and down through South Carolina. Plus, even Beijing claimed to have one of these objects flying over them this past weekend. And if you look at how the polar jet stream affects them, they're right under it as well. So are we actually at war with weather balloons? Or maybe they're aliens? What's the possibility of this? Well, there's no better person to ask this question to than Dr. Stephen Greer. Dr. Greer is a renowned figure in the UFO and extraterrestrial research community and is the father of the disclosure movement, bringing to light the vast testimony regarding the existence of extraterrestrial life forms visiting the planet. He's an emergency physician. Dr. Greer, thank you so much for joining the show today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. So are these UFOs? I mean, you are the best person to be asking this question to. Are these extraterrestrial UFOs, I should ask? Uh, no, they're not. And, you know, one of the things that I think people have to understand is context here. Um, in the last year, uh, we have been providing definitive information to the key researchers in uh, Washington, who by law now have to provide a report um, on UAPs or UFOs. And uh, what they have done is to get very much onto the inside of clandestine operations that have man-made objects that are deployed globally, that are not from extraterrestrial origin, but that are extremely advanced um, type of propulsion and energy systems. Now, 
this is this is never broken into the, the media because it gets taken out of the narrative or it gets uh you know shadow banned uh, the truth is we have definitive proof testimony people who worked on these technologies some of which are reverse engineered from uh decades 70 some years of uh, reverse engineering actual extraterrestrial vehicles but these objects remember uh they're going along at, at speed uh and even the ones that have been in the media over the last few years the so-called tic tac and others have been on cnn and everywhere else those were from the lockheed skunk works now an actual extraterrestrial vehicle uh you're not going to shoot that down with a a kinetic weapon, and you're not going to shoot that down with a laser. It's going to take a very sophisticated uh, directional energy weapon to do that, which they have. But this, I believe, is part of a diversion. Well, some people would call it a false flag to sort of uh, put this on the radar at a time where they want to divert people's attention from other issues and, most importantly, the lawmakers away from the information that they were beginning to drill down on in the last year about the actual origin of UFOs and UAPs, a, a percentage of which are, in fact, of extraterrestrial origin. The majority that of ones people see are clandestine and illegally funded aerospace platforms of, of various types. Now, are many of these potentially from China? Yes, perhaps. But the point I'm, I make to people is that the organization that deals with this issue isn't U.S. It only. It's global. So if they wanted to deploy uh, assets that would trigger a news frenzy to sort of posit that there's some threat um, coming, then it would be very easy to gaslight the public and, more importantly, the lawmakers in the White House on this, because that is the – that is how this whole system is uh, set up. Uh, remember, if you, those of you old enough to remember the Vietnam War, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, where we basically staged an attack on our own ships uh, to expand the Vietnam War because uh, there was a need to get the funding for it and to create a, a, a hysteria with the public. And it worked. Uh, the same thing was done after 9-11 where we went into uh, uh, Saddam Hussein's country, Iraq, where there was no evidence that he was involved whatsoever in the 9-11 attacks, but it justified a $1 or $2 trillion war that, of course, greatly uh, enriched the warmongers, notwithstanding the fact that you know, hundreds of thousands of innocent lives, American and otherwise, were lost. And so there, there's this long uh, trajectory of uh, what's called in the counterintelligence community stagecraft where they can set up operations that change the narrative and pull people in a direction that's a uh, misdirect, quite frankly. And that, I believe, the the worrisome thing about this, if you look at a documentary we created about a year and a half ago, it's up on my YouTube channel, and you provide a link called The Cosmic Hoax. We go through all of this. We, We go through the proof that this is the case, and no less a figure than the modern of the father of modern rocketry, Werner von Braun, Adolf Hitler's guy who built the B-2 rocket, he stated on his deathbed uh, to a member of my team, Carol Rosen, that we would try to hoax, quote, an alien threat, unquote. That doesn't exist because that is the ultimate card to play to create a sort of global hegemony of militarist and military-industrial, uh, frankly, fascist 
uh, control over the people through fear because fear really works. And look what they did with COVID. Look what they did with the 9-11 event. So there, there is uh, an orchestrated effort by a clandestine organization, which I can assure you, when I have briefed the sitting director of the CIA from past administrations, the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the top military intelligence person in the world, ministers of defense of all the five eyes countries except New Zealand, meaning Canada, United Kingdom, U.S., and Australia, none of them have been briefed or read in on these projects. And they have been deliberately deceived when they've made inquiries, if not threatened. Now, you keep in mind that, I mean, this has come out publicly recently. Uh, when I briefed 25 years ago, or almost 26 years ago, the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Tom Wilson, he received from me a document that listed the project code names and numbers. And he made inquiries. And when he did, he was threatened with not only demotion, but more. And he was denied access to his projects. Now, when he one person that he spoke to said, uh, you don't have a need to know. He said, well, how can I not have the need to, go, to know? I'm the head of intelligence, J2, for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That, narr- that story that I'm telling you right now, extrapolate that over 33 years I've been doing this. And then I, in, in meeting after meeting, I've warned of the ability of this clandestine and illegally run operation to gaslight the government and the American people and the global public uh, on a threat from out there that doesn't exist. Now, the question is, are they pivoting to... What happens when the prostate enlarges and the urine channel gets tight? You have an enlarged prostate. Do this five-second Japanese morning ritual to shrink it almost immediately. If you've been suffering from nighttime peeing, incomplete emptying of the bladder or a weak urine flow for more than three months, then you need to hear this. To do this and say it's all Chinese. For example, there have been professional disinformation agents like Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon, others that have been going up and telling members of the Senate Intelligence Committee, oh, these were from China when they were talking about the things that were ours literally made by my uncle's company, Northrop Grumman, uh, he's deceased now, or Lockheed Skunk Works. Now, I, we can prove this through testimony, through documents, what have you, but you'll never see this in the New York Times. And I think the problem is, is that the, the stranglehold that uh, these interests have on large mainstream media and tech companies prevents the truth from penetrating enough people to avert what I've worried about for many years. And that is, I, you know, what's happened in the last two weeks or 10 days where the public and our government can be worked into a frenzy by pulling a few triggers that control the media and the narrative that there's this threat that we all have to be worried about. I honestly think that, you know, when they said that, well, they're now training their sensors uh, to detect these objects. I know for a fact the, the National Reconnaissance Office, the super secret spy satellite operation, they have had uh, sensors that could picked up these objects in space and over the earth for many decades with absolute granular resolution. The question is, why are they suddenly announcing their existence? What kind of uh, event uh, are they trying to set up here? So I'm very suspicious of it. I can't say definitively whether they're trying to posit 
a, uh, a threat from outer space that's quote unquote alien, which is ludicrous, frankly, or that it, you know, it's, it's, it's something from China so we can get ourselves into another world war or some huge conflict that benefits the usual suspects in the military industrial community. Yeah, and that's what I'm I'm leaning towards as I'm just thinking that this is just a ploy in order to drag China into the conflict to get those who are not on board with really funding endlessly to Ukraine. They're instead, you know, very hawkish towards China. And so if they're told, hey, China's now spying on us, then these people say, oh, my gosh, well, we've got to do something to stop them. Um, one, one well, for, yeah. well, wait, wait, first of all, I want to make comment on that. Yeah. All countries spy on each other. All countries right. have assets in the countries over the countries, in space, etc. We do, the Chinese do, the Russians do, the Israelis do, etc. Anyone who thinks otherwise is also being deceived. The question is, how and why, just as we are hitting our stride, now let me mention one other key thing. Two days before Christmas, the president signed a bill that the Congress passed, opening a pathway for whistleblowers on the UFO issue to come forward. I have begun the process of bringing those guys forward and to the right people in D.C. Now, is it a coincidence that all this happens within 30 days, less than 30 days, two weeks of this, my first ultra top secret guy being brought in? It's a little bit worrisome because I know what I'm doing and I know who I'm doing it with. And I know that those guys Frankly, some of whom manage the black budget of the United States at that level, who have been denied access to these projects. In the last year, we gave them information where they got access and know what's going on. Suddenly, they pull the trigger on this, uh, some type of counterintelligence operation. Uh, so I think that, you know, uh, you know, frankly, some of these, in fact, are and very likely are from China. How many of those have been over us before that they've never disclosed? Who knows? Um, on the other hand, we have our own assets that could be deployed uh, from other parts of the world, I might point out, because the so-called electrogravitic anti-gravity systems or electromagnetic field propulsion, those were developed in the 50s and 60s. Now, we have a new film coming out called The Lost Century and How to Reclaim It. The lost century is about a hundred years of these sort of energy and propulsion technologies uh, that have been developed and have been extant, but that have never been allowed to be used for peaceful purposes, which is why we have all the global warming and climate change and poverty and pollution we see. Because if you look at how, let's go back a couple years ago, that so-called Tic Tac, that UAP off the coast of San Diego that our F-18 Hornets were chasing, that thing had no means of propulsion. It was solid. It was not a balloon. It was moving against a hundred and some mile per hour headwind uh, at altitude, going straight up and down. And uh, everyone said, oh, my God. And at that time, they were saying, this is from China. Well, that's not from China. Or it says alien. No, it's not alien or extraterrestrial. It's, it came out of the Lockheed Skunk Works out in the Mojave Desert. And I have a picture of the underground place where those things come in and out. I actually have that photo. Wow. From from a Lockheed from a Lockheed guy who was up in the air and took it. So th- th- this is not speculation on my part. The problem is, you know, getting enough of this information to the decision makers in Washington and to the public so we can avert uh, a, a massive deception, 
a sort of cosmic level deception, which is why I appreciate, you know, you doing your show on the issues. Yeah, it's it's very fascinating. I mean, and uh, and I actually went to your presentation where you talked about the lost century and and um, well, the the lost energy uh, and all of the everything that's happened. All these people that have tried to come out and have new forms of energy that would be absolutely beneficial to the planet, um, which is extremely fascinating. It's a very and I actually do want to sit down with you in a much longer form and potentially go over a lot of that stuff because that is just very fascinating. People should really know about that, but. There is a lot of technology that our government knows about, that they're developing, yes. that they're not telling us about. And so it is questioning, it is questionable on what is going on right now. You know, who is behind it? Are they, and why? And I, and are they pivoting it towards, well, now we could just warmonger over China, uh, which seems like it's the likely thing. It seems, but it seems like such a waste to go and blow up some technology, you know, out of the sky, shoot it down out of the sky, unless this is like the cheap version that they don't care about. Uh, you know, all just to warmonger China. Well, they have, I mean, look, a, a limitless resources. And, and one thing to remember when people say the government, there are really two governments. There's the government of we the people, the elected and appointed representatives. Frankly, most of them couldn't find their ass in a well-lighted room on this issue because <laughs> uh, I've met with them and briefed them, to be blunt. But, but there is, as Senator Inui of Hawaii said decades ago in the 80s, he said, there's a shadow secret government with its own air force, its own navy, its own funding mechanism that's above the law and free from the law itself. I'm almost quoting. I don't have it right in front of me, but it's in our documentary, Unacknowledged. Now, you have to ask the question, if there were members of, of the mainstream government, let's call it, who was who were saying that 40 years ago during Iran-Contra, what, you know, else is going on that have has evolved in the, in the uh, ensuing 40 years. And I think that this is where you get into some very big constitutional and public interest crises that are not being discussed, that you have operations that have gone rogue that neither the White House nor many of the leaders in the Pentagon nor the CIA director that I breathe, nor the key members of Congress know anything about. And so this is actually an existential threat to the national security of the United States. And I might add to the world. And, and one last thing, you know, I've, we've published this document. The very first director of the CIA, Admiral Roscoe Hellenkeeter, wrote to the New York Times in 1961 and said, that the UFO issue is very serious, but and I'm, I'm quoting here, it says the secrecy surrounding UFOs is a threat to the national security. He did not say the UFOs were threats to the national security. It's the secret organization that is. And that's what Eisenhower warned about when he left office and he said, beware the military industrial complex. And by the way, military industrial is just a polite way of saying fascism yeah. because the roots fascism are the uh, collusion between major industrial and financial interests hijacking the interests of the, the government and the people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Stephen Greer, thank you so much for joining us and enlightening us on this and giving us your perspective. Um, you know, everybody's, you. everybody's wondering, are, you know, are these aliens? Are they aliens? And, <laughs> and uh, no, maybe it's it, it's probably worse. I mean, it'd probably be better if they were the aliens coming down to finally <laughs> save us from ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, they're, they're certainly watching all this. But I mean, remember, uh, you know, when you have technologies that are, are so classified uh, that 
you know, key people in the government don't know about them or how they work, never mind the public or the media, it's very easy to trick people. So I just tell people, stay calm, don't be deceived, uh, and we need to not make wrong decisions based on fear and hysteria. Yeah. Thank you so much. Dr. Stephen Greer, go to his website, SeriousDisclosure.com. Lots of information. I mean, really, he's the foremost expert on this topic. So really um, thrilled to have you on to talk about this with us and really excited about your new film that's going to be coming out, The Lost The Lost Century. Extremely important. That one to me is very, very important. So people should go and check that out. And it's crowdfunded, so you can donate to that film. You can go to TheLostCenturyFilm.com. Dr. Stephen Greer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Have a good evening. Okay, we're not going to report on this, the other incidents because of the time, but we're going to go right to the next. Um, this is uh, Jocelyn Starfeather. Yeah. And there are two pieces, and the first one is called Moon in Pisces, and the second one's called Enter the Vortex. Are you ready with the first one, Rama? Uh. Yeah. Okay. So this is 27 minutes. Okay. Uh, Moon in Pisces, right, Rama? Yeah. All right, here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this YouTube Live. I hope you are doing very, very well today. Today, I'm going to share with you, and just checking my technology. Okay, good. We are good to go. Today, I'm going to share with you about the new moon in Pisces that we're going to have on February 19th and 20th, depending on your time zone. And this is going to be a super strong new moon. And this is an incredible time to set your intentions for your revised and new and updated and upgraded um plans for 2023. And the reason for that is that the first new moon that we had in 2023 was still very much under the influence of the Mars retrograde and the Mercury retrograde that had just ended in mid-January. And so when we had that new moon in Aquarius on January 21st, it was a it was an okay time for intention setting, but it was still in the shadow of those retrogrades. And now we are completely out of the retrograde shadows. We have been refined. We have been evolved, um, particularly by the eclipses in late 2022 and then those retrogrades in late 2022 into early 2023. And now we can have an entirely new level of clarity and that is what we want to be setting our intentions around for this new moon in Pisces. So let's dive in. I'm going to share the chart with you. And let me just mention that I am Jocelyn Starfeather and I am the founder of Sacred Planet. And you can visit my website at the link, which I will put in the description field below, which is wearesacredplanet.com. I welcome you to come and check out my free gifts that I have on that site and many, many free and donation-based online courses that you will love. Come and check it out. There is so much goodness that I have to share with you there, as well as on this Sacred Planet YouTube channel. So enjoy. Now, let me share my screen with the chart for this new moon. And let's see. Here we go. All right. So here is the chart. And you can see 
that for this new moon, we're going to have the sun and moon at one degree and 22 minutes of Pisces. Okay, before this new moon, though, I do just want to bring your attention to a little bit of the energies that we have leading up to the new moon because it's really important and it's going to be a big part of the energy of the new moon. So just a few days before the new moon, and that was exact on February 16th and even into today when we're doing this recording, February 17th, the sun and Saturn were conjunct at 27 degrees of Aquarius. Now, um, by this time of the new moon, of course, they both moved forward a bit. But with the sun and Saturn conjunct leading into this new moon, there is a strong energy of Saturn And this is the energy that's asking us, what are you building? Because Saturn represents structure, changes in the structure of our lives, changes in the structure of our world. Saturn has been working with us extremely strongly for the last six years as Saturn has moved through Capricorn and then Aquarius. And this is why we're seeing so many changes in our world, so many changes in our lives. So now at that Saturn is about to leave, the sign of his rulership, which is Aquarius, and move into Pisces, where the Saturn energy is going to be much softer. This is a time for us to really crystallize all of the changes that have occurred in these structures of our lives in our world. And we have a new blank slate. That's a really big energy that I'm feeling around this new moon. It is a blank slate. It is a chance to start a new foundation. It is a chance to be in your sovereignty in a whole new way around what you are choosing and building and creating structures around. Um, and so this is, this is really important to know that as the sun came in and activated Saturn once again and Saturn activated the sun, That is the energy flowing into the new moon. And this Saturn is going to continue to be a theme because we'll have Saturn moving into Pisces just a few weeks after this new moon. So let's talk next about the energy of Pisces. Okay. Um, The sun is going to enter Pisces. The sun is going to move from Aquarius into Pisces on February 18th. All right. And so then soon the moon will come in and the moon and sun will join together at one degree of Pisces on the 19th or 20th, depending on your time zone. The exact time of this new moon is in Eastern time, New York time, 2.06 a.m. Okay, Um, so let's talk about Pisces because Pisces is, as the sun is moving out of Aquarius and into Pisces, this is a really big shift because Aquarius is very much about the mental, the intellectual, um, really building visionary new communities for the future, um, social connections that are future oriented. This is the energy of Aquarius. And so Pisces is very different than that. We're going to make a big shift out of that mental space of Aquarius. That's like very much about planning and ideas and uh, looking to the future. And how are we going to do this? And Pisces instead is very much about the realms beyond, okay, the multi-dimensions, the other side of the veil. Pisces is very much about our dreams, our visions, our creativity, our imagination. All of this is going to be amplified for us as the sun moves into Pisces and stays in Pisces over the next month. So really keep an eye on your dreams. Um, encourage yourself to be creative to to cultivate visionary space, meditative space where the visions can come through. 
This is an amazing time while the sun is in Pisces to be in ritual and ceremony and to let the other realms and the messages from the unseen come in and be revealed to you and be integrated within you. Um, during Pisces season, while the sun moves through Pisces, we, we learn also what needs to be transmuted, what needs to be released, because Pisces is the last sign of the zodiac. So it's about, okay, now that you've gone the whole way around, what have you learned and what are you ready to let go of so you can have a new start? And this is what I'm talking about with the energy of the blank slate. We have transmuted and released so much over the last few years. Think about in your life how many things you've released, whether that's relationships, homes, ideas of how your life had to be, um, different health situations, career. I mean, there's so many areas that we've just been releasing, releasing, releasing. And so we've been doing that good Pisces work <laughs> of, of transmuting and releasing what is no longer serving us. Okay. So we very much here have a blank slate to build and create what we want to next. But we do want to make sure as the sun is moving through Pisces and as we have this beautiful new moon in Pisces, that if there's anything else we need to release, anything else that needs to be cleared, we let it go or we set the intention to let it go. We want to really choose carefully what we want to take forward. Okay. And anything that we do not want to carry forward with us into the magical year of 2023, which is going to be just incredible off the charts, especially starting in March. We want to be really clear what we're bringing into that, right? And anything that we don't want to bring forward into that, we got to release it now. And so as we make these decisions, it clears us, it cleanses us, it frees us up to move forward in a much higher frequency, a much lighter way of being that leaves room for our freedom. And this is a huge opportunity at this new moon to really claim that freedom. Let go of all the old stuff that you've been still hanging on to that's weighing you down and claim your freedom going forward. This um, sign of Pisces is also about our shamanic responsibility. So that is to travel into the other realms, to reach higher spiritual understandings and bring back those messages for the benefit of ourselves in our lives and also for the benefit of our community, those people around us, right? This is the true shamanic work is journeying into the other dimensions, bringing back the messages, the information, the healing, you know, the, the, the wisdom and bringing that down into a grounded sense of our own lives and and how we're going to serve the community. Now, one thing we want to be careful of around this new moon is the negative side of Pisces, which is getting lost in the other realms, like not being grounded at all, just spending all of our time over there in the multi-dimensions, but not really, you know, bringing it into the 3D world at all or trying to escape from the 3D um, also addictions, overuse of substances to try to avoid feeling so much that can come up for us. Okay. So if that is something that you have been working with in this lifetime, addictions or using substances in, in a way that's not healthy, be really careful during this time. Um, because you don't want to go into that negative side of Pisces, right? So stay strong, stay stable, stay steady in your center and, um, journey in the ways that you know are, are healthy for you. Okay, so I want to move now into really talking about the core theme of this new moon. That was a little bit about Pisces, just so you have the context here of where the sun and moon are. But this particular new moon 
is very much about the courage to build your dreams into reality. So as I mentioned, the previous new moon, the new moon in Aquarius on January 21st was very much still in the Mercury and Mars retrograde energies. This new moon is very different. We've had so much time to process and integrate what we learned in late 2022 and the first month or so of 2023. So the question for you at this new moon is based on all that you have learned within the last few months, which have been very, very catalyzing few months. What are the clarified and upgraded intentions that you now wish to set for the year ahead? And the reason this is really important to get clear on right now at this new moon is that this year, 2023, 2024 as well. Okay, but let's just focus on 2023 for now. This year is filled with incredibly life-changing, new world-building, freedom-filled energies. So as you set your intentions at this new moon, you want to really tap into the Pisces themes of all possibilities. All the multi-dimensions are available to us, really and truly. They always have been. This is what Pisces reminds us of. We get so stuck in our 3D and our to-do list and the heaviness of life, we tend to forget that Pisces is here saying all possibilities are actually always available to you. So we're going to bring ourselves back to that knowing here at this new moon. We're going to bring ourselves back to the highest frequency energies, the highest spiritual awareness, as well as the recognition of our inherent ability to heal and become harmonized with all that is, right? So if you've been dealing with health challenges, it's so important to remember the body is a magical technology, okay? This body is a portal. It is a temple, and it has a natural... Ability to come back into a harmonic state of being. And so we want to really connect in with that as well. The ability to come become harmonized, the ability to heal. Um, Pisces opens us up to that very, very much. So at this new moon, you're invited into a space of the blank slate, recognizing all that you've released and knowing that there are no limits here. So you've made space, you've been releasing, you've been clearing, you have room to bring in what's new. So what do you truly desire? What are your wildest dreams? Because Uranus is involved with this new moon, and I'll explain that in a moment. What are your wildest dreams? What would be just incredibly surprising to everybody around you, but you know in your heart that's what you really want to do? Set your intentions to let your life come into alignment with those dreams now at this new moon and set those intentions strongly. So there's an incredible combination of planets and aspects along with this new moon. Okay. So we're, this involves, and I'll explain in more detail in a minute, uh, the sun and moon, of course, Saturn, Mercury, Uranus, and Mars are all really strong here. So. Here is what this incredible combination is giving us. The new moon in Pisces, the sun and moon in Pisces, open the door to all possibilities. Saturn gives us the structure to build it. Mercury gives us the intellect to know the next steps. Uranus gives us the revolutionary attitude 
to dare to claim our freedom. And Mars gives us the forward motion, courage, and willpower to really make it all happen. So this is super exciting, and I'm going to explain a little more about why I'm calling in all those planets and why I'm referencing them in this in this astrology update. Now, before I go on to explain those details, I just want to mention, okay, that if you'd like to book an alchemical astrology reading to find out what new horizons and surprising gifts that 2023 holds in store for you, our amazing, absolutely amazing and wonderful sacred planet in-house astrologer Cynthia Honores still has a few spaces left on her calendar for February and March, okay? And so her calendar is filling quickly, but if you jump quickly, you will still have time to book with her. She's really, really wonderful. As I mentioned in a previous um, astrology update, I just do not have time in my schedule to do astrology readings one-on-one anymore, okay? But Cynthia has come in to the sacred planet world, and she's incredible, and she is so beautifully able to give these alchemical astrology readings much in the same way that I have been doing, right? So go to wearesacredplanet.com. You'll see that link in the description field below. Click on astrology readings near the top of the page, and you'll see the options for booking with Cynthia. So really, if you feel called, go ahead and get an astrology reading with her. You will be so glad that you did because what we are moving through in 2023 is momentous. It is astronomical. And so we want to have that divine cosmic blueprint for you laid out with clarity so that you can understand it and know what energies you individually specifically are going to be moving through in 2023. Okay. So coming back to the astrology of this amazing new moon. So first of all, this new moon is at one degree of Pisces, and this is setting the stage for Saturn to come and move into Pisces. Saturn is going to move into Pisces on March 7th. So this, and and then Saturn is going to very quickly come to one degree of Pisces. And Saturn will be exactly at one degree of Pisces from March 16th to the 24th. So this new moon happening at one degree of Pisces right before Saturn moves in is going to give us the first real glimpse of what's ahead in the next three years as Saturn moves through Pisces. Um, starting on March 7th. So Saturn is about the 3D. Saturn is about structure. Saturn is about slowing down to build a solid foundation, which can feel really frustrating, but it's important. Saturn is about the challenges and frustrations that we have from needing to operate in 3D when we know we're really beings of light. This is what Pisces says, right? We're beings of light. We're multidimensional. We can travel anywhere, anytime. But Saturn says, hold on. Slow down. Let's look at the details. Let's build it. Let's make it a really solid structure so that it can last. So Saturn and Pisces are very opposite energies. This is really interesting. So as these two energies come together over the next three years, it's going to allow us to merge those two polarities, right? So not just being like out journeying in the multi-dimensions all the time, not just being stuck in the 3D and having to build stuff, but bringing those together. And the huge potential here is that we can take our dreams and visions and creativity and build them into reality. And this is just amazing for creating new businesses that are based on themes like spirituality, healing, energetics, ancient wisdom, Mystery school teachings, ritual and ceremony, plant medicines and entheogens, 
astrology, tarot, dream work. I could go on and on and on. Dance and movement, nature connection, vision quest, rites of passage. All of these kinds of things are going to come into the forefront, are going to come so much more strongly into mainstream awareness in 2023 beyond what you could possibly imagine. Okay. And this new moon is kicking off an increased awareness in the collective around all of these topics. Okay, so this is really important if you have a soul-based business that is based on these kinds of themes, or if you're wanting to start one, you need to know you're going to be in very high demand very soon. And Pluto, I'm going to just briefly bring Pluto into this story too, Pluto moving into Aquarius later in March is going to further amplify this. Okay, because Pluto brings in themes related to Raising consciousness, life and death, kundalini and the chakras. Um, it, it doubles down on mystery traditions and entheogenic work. Okay, so all of this is going to be in extremely high demand in the coming years. You will not believe it's going to be just an astronomical difference between now and two to three years from now as far as the demand for these types of topics and this kind of work. So if that's you, if you are wanting to start your purpose work, do it now. Set your intentions at this new moon. Okay. It's going to be incredibly powerful for you over the next few years. Build your dreams into reality now. And it can all begin with one clear and strong intention that you set at this potent new moon in Pisces. Now, if you're not entrepreneurially oriented, that's all good too, because you are going to have an increased ability to really bring your spirituality into your life in a whole new way, okay? Really solidify the ways that you are healing, the ways that you are up-leveling your consciousness. I had, my previous video was very much about the up-levels and staying strong and steady through the up-levels as we're, as we're claiming these new levels in our life. So I welcome you to check that out. I'll put that link in the description field below. Um, so this is one thing. This is the, the Saturn energy and the way that this, so first, as I mentioned, the sun came to Saturn right before this new moon. And also this new moon is marking the point where Saturn's going to move into Pisces and really setting the tone for the next three years. So then we have Mercury as well. And this is really important. So Mercury, you can see at this new moon is at 12 degrees of Aquarius. And so in the days following this new moon, and I'm just going to do a little forward motion here. Um, so if we go to even this, the very next day, okay, the 21st, um, Mercury will be at 14 and squaring Uranus at 15 degrees and trining Mars at 16 degrees. Now this gets even stronger as we go to the 22nd. This is an exact square between Mercury and Uranus. And then the 23rd, between the 22nd and 23rd, becomes an exact trine between Mercury and Mars. So I'm just going back to the new moon here. So you can see that Mercury has extremely strong aspects during and immediately following this new moon. So the first of all, Mercury in Aquarius square to Uranus in Taurus this is about lots of new ideas and possibilities coming through because Mercury is our intellect, our speech, our communications, um, also technology. And Uranus is all of that, but like electrified. <laughs> okay. Very fast moving, 
shocking and surprising is what Uranus represents. So this is like so many new ideas, so many new possibilities, creativity, being able to see things in a whole new way, like the revelations coming through. And Mercury has just left Pluto behind. Mercury conjuncted with Pluto within the last couple of weeks and now is ready to move away from that underworld energy and move into Aquarian breakthroughs and freedom with a square to Uranus. Now, because it's a square that can create tension. So this could be like, oh, there's too many ideas. I don't know which one to focus on. There, there are too many ways that I want to be creative, right? Or it could be like a surprising communication coming through that throws you a little bit off off of your center. Um, and so anything like that, just take it in stride. Know that these are pretty quick transits, but this is all moving through to revolutionize us and help us to see the world and see our lives in a new and different way. And then with the Mercury trine to Mars in Gemini, this is really powerful for us. This is a huge part of what's going to give us the courage to move forward with whatever our intentions are for this new moon. All right, because Mars is about action. So Mercury is about the intellect, understanding it, making the plan. Mars is about let's do it. Let's make it happen. All right. And because Mars is in Gemini, and Mercury rules Gemini, this is an especially harmonic trine between the two of them. So there could be new agreements coming together, new plans coming to fruition, projects moving forward, and the courage to say what you've been wanting to say, to really express what you've been holding within. So this is why I'm saying that during this new moon, um, I'll just say this part again, Mercury gives us the intellect to know the next steps. Uranus gives us the revolutionary attitude to dare to claim our freedom. And Mars gives us the forward motion, courage, and willpower to really make it happen. So this is really exciting. We want to choose our intentions very carefully and very clearly during this new moon. Remember taking into account all that you've learned since about mid to late October 2022 up until now. Bring all that together. Crystallize it into your highest intentions your highest vision for the future. What are your wildest dreams, right? Even if it's things that you don't think you can do or you don't see how it can be possible, even so, set the intention for it now. And with that, I just want to um, bring back in the alchemical prayer, which I've mentioned a couple times recently because this is very much the energy of this new moon. So say it with me here. This is a really powerful prayer that just opens us up to all the possibilities. Dear universe, please send me all of the things that I need the most that I do not even yet know are possible. With that prayer, we create the alchemy that we've been longing for in our lives. Okay, so I hope you've enjoyed this update Please put your comments in the, in the chat below and let me know what you think. How is this moving for you? What are your intentions for this new moon? And any other thoughts, any other reflections that you have, I would just love to hear. We are so supported with this new moon. It's really powerful. It's really fun. It's exciting. It's like freedom filled. Again, the blank slate. It is a time to create what you want anew. Um, and also, please do be sure to like this video and subscribe to my channel so you can see more updates like this. And if you are someone who is 
wanting to build the new world, who is ready to move forward on your soul purpose project, please come to my website and check out a couple pieces. So one is check out the work with me page. I have amazing opportunities for you to uh, really build your dreams into reality, really bring your mission and message to the world in very powerful and fun and exciting ways and freedom-filled ways. And also check out the Radical New World Building Group. This is a group that is currently full, but if you check it out and you love what you see there, sign up to get notifications when we open the group up again. I might be opening a whole other section of that group up because it's been in very high demand and we're just having the most fun and the most really beautiful breakthroughs in the group for people who are already in there. So that's the Radical New World Building Group. Check it out on my website. And I look forward to seeing you again in another video very soon. Much love, everybody. Enjoy this powerful new moon in Pisces. And I'll see you all again soon. Bye for now. Okay, now we're going to visit her right now, which is the soon of it. And this, this one's called Enter the Vortex. And it's 35 minutes, and let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this YouTube live. I have a very exciting um, astrology update to share with you. And this is about March 2023. This is going to be just a paradigm shifting, new world building kind of energy that we're bringing in in March 2023. And I can't wait to tell you all about it. So I'm Jocelyn Starfeather, and I'm the founder of Sacred Planet. Welcome to the Sacred Planet YouTube channel. Once you watch this video, definitely check out our other recent videos. I think you will find some really interesting things that you might love to explore. And so for today, we are looking at the astrology of March 2023 with massive shifts in the world order and spiritual businesses rise. So let's dive right in. I'm going to share my screen with you here um, with a chart for the date and time when, first of all, we will have a Pluto moving into Aquarius. So here we are. Now, this is the first transit out of three transits I'm going to particularly call your attention to for March 2023. And this is a really big one because Pluto is uh, going to spend about 20 years in Aquarius. Pluto will be moving out of Capricorn in March 2023, and will be spending some time going back and forth between Aquarius and Capricorn for 2023 and all the way until the end of 2024, okay? And then going forward, 2025 and on will be completely uh, in Aquarius, all right? And Pluto will be transiting Aquarius all the way until 2043. So this is a major 20-year transit. Previous to this, Pluto spent about 16 years in Capricorn. And so whenever Pluto changes signs, because Pluto moves so slowly, it's a very, very far outer planet, as you know. Um, this is a shift of ages. Okay, this is really bringing in a whole new collective energy. And Pluto is the planet that 
um, teaches us about transformation, that teaches us about our true and deep power that lies beneath the shadows. So Pluto calls for us to excavate and to explore deep within ourselves and to make major initiatory changes in our life around the themes of the sign that he's in and for you in your own chart, the house that he's in, in order to bring hidden truths into the light, in order to find the treasures hidden beneath your shadow so you can bring those gifts out and actually become more fully who you truly are and step into your deep, deep power that you hold within. Now, what I'm going to share with you here today are some aspects of what we'll feel in the collective from this Pluto in Aquarius transit. We want to keep in mind that this is a very long process that will last for many, many years. Okay, 20 years um, that Pluto will be in Aquarius. And even after that, we'll still feel some aftershocks from it. Right. So this is a this is a long transit. This is a powerful and very important transit. But it's going to take some time for Pluto's effects to really fully move through us, to really fully come into our lives and then um, take the actions, you know, and the and the um, outcomes that he's wanting to create and then for us to integrate it. OK, so this is a long process with Pluto. Um, Pluto will be coming to the exact zero degree Aquarius point that Jupiter and Saturn had their grand conjunction at in December 2020. Okay, so if you think back to what was happening for you personally in December 2020 and what was happening for us in the collective at that time, there was a lot going on. It was very initiatory. Okay, it was very um, revelatory as Saturn had just moved into Aquarius and Jupiter was just moving into Aquarius at the same time. They were joining together at zero degrees of Aquarius. So around whatever themes you were experiencing at that time, there are going to be new layers of truth opening up around those same themes um, in 2023 and even throughout 2024 because Pluto will be exact at zero degrees Aquarius on various dates all throughout the two years, essentially, from March 23rd of 2023 for about a three-month period, then January and February 2024, then July to September 2024, and then November and December 2024. So Pluto is going back and forth, retrograding and going forward over the zero-degree Aquarius point again and again. So what this major Pluto in Aquarius transit is going to be calling our attention to, okay, and then and this new energy that's going to be really strongly breaking through to us beginning in March 2023 is about what is new and what is possible, okay? And with this happening in Aquarius, this is going to bring in um, an energy that can be very Uranian. It can be very unpredictable. Aquarius is the energy of our future. This is the energy of the new communities that we're going to build to form our future world. And that's why this can be completely uprooting the current world order and bringing in a new world order, a new kind of leadership we haven't seen before. I'm going to speak more about that in a moment. Okay. But Aquarius is also um, the sign that really honors the unique genius in each person. So as we think about what are the new kinds of communities we want to form going forward, there's this very egalitarian energy 
Okay. This is stepping away from the top down type of leadership, power over type of leadership and bringing in a new egalitarian energy, a much more grassroots kind of energy with Aquarius coming to the forefront of our consciousness during this next 20 years. Um, but Aquarius is aligned with the themes of the planet Uranus. All right. So this also brings in an unpredictable energy, a destabilizing energy. But we have to remember that if things are breaking down, if things seem unstable, this is happening in order to create the changes that are needed. We know we need a lot of change in our world. We know there are many aspects of how our world is being run by humanity that is completely out of alignment, out of alignment with truth, out of alignment with the earth, out of alignment with our deep values and integrity, right? So these changes are what Pluto is going to bring so that we can build the future in a new way, right? Aquarius, so that we can build the new future that we know is possible, that we've been longing for. So in the long run, again, Pluto works over a long period of time. So in the long run, this destabilizing that we'll experience is meant to increase coherence and frequency overall in the collective, in the big picture. So Pluto wants to explore the deepest layers. Pluto wants to bring out the truth. And and with Pluto, anything that's hidden must come out. All right. So if there are situations where governments or politicians or corporations or medical establishments, whatever it might be, have been dishonest, have been hiding the facts, hiding the truth, these kind of truths are going to start to come out. There's going to be some major disclosure. There's going to be some major um, truths coming into the light, particularly over the next 20 years and starting in March 2023. We need to remember that Pluto represents the continual cycles of destruction and creation. And destruction always leads to new creation. We must destroy and compost the old in order to birth what is coming next. So with all of this, it's always in service to our highest evolution. But there may be wake-up calls. There may be things we don't want to look at. Um, There may be things that we've turned away from before, and now we're going to be asked to really look at them to really come, you know, eye to eye with that which we didn't want to see so that we can heal it, so that we can work with it, so that we can evolve it. And so we need to be resilient and we need to go into the spaces with the shadows. We need to go into the spaces with what we didn't want to look at so that we can rise into this higher evolution that Pluto is calling us up to. So as all of this moves through, this can create social and political revolutionary energy. All right. This can create massive shifts in power and leadership. And so as we move with these energies, there are going to be new forms of leadership emerging, ousting out the false leaders who are still trying to do things in the old, outdated ways, bringing in new leaders, bringing in new leaders who will see things in a new way, who will want to build the future in a, in a different way than what we've even had access to before. Um, Pluto and Aquarius also is going to represent some big changes and new developments in technology. So we're already seeing, just as Pluto is, is about to tap into Aquarius for the first time here, an explosion in AI technology 
space exploration, um, new medical developments, new experimentation with what is being put into our bodies. And so this is going to continue and we're going to need to really decide each and every one of us what is in alignment with our values, what is in alignment with our own integrity and what do we consent to versus what do we not consent to and what do we not want to um, further or give any any strength or energy to. And we may need to take a strong stand on that in some cases. There will probably be some big revelations coming out about what's really been happening with scientific and medical experimentation. Um, Cryptocurrency is another part of this, this new technology, new forms of money. Pluto also represents money. Okay, so there may be uh, changes in the cryptocurrency market, maybe even new forms of currency other than the cryptocurrency we've had so far. there could be definitely through the tracking of money be uh, attempts at greater tracing and control of the population. And then along the technology um, lines, there could be new forms of the Internet or completely new technology we haven't even imagined yet coming out and becoming available to us. So all of this represents significant changes for the evolution of humanity. And we've had many years with Pluto in Capricorn, Capricorn representing structure, representing governments, corporations. Um, we've had many years as Pluto moved through Capricorn of seeing the structures being torn down. Okay. Those political structures, educational structures, medical, you know, organization, medical industry structures, right? We've been seeing the holes poked in those. We've been seeing their weaknesses. We've been seeing how they're starting to crumble. So now that we are so far advanced in tearing down the structures, all right, and our lives have been lightened and freed from old energies and burdens because our in our own lives, the structures have been torn down as well. How are we going to come together in community, honoring the differences within each and every one of us, Okay, creating this new egalitarian future with new leadership. So I invite you as we're thinking about this upcoming Pluto transit to really journal on these questions or, or meditate on these questions. Okay, so one question is, what are you done with? What have you had enough of? You're ready to be done with it. And also, what are you ready to birth anew in service to the collective future? Now, that includes your own future as a part of the collective, but also keeping in mind what the collective needs, because this is one of the Aquarian values that's going to be very important moving forward. How does what I am doing play a part in the larger collective and how can I contribute the highest energy into that? All right. And then the third question is, What truths do you need to bring into the light in order to help birth that new future that you've been dreaming of? So this is a massive shift in energies and a very, very powerful time. Um, This this whole month of March 2023 and Pluto moving into Aquarius is only one piece of the puzzle. All right. So um, let's move to the next transit that I want to share with you, and that is Saturn moving into Pisces. So this will be on March 7th, 2023. So I'm just going to update the chart here at about 8.35 a.m. 
New York time. Okay, so here we have Saturn at zero degrees, zero minutes of Pisces. And I'm putting the charts up because if you're interested, you can look at what the, the entire chart configuration is at that time. I'm not diving into the individual squares and trines and everything like that in this um, video. I am more looking at an overview of what this transit is going to bring for us as these planets move through the full sign, as Pluto moves through the full sign of Aquarius, as Saturn moves through the full sign of Pisces. Um, you can see here that Pluto at this time is still at 29 degrees of Capricorn, okay, because this is earlier in the month before that Pluto shift occurs. Okay, so as Saturn is going to move into Pisces on March 7th, we are talking about this sign of Pisces that has already been relatively recently activated by Uranus, by Neptune, which is still there in Pisces, as you can see at 24 degrees of Pisces, by Jupiter, which only recently moved out of Pisces and is now transiting through Aries. Okay. And now this sign of Pisces is going to be activated by Saturn as well. Pisces represents our dreams, our imagination, our visions, our spirituality, it represents our connection to and insights from plant medicines and near-death experiences, right? These transcendent experiences that allow us to see beyond the veil, that allow us to see the reality that is not not visible to us on a day-to-day basis with our human eyes. And Pisces also represents our understanding of oneness, that we are all one, that we are all so deeply interconnected. So Pisces is very much about how we see reality. And because all of these other major planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Jupiter, have been spending time in Pisces over the past several years, there is already a massive spiritual awakening underway. These planets have come in and hit this sign, this zodiac sign, that has so much to do with our spirituality, our connection to our oneness and interconnectedness. And it's causing our belief systems to shift So we're at this point now where there's already this massive spiritual awakening happening. We are already at a point of understanding that there are major changes that need to be made in how we view reality and our role in the collective future, right? That we're all interconnected. So how are we impacting the whole? So then when Saturn comes into Pisces with this context of mass spiritual awakening already set into motion, Saturn is going to ask us to get serious about this awakening process, to get serious about our dreams, our imaginations, our visions, our spirituality. He's going to ask us to put structure around this awakening process to build it more fully into 3D reality. So Saturn, planet of Saturn, is about structure, hard work, building something that will last, and Saturn includes frequent delays. He causes delays. He causes frustrations, slowdowns. But this is to force us to pause, to evaluate and restructure, to ensure that we have the strongest foundation before we continue building. So Saturn is going to play a really key role here. Saturn is asking us to come to a new level of maturity around our spiritual awakening. And Saturn is saying, it's time to take your dreams your imaginations, your visions, your deepest desires. It's time to take the things you're seeing, 
in your meditations and your medicine journeys and build them into physical 3D reality. Make them real. Create new outcomes, new results, and time to explore new methods, new solutions. So this is really powerful. And what I see happening here more than anything is that the spiritual awakening that's been happening, this rising of consciousness that is happening on the earth is going to become so much more mainstream over the three or so years that Saturn will be in Pisces. And that's going to be until February 2026. Okay, so March 2023 to February 2026. During this time, we are going to see an absolute explosion of interest in energy healing, in frequency work, in uh, sacred plant medicine work, in ritual and ceremony, in dream work, in meditation, even more so than it already is. Okay. And so um, also rites of passage work and all different forms of ceremonial and ritual work. So, This is an incredible opportunity for those who have already been on the awakening journey, for those who of you out there listening who are already light workers, who are already healers, who are already teachers of these beautiful, many healing modalities and spiritual expansion and growth modalities that are available. I'm actually going to share another screen with you here because it's it's relevant and it illustrates this really beautifully. Um, but those of you who are already have already been doing the work, have already been going through the initiations, already been experiencing your spiritual awakening, you're going to be called upon to become leaders now for those new people who are stepping into and just starting to open their eyes and their hearts to see what more is here for us. So as it says here, projects, ventures, communities, businesses that are based on all of these themes, spirituality, healing, energetics, frequency, ancient wisdom, ritual and ceremony, plant medicines, astrology and tarot, alchemy, dream work, dance, movement, nature connection, All of these are going to be so incredibly favored by the cosmic energies, particularly with Saturn moving into Pisces. Um, Pluto and Aquarius also helps with this as well. Okay. Cause Pluto is bringing us into an increased level of interest and want desire to explore the mystery, the magic, the hidden realms. Okay. So if you are wanting to start a business around these themes or you're already doing that kind of work, you are going to be so massively supported during the next three years. So really take heart. Um, it's like spiritual businesses rise. Okay. Those are, the, those are the words to sum it up, right? Now is your time. So claim your power and really move into connection with what you truly want to do because you're going to have the support to do it, especially starting in these next three years. Um, if you are interested in starting a spiritual business, come to my website. I'll put some links below in the description field. Um, there are so many beautiful opportunities that I would love to share with you. But this Saturn in Pisces is really going to help us solidify the awakening process, come to maturity around our own spirituality. And we're going to see that echoed in the collective in these really beautiful, beautiful ways. Now, Saturn can be a stern taskmaster. Okay. So if Saturn comes into Pisces and you want to look at what house uh, in your own chart is Pisces, because that's the theme that Saturn will especially be working with you on. If Saturn comes in and things seem to start really 
slowing down and grinding to a halt and getting frustrating or there are breakdowns, don't worry. Okay. Don't freak out. (laughs) Just know that Saturn is ultimately here to help you build the strongest possible foundation in this area of your life. Again, whatever house Pisces is for you in your chart. Saturn is coming in to help you evolve. He's helping you to create structures, to create new organization, to create new um, concepts that can really help you to be strong and steady in this area of your life so that you can be at your best and expand into this going forward. All right. So trust the process. And if Saturn is giving you stern lessons, okay, you want to work with Saturn. Don't run from it. Right. We want to really turn towards Saturn and say, you know, have conversations with Saturn. Ask him, Saturn, what do you want me to learn from this? What is the lesson I'm supposed to be getting here? Please help me to understand. Help me to integrate this so that I can learn quickly and receive the blessings of this transit even sooner. Really important to do that rather than turning away because it got difficult. All right. Now, the third really important transit I'm going to share with you today is involving Venus. All right. So this is going to be Venus conjunct the North Node in Taurus. And this is happening on March 20th. So let me update the chart here. That's 1028 in New York time. So you will see that we have Venus at four degrees and 24 minutes of Taurus. And we also have the North Node at four degrees and 24 minutes of Taurus on this powerful March 20th date, which is also the equinox. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a really powerful day um, and a very beautiful, beautiful energy. So the North Node represents the collective future of humanity. Okay, this is the direction that our souls and our destinies and our highest evolution is pulling us toward. That is what the North Node represents. And so this is monumental. Okay, this is this is just like Aquarius. This is very future oriented. Now, Venus represents the great goddess, the true sacred feminine. And she also represents embodiment, love, beauty, She represents where we find ease and flow and grace in our lives. And she represents financial resources and how we value ourselves. Very important for entrepreneurs, right? We need to really value what we're offering so that we can receive the abundance for it in return. And Venus is very at home in Taurus. Taurus is one of the two signs that she rules. Um, The other one is Libra. And Taurus represents our 3D existence here on the planet. Okay, so Taurus represents our physical bodies, the physical earth. Also represents the far distant ancient feminine and matriarchal wisdom. And Taurus represents stability, steadiness, groundedness, and a feeling of home. A feeling of safety because we know we're at home in our bodies, we're at home on the earth. So Venus also carries many of these same themes as Taurus. Taurus and Venus are are quite interconnected. So when Venus conjuncts the North Node in Taurus, this is going to be at, at four degrees of Taurus, as you can see in the chart. This is going to bring ease and peace and soothing to the places in our lives that got obliterated in 2022. 
okay, with the Uranus-Mars-North Node conjunction, which was extremely destabilizing, extremely destructive in some of our lives that happened in late July, early August 2022, and was really like the epicenter of 2022. So all the themes that came up for you very intensely in 2022, probably centered around this Uranus-Mars-North Node conjunction that was very fiery, very destructive, very like world ending so that we can start a new world. But when it's happening, it feels really difficult. So Venus is now coming to the North Node. So where Uranus and Mars were conjunct the North Node in 2022, now this is a very different energy with Venus conjunct the North Node. So this is going to bring peace and calm, much more ease around the subjects that came up so intensely in 2022 and where we may still be feeling desperation and despair around those, around what happened last year. Um, she's going to bring peace around that. She's going to bring calm and ease and soothing. So um, this is a time to really center in, focus in within yourself. Okay, come back to your embodiment practices, or if you never have had an embodiment practice like yoga or dancing or Tai Chi, it's an amazing time, particularly on this March 20th date, to set a new intention all right, and to really anchor in to embodiment, to honoring your body as the physical temple and to laying on the earth, hugging a tree, really like coming into connection with the natural world around you as a way of healing from all that happened in 2022. So for the the bigger picture here, um, this transit for all of us brings a massive invitation for us to reclaim our organic sovereignty. And I want you to really let these two words sink in to all, to your heart and all levels of your awareness, our organic sovereignty. Okay. So this is happening at the same time as we're going to be faced with AI and wild new technology advancements from Pluto and Aquarius. Okay. And, and Uranus is going to move into Gemini in 2025. It's going to be even more wild technology advancements. Venus conjunct the North Node in Taurus is going to ask us to reclaim our right to leave the phone and computer at home and go for a walk way out in the forest, far away from cell phone towers. Okay. Reclaim our embodiment, reclaim our true self expression using the body. Right. The self-expression of our deepest desires, our sexuality, our sensuality. These are very important themes for Venus. Right. So think about where in your life have you gotten way too trapped in your head, (laughs) too intellectual, too caught up with thinking and technology and being busy. Venus is beckoning you back to the warmth and comfort of your own body, to the unconditional love of the earth to walking barefoot in the grass on a sunny day or savoring a long kiss with your beloved, right? And so as the North Node is involved here, this brings us to a bigger question for all of humanity, which is what will we choose? What will we as the collective of humanity choose? And I'm just making sure... 
Okay. Making sure our technology is all good here. It is. And so what will we choose, right? So with Pluto and Aquarius, Uranus soon moving into Gemini, right? Are we going to choose to put computer chips in our brains and worship AI images of our friends? <laughs> you know, these AI images that are going around now. It's just, it's just wild, right? And are we going to try to find a way to live on Mars because it's just gotten too hard here on Earth? Is that what we're going to choose? Because Pluto and Aquarius, Uranus and Gemini might invite us into that. Or will we follow Venus and Taurus with the North Node? Will we reclaim our deep, ancient, reciprocal connection with the Earth, spend more time with her, dancing, making love, sitting around a fire, planting seeds in the deep, rich, dark soil, and honoring this physical temple of the human magical body that we each get to live in because this body is ultimate, the, ultimately the highest technology of all, right? Venus is coming in to remind us of this. And what's really interesting is this is a fairly short transit, okay, Venus to the North Node um, on March 20th. But Jupiter is going to come along behind Venus. Jupiter is going to conjunct the North Node at three degrees of Taurus in late May and early June, And then Jupiter is going to spend a full year in Taurus. So this Venus North Node transit is just the beginning of a larger invitation back to our organic sovereignty for those who dare to leave behind the system that requires us to be on our phones all day, right? And find our path back to our true, real, natural selves and our true, real, natural Earth. Now, I don't mean to say that all technology is bad. Clearly, we're here on a YouTube live. You know, let's embrace the technology where it's positive. But let's also not give up our own agency, not give up control over our own bodies, right? And let's just find the right balance. And let's create space in our lives to take time away from the technology when that is aligned, all right? It's also really beautiful that this Venus North Node conjunction is happening at the equinox. So this is a day when day and night are equal. This is a very um, important Earth-based holiday. And in the Northern Hemisphere, this is when the first signs of spring are starting to break through. We might be finally having a warmer day here and there. And in the Southern Hemisphere, this is the time when the intensity of heat of the summer is starting to ease and we're moving into the beauty of autumn. So this is a wonderful time to spend the day with the earth and with nature. And that will make Venus and the North Node conjunct very happy. So I would love to hear in the comments on YouTube, how does this move you? What do you think? How do you see this showing up in your own life? You will want to look at what house is Aquarius in your chart for that Pluto transit, What house is Pisces in your chart for the Saturn transit? And what house is Taurus in your chart for the Venus? And then coming down the line a couple of months later, Jupiter uh, and the North Node transits. And I would just love to hear your reflections, your thoughts. Um, How do you feel about the AI technology versus our organic sovereignty? I know there might be some heated discussions about that, and I welcome it. You know, we need to bring all of our awareness, all of our consciousness, all of our values forward together in these Aquarian times and find our new way forward. So um, this month of March is just momentous. It's 
huge. It's a, it's such a big shift of energies on so many levels. So it's good to know about it in advance. You know, you want to really be prepared for that shift so it doesn't take you off guard um, so that you can work with it in the best ways and embrace these energies because all transits have a positive side and a more difficult side, right? So we want to be able to embrace the positive aspects of it and know how to be resilient and courageous if the negative aspects come up because always, always they are just helping us to move toward our highest evolutionary path. So I wish you all a beautiful day today and I wish you a beautiful March 2023 when that month arrives and I am sending you all much love. Okay, we're going to just jump right into the next one. The title is Understanding Otherworldly Evidence that Will Speak for Itself. And the second that Rama's ready, we're going to start it. Our understanding otherworldly evidence, Rama. Can new evidence build an understanding for the unexplainable? Join five of the world's leading experts to unravel mysterious phenomena that have boggled the minds of the masses for decades. From ETs, UFOs, and UAPs to shadow governments ready? Oh, just about. Paranormal sites and unexplained anomalies. Learn why the latest evidence matters at the Awakening Conference in Black Blackpool, okay. UK. Here we go. Hour and 22 minutes, so it'll be about 6.31 when we're done. Let's start. Today we will be presenting some of our pre-selected audience questions to our guest speakers, starting with Richard Doty and then moving along. Okay, so without further ado, I'll hand over to our digital MC, Mr. Peter Twist. Richard Doty. Richard, as a special investigations agent, you were once involved in a search for an escaped extraterrestrial from a Papoose Lake facility known as Site Alpha. Can you tell us what type of extraterrestrial creature this was and where it had come from? Yes, in 1980s, early 1980s, I was assigned as a counterintelligence officer at uh, the Groom Lake Complex, and everyone knows that as Area 51. Um, There was an incident that happened where a ET that we had in captivity or uh, I don't like to actually say captivity, but we were housing it at a special facility called Site Alpha, which was northwest of Papoose Lake. Now, there's a lot of stories out there about this incident, uh, some fact, some fiction, but the actual incident was that one of these uh, extraterrestrial entities escaped it now site eight uh, site alpha is in the lower portion of the groom lake area and it made its way all the way up to uh the northern perimeter of the nellis test and training range which is uh which encompasses uh papoose lake 
Groom Lake and Tonopah Air Force Base. Um, we were notified, the, the OSI office was notified that this uh, entity had escaped and the containment team, and there was a special containment team on the base and their actual job was to try to capture this uh, entity. Uh, but we were notified that this has happened and we went out uh, to assist in the capture of this uh, entity. The entity was a, uh, now the names of these uh, entities that we had in captivity or the names that we knew or had contact with ETs over the years was named by the Defense Intelligence Agency. So a lot of people ask me, why are they, their name the way they are? Well, I don't really know how they named them, but this particular entity was a quatiloid, Q-U-A-D-A-L-O-I-D. And it was an insect looking, almost like a praying mantis looking. Uh, the, the problem that that particular entity had is that it couldn't continuously breathe our atmosphere. Uh, you got to remember that these entities come from millions and uh, sometimes millions of light years, not light years, but miles, uh, hundreds of light years away. They come from a different planet. Uh, they breathe different atmospheres. They eat different uh, nutritious things. And this particular one, it could only breathe our atmosphere a very, very short period of time. So when we finally were able to corral this uh, entity, um, the containment team came in and placed it in a container so it wouldn't die and it was taken back to Site Alpha. Now, Site Alpha, you can actually get a Google map and look at uh, Papoose Lake and just a little bit northwest of Papoose Lake is a facility. You'll see that facility on a Google map. That's where Site Alpha is located. And um, whether it's still there or not, uh, I left in 88 and uh, I believe it it's still there. I know it's still there on the map, whether it's housing extraterrestrials or not, that's uh, for maybe another program. Thank you. Paul Sinclair. Paul, you have been heavily involved as a UFO researcher throughout the area of Bempton in the UK. There have been countless claims from people who have experienced strange phenomena in and around this location. Paul, have you ever witnessed any strange occurrences yourself? Yes, is the first answer to that. Many. Uh, But unfortunately, not as many as when you take an individual up there randomly and you for the first time and then the phenomena seems to interact or engage i don't know why that is andrew kind of touched on it earlier in his his talk you know the similar things there's an awareness to what uh, what we're dealing with but as you probably saw in the talk wolflands earlier there are concentrated hot spots within the zone of strangeness and that hillside in particular and there's uh, a few people in the audience today who've actually been there and experienced things. The square of light that we, we talked about. I've seen that personally, although I didn't see it that night when Bob and Gemma saw it. I've seen it with Andy Ramsden and we've seen it with uh, a, a guy called Steve Ashbridge. And there doesn't seem to be any, there's no predictability to unexplained phenomena. It does not present to order. But there's an, what we didn't touch on in the talk is there's a former RAF base there. 
area of Bempton, which was, it closed in 1968. They were there from the 1940s. It's an underground facility. And it, after it closed, it was used intermittently, be it intermittently, by a satanic cult. Now, I know we're talking about the UFOs, but uh, I just wonder what they evoked and experienced, because I think it's a, a, a kind of intermind connection that we're dealing with the phenomena and we can bring these things through. And so we've got RF Bempton and we've got lots and lots of UFO-related information in its operational years as well. You know, there's, there's UFO incidents. And then if we go further afield to RF Staxton Wold, 12 miles away, we've got the same thing. But jumping to Bempton, I mean, I'm not sure if A is responsible for B, as in there was animal mutilation up there, 2017 to, uh, to early 2019. And there's light form phenomena present, not at the same time. I've got no definite proof that they're responsible, but you've got to ask yourself, why is all the unexplained phenomena presenting around the same area in the same time frames? And the people in the area know about it. You know, but them that know don't want to talk. It's difficult. I mean, I've, I've become friends with a few of the farmers and gathered information. Typical example, these, these farms are in the middle of nowhere. And I would, when I was investigating the light form phenomena and the mutilations, I found myself on these fields at 4.30 in the morning, for the best part of eight, 18 months, three or four times a week, because I wanted to find these unfortunate animals before people could say that, crows had predated on them or other animals as close to the source as possible but one particular morning the farmer came walking across the field to me and there'd been a, a roe deer that had been sort of hovering around the field quite a bit i think it just weren't quite mature enough to mix with the you know the, the adults uh you know as in for the for the mating purposes and as he's walking across to me he said, that road here, he says, it's dead, it's near the kissing gate. And we went and looked at it, its face stripped of skin, eyes removed. I'd not seen it, uh, you know, prior as I drove in, you know, I entered it a different place. He'd walked his dogs up that way and found it. But what was un interesting, because he doesn't shut his curtains on a night, said, I'm laid in bed last night listening to music. This is on Bempton Cliffs, or very close. He said, and there's a light going round on my bedroom wall. And I said, well, didn't you get up and have a look? He went, no, no, I'm not going to go out. He says, yeah. I mean, I think we all would probably, or a lot of us would think, well, we'd have to investigate this. It's almost like there was a nullifying effect on him. You know, he were adamant about what he was saying. You know, we've got this light that's going around on my bedroom wall. I'm listening to music. He'd not connected that with the the death of the deer, the roe deer. But I think there is some kind of connection. And I'm... Mindful that I don't want to jump off the fence and say A is responsible for B, but I think we've got to consider that there's something there that uh, is connecting them. And yeah, thank you. Excellent, thank you. <clears throat> Billy Carson. Billy, the subject of the Black Knight satellite has been much talked about within the UFO community, and now a new documentary is being produced by yourself on this subject. What information can you share? Great question. Well, the Black Knight satellite intrigued me probably about 10 years ago. Uh, I came across the Black Knight and just doing some research into UFOs and uh, conspiracy theories with regarding aliens. And uh, I, it was a very tiny bit of information. 
And I said, this is pretty interesting. Um, and uh, something orbiting our planet, uh, that, you know, before we even had satellites. And so as I dug into it deeper and deeper, I started to realize that there had been accounts of this object orbiting our planet, not only orbiting our planet in a orbit like an equatorial orbit, it was orbiting in a polar orbit, something that we definitely couldn't do at the time. Not only did we, we didn't have satellites, we didn't, we weren't able to create a polar orbiting satellite until more recently, right? So this is very interesting. So I dug deeper and found that that Nikola Tesla was getting signals from this in the late 1800s. Then fast forward in time in the 1950s, several ham radio operators were getting signals from this same object orbiting Earth. During the uh, 1960s, actually in 1960, uh, there was a gentleman that actually named Duncan Lunan who was a journalist and an astronomer. Uh, he was a journalist for Time magazine and an astronomer, uh, and he was into astronomy and astrophysics. He actually wrote an article which got published by Time magazine that this object, not only, did, not only did it exist, but it was giving off a specific signal. This signal was decoded by ham radio operators independently, as well as Duncan Lunan, and it gave up a location of where this thing may be from, and that was the Bortus constellation. Now, that's amazing because that's a big key. This is why I had to do the documentary. When I found out there was the Bortus constellation, and being that I researched ancient civilizations, I discovered that the one of the Anunnaki gods of the Pantheon in Mesopotamia named Enlil, he actually had something called an all-seeing eye. Now, this all-seeing eye would allow you to see anything going on on Earth at any given time. And how is that possible? We have all-seeing eyes in space right now. They're called polar orbiting satellites. With a polar orbiting satellite, as the Earth spins on its axis and it orbits the Earth while it's spinning on its axis, it's taking swaths of data, information, and video, and photos, and everything else, topographical data, and it gives you the capability of transmitting that data back to Earth, analyzing it, and seeing everything going on on the planet, because that's the best way to get all the data of, around the world. That's an all-seeing eye in space. We have those now. So I said, wow, this guy has an all-seeing eye in ancient times. They can let him see population densities, uh, farming densities, who's, who's got crops, who doesn't have crops, because at certain times he would, he would actually destroy crops if people were growing too much population in one area. I said, could these two things be linked? As I dug deeper, I discovered that Enlil was the owner of the Boethus constellation according to the ancient Sumerians. Now, this is a mind-blowing thing. So this object that's been orbiting the Earth for who knows how long, according to the people that have decoded the message, it's where Boethus was in the sky approximately 11 to 13,000 years ago. So this thing is super ancient, potentially super ancient, <clears throat> may have been there since the last ice age of the, that we just had. And so now it's saying that Enlil is the owner of the constellation to go a step further Theoretical physicists have been looking at the Baltus constellation and what they find. There's a void there. There's a void in the constellation that actually doesn't even have dust in it. It's one of the largest voids that we've ever found in the universe so far. And light appears to be bending around something. So I started to look even deeper. What does that mean? Well, they're theorizing that it's an advanced cloaked civilization. So we have a satellite orbiting Earth that shouldn't be there especially in a polar orbit, it's giving off a signal stating that it's from Boethus Epsilon, uh, which is a constellation uh, hundreds of light years away. And we have a link to it on Earth with the Mesopotamian god Enlil, who has an all-seeing eye and owns the constellation. 
just too many coincidences. And I said, we've got to dig a lot deeper into this. So I made a documentary called The Black Knight Satellite Beyond the Signal, and it's available on Forbidden Knowledge TV. If you want to watch it, just go to 4BK.TV. It's only about an hour and a half, and it's got, uh, I think I've got about 20 incredible talents in there, and Mr. Mary is in there as well, giving his great content and information to the story. Uh, and we dug really deep into the research, and I think we provided something for everyone to take a look at and come up with your own conclusion. But I do think that there's a link between Ancient Samaria and the Voices Constellation and the Black Knight. Thank you. Barry Fitzgerald. Barry, is there a them and us divide we must recognize within modern UFO technology? Uh, there is, um, and when when I suppose we reference that them and us divide, it's it's initially we have to look at the craft um, and phenomena of our ancestors of what they were experiencing compared to what we are experiencing now within the modern age, and mm. within the twentieth century, it gets very murky. <clears throat> when we try and identify uh, between the two. But now we've reached a stage within um, modern society that we have uh, um, phenomena such as the Tic Tac of San Diego and things like that, which in itself is our technology. Um, it's, our, it's our tech. Um, and uh, But our tech is very, very different in signature to the tech of them, if you wish. And there has been some um, um, evidence that has come forward to suggest that the the amount of microwave uh, technology or microwave uh, emitted from our technology is much, much higher. And for anyone who gets within around 100 feet of this particular craft, there have been some uh, figures being suggested that of the people that do have that encounter, um, it is around 10% that are dead within seven years. Um, so there's a radiation contaminant that we have to be aware of. The high signature of, of this contamination that comes from the stuff that we build is certainly not the same as what we've seen with them. Theirs is either shielded or they're using a different, um, um, different style of technology altogether. And when I'm speaking later on, I will be reflecting and, and, and looking at this idea of, of the, the, the different style. But yes, there is a difference between um, us and them. And I have to say, with the advancements of technology today, we are really starting to outsurpass them. Steve Mira. Steve, you've been investigating the UFO phenomenon for almost 40 years. During that time, you've likely come across many theories about UFOs. Has your opinion changed over the years? And what's your current opinion in regards to where these UFOs are coming from? Oh, boy, what a question. I mean, when I first started, my mentors, I'll give you probably the beginnings of 1980s here. Uh, my mentors said to me, Steve, you know, these are extraterrestrials. They're traveling from different planets, traveling the vastness of space uh, in very nuts and bolts physical crafts. And, um, you know, I, and I took that debatum, to be honest with you. Uh, as time's gone on, boy, has that changed. The metaphysical factors of this phenomena was totally ignored in the early days. 
Um, it was pushed aside. It was considered woo-woo, not worthy of study. That is the most important aspect of this study. We now are literally on the cusp of change. Ufology is balancing on its edge. And I'll tell you the reasons why. Um, in the highest circles of ufology, these think tanks, what I can tell you what is actually happening is that they are aware of the high strangeness. They are aware of what they refer to as woo-woo. But what they're currently faced with is that over the last few years, we've had a huge amount of academics and scientists come forward, especially since the Pentagon announcement, since the, the newspapers picked up, since the pilots come forward from the Navy talking about these things. We've seen the films, we've seen the footage. Since then, we've had some people come forward from the scientific community saying, do you know what? I want to, I want to get involved. I want to help out. I want to, you know, put my work forward and, and try and assist in coming up with some answers. That was pretty much unheard of. It might have been going on in the military factor, but not in the public realm. So we don't want to scare them off. That's what I was told. In those circles, they say, well, we, we know about the high strangers. We know about the woo-woo, but we can't give it the scientists because we've just got them interested. If we go and throw all this in front of them, you've literally got to rewrite physics. You know, and they're just not going to, we're going to have to deliver, deliver digestible chunks to them. It's the only way. And that is the way forward. And that is why it's balancing what it says, because now we know that the, an extraterrestrial civilization, which would be so advanced, would, is very unlikely to travel the vastness of space as we would think. They would have found an easier, better way. If we look about this phenomena, where it's coming from, because it asks in that question, where are they coming from? Well, you know, in the early days, we'd say, well, you know, they're coming from maybe from this planet or that planet, and that, and that might be the case. But not in the sense of what we think, because most of this phenomena seems to be have a metaphysical aspect to it. They seem to materialize, manifest, and dematerialize in key areas, very similar to some of the paranormal things that we experience in life. The apportation of, of items in poltergeist cases is, is very similar to the sudden manifestation of a UFO that suddenly appears on the ground in front of people. The, the problem that we have is, is that we're going to have to look at the whole scope, which I refer to and Barry refers to as phenomenology, because what we seem to be faced with is this, and I think it may have been even done purposely to some degree, that we've got this compartmentalization between all these subjects. The paranormal guys weren't dealing with the UFO guys. UFO guys weren't dealing with paranormal. You know, and we've got all these supernatural aspects, you know, and the, and the paranormal and the metaphysical. Uh, and, and when you bring all these together, this is why we're not getting the full picture. Because we were stuck in our UFO box and not going into the other areas. We're never going to gain that full picture until we start tearing it all down and looking at the whole thing as phenomenology. Because once you do that, you start to realize very quickly, well, hang on a second, there's a considerable amount of cases of UFO incidents where it involves paranormal type phenomena. Now, why is that? If we're dealing with an extraterrestrial source coming from some other planet, and, we're, and presumably a paranormal thing is a very ancient old phenomenon on Earth, why are they seemingly utilizing the similar physics here? And I think what we're doing now is that we're balancing right on that edge 
are bringing in this high strangeness because it cannot be ignored any longer. That this phenomenon may very well be right under our noses any given time of the day. And that they're not only aware of our proceedings of what we're going to do, but also we may be possibly even to the, into the future, small future events. So we've got to prepare ourselves to an understanding that we haven't really had to conceive before. And that is the world of quantum physics, quantum mechanics, and rewriting literature the physics we know to try and gain some understanding. But yes, the UFO phenomena for me is vastly changed over the years. Richard Doty. Richard, there has been much talk surrounding the topic of time-traveling ETs over the last 10 years. During your work, did you ever come across any information pertaining to extraterrestrials and time-travel capabilities? Yes. Uh, way back in the uh, early 80s, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency was uh, had a highly classified program experimenting with time travel. And this was out at uh, Nevada Test Site, which is now the Nash, Nevada National Security Site, uh, where the nuclear weapons were tested years before. They built some special facilities out there to experiment in time traveling and uh, trying to figure out how they could do that. Top scientists from all over the United States and some from, from the UK uh, were there trying to perfect a method uh, to open up the fabric of space, so to speak, in order to, to, to travel either forward or, or uh, back in time. Um, now, as I mentioned earlier, we had uh, visitors, uh, I'd like to call them, at the facility at uh, Site Alpha. And one of the, one of the particular uh, entities... Uh, although we couldn't fully communicate, but we were able to determine, and I don't know exactly how this happened, but the scientists were able to communicate in a way uh, for them to explain something about how they move from one point to another in space. Um, and then this is back in the 80s now. It's, uh, you got to understand our understanding of a lot of different things, even pertaining to physics, in astronomy was a neophyte back then. It wasn't, it wasn't, we were just in the infant stages of understanding this. Um, so we were able to, our scientists were able to uh, grasp some information that w was provided uh, by this particular visitor and they uh, tried to adapt that. But uh, unfortunately, you have to understand that the visitor's technology were, was hundreds or maybe thousands of years more advanced than us. Plus, we couldn't understand their science, and it was difficult for them to relate their science to us. But we were able to understand that that particular entity was able to move not so much as uh, during time travel, moving forward and back in time. Um, we couldn't understand exactly how they did it, but they were able to do that. And over the years now, uh, jumping to uh, now, uh, after I left government service, I worked for the Institute for Advanced Studies at Austin, Dr. Hal Putoff's facility down there. 
And there was some research that was done regarding this particular subject of, of traveling the time. Most scientists understand time travel to be only back in time because that's occurred rather than forward in time where it hasn't occurred yet. But there's uh, a strong evidence that we can we can do that now, uh, even by just moving some atoms from, from one location to another or a molecule of, of, of water or uh, the third element uh, uh, of water, tritium, of uh, the uh, uh, molecule from from one point to another. We were, we were able to do that uh, both forward and backwards. So. To answer the question, yes, ETs can do that. Uh, if, if one particular species of extraterrestrials can travel in that manner, uh, probably all of them can. Paul Sinclair. Paul, are there any significant ancient burial mounds in the region of Bempton or around the coastal region? And if so, do you think they are connected to some of the strange phenomena being witnessed in that location? Yeah, there are burial mounds, and I do think they're connected to the unexplained phenomena. I think the ancient people already knew this, and that's why they placed their burial burial mounds and other stones. I think Maria touched on it, the Rudston monolith earlier, and... uh, it's about 11 miles from my home, you know, Britain's tallest standing stone. It's about 29 and a half feet. And it's been a place of worship and sacrifice for thousands and thousands of years. It's in a churchyard, but it obviously predates the churchyard. And uh, it was excavated in the 1800s by someone called William Strickland, found large quantities of human skulls. And they speculated that it had been a site of sacrifice. A few miles away, there's probably one of the most famous burial mounds in the United Kingdom. If anybody Googles or has a look at Willie Howe, you will find that uh, it's associated with fairies, hobgoblins and elf-like folk. The stories throughout folklore describing seeing an entrance, a glowing entrance into the burial mound and vast banquets taking place. We realise that over time these things may become distorted, but I believe there's an element of truth there. I have a report in the first book of a pilot. There used to be an airfield at Willie Howe Farm, the farm, and it had a small airstrip. And there was a pilot there who had a vintage plane. It wasn't equipped for night flight. And he contacted me and told me this story. It had three gauges on it. We'd got revs altitude or something else it slips my mind and he said on this particular day he decided to fly up the coast towards Whitby take his plane out and uh, coming back he's close to the burial mound and the sun's just setting so he realizes he's got time to do what he wants to do there's no lights on this plane and he looks at the sun setting and then he turns and he sees another sun sort of confused as you would be thinking this can't be another sun, but what's happening? He said, and then he gave a few analogies. He said, but then he said, it was almost as though my my plane flew into a cobweb, literally. He said, and I looked, and I'm not, I'm traveling, but I'm not moving. I'm not losing any altitude. This is strange. Obviously, it's going to be into, you know, so period of time passes, and then suddenly 
he's flying again and he's in the night. He said there were some 32 volt or 37 volts, I think, KV cables in the field where it, across where he wanted to land. Obviously, in daylight, that, that won't be a problem. And there's a tractor ploughing with its lights on in the field, and he put the plane down in the field at the side of Willie Howe. So that's the story of the burial mounds. But yes, we've got earthworks all around this this area. The location's steeped with ancient earthworks, and that's just a few examples of strange things happening around them. But a little bit further up the coast, we've got the Devil's Arrows, which are made of the same stone, grit stone, as what the Rudston monolith's made out of. So, yeah, thank you. Billy Carson. Billy, in more recent years, there has been a growing interest in regards to planet Mars. Could there have once been an ancient civilization that occupied this planet? And if so, what evidence is there to support this? A lot of, a lot of great questions here. <laughs> uh, Mars is an amazing place. Uh, I'm going to talk a lot about it actually tonight at 7 p.m. So you don't want to miss this talk because I'm going to show you some anomalies on Mars and the links that it has to Earth and other civilizations. But Mars used to be a habitable moon of Tiamat, which I'll talk about tonight. And one side of Mars is completely charred and the other side is extremely smooth. The side that's uh, charred was the side that actually was impacted by the explosion of this planet named Tiamat, which now is the asteroid belt. Uh, and then Mars was slung into this very strange elliptical orbit around the sun and it became a planet. But Mars originally was a habitable moon. And what's interesting about it, we've sent a lot of missions to Mars. If you look at all of the space agencies that have sent missions to Mars, you'll find that literally trillions of dollars have been spent to send uh, remote-controlled cars to a cold, dry rock, right? <laughs> well, tonight I'm going to show you evidence in my lecture that Mars is not a cold, dry rock, that there is atmosphere, that there is oxygen, that there is magnetic field, that there is bow shock bending, uh, the solar wind around the planet. I'm going to show you all the science data that we've collected on Mars showing you that the planet was extremely habitable and right now today currently is habitable in a limited basis. Also, I'm going to show you a uh, talk tonight about the pole shift that occurred on Mars when it took that impact, the crust of the actual planet itself shifted about 45 degrees, creating a pole shift, which created a global flood on Mars, which is why a lot of the anomalies that we have discovered appear to be washed over by mud. And I'm going to show you a lot of anomalies taking from several different rovers, Opportunity Spirit, Perseverance, um, uh, Curiosity rover. It's going to be an amazing talk tonight. You don't want to miss it. Mars, in my opinion, is directly linked to the ancient Atlantean culture that was on Earth. And I'm going to provide my evidence for that tonight, showing that uh, Atlantis was not just a ring city in the middle of the Atlantic, but that Atlantis was a not only a global civilization on Earth, but it was also an interplanetary civilization and that I believe that uh, similar anomalies or things that are anomalies that we've discovered look extremely similar to some of the ancient structures, the megalithic structures left behind here on Earth. Everything from onks, which I'll show you that have been left behind here on Earth, to onks that we can see on planet Mars from the uh, rover data, uh, pyramids, and many, many other anomalies uh, that we can show you that will leave you scratching your head, like what is really going on up there? And some things that don't look too old, which really makes you want to scratch your head and go, what is going on on Mars? 
In my personal opinion, I think that Mars is probably a location of a breakaway civilization. It makes total logical sense, especially when you're spending trillions of dollars over the, you know, uh, several decades to go visit this place. And the reason why there's a lot of billionaires going to Mars is because I personally believe, this is my personal opinion, that there's an infrastructure that has already been worked out and built up there. When you talk about Elon Musk and, um, and Branson and all these other, uh, you know, billionaires that are looking to go to Mars on a one-way trip and not come back and taking people with them. If you're on Earth, with the creature comforts of Earth, you're a billionaire. You've got all the money you need. You can go on all the vacations. You can go on yachts and airplanes. You can see this beautiful planet. You've got butlers and maids and servants. Everything is first class. You don't necessarily want to get on an airplane or a space plane, go to another planet that's just a cold, dry rock, and live in a tin can and a space suit for the rest of your life till you die. It doesn't make logical sense, at least not to me. And so if I'm going to go to Mars, that means I'm already knowing that there's possibly an infrastructure established, whether it's below ground or above ground. We know that you can 3D print 10 to 12 houses in a day. A Japanese architect is already doing that right now in Japan. They 3D print houses using existing regolith and, and, and soil right from the current landscape and turn it into a house in a day. They can do a dozen houses in a day. Could that same technology be used on Mars? I think so. So I'm going to talk a lot about that tonight, show you guys a lot of anomalies that you're going to see. Uh, actually, they resemble ancient things here on Earth, but also some things that don't look so ancient. And do we know exactly what they are? No, we don't. But I can tell you that there has been xenon discovered in the science data coming back from Mars. Weapons-grade xenon. And so xenon is a byproduct of nuclear war, nuclear explosions. And so when you have xenon in the soil and in the atmosphere in those levels, it tells us Mars truly was the god of war. And so if you come to my talk tonight at 7 p.m., we're going to go in deep and in depth on this conversation. I'm going to show the link between them and the Atlantean civilization. Barry Fitzgerald. Barry, we occasionally hear of an observer effect in regards to UFO witnesses. Do you think the effect could be caused by the UFO? Um, the observer effect um, generally encompasses this, this idea that, that, for instance, three people could see three different things at the same time. Uh, but this also reflects on the conscious connection with the true phenomena um, and not the man-made one. And the problem that we face is that we have around a 20-second window with the observer effect and um, the initial contact. That light in the sky is the hook and the bait. Um, so when, we, when, we, when we're seeing this, this 20 and understand the 20-second uh, um, window, um, this effect really comes into play because that's whenever it links into the conscious. It links into the conscious brain and we start seeing the different, the different aspects, sometimes completely different. And um, because consciously it's linked to you as an individual. And that can, that conscious connection happens within the first 20 seconds. And that is where the body signals you, your own body signals you within the first 20 seconds if what you are encountering is right or not. It will alert you. And there are ways that I will talk about later about how you identify that. 
But that can be overridden. That biological response can be shut down and the brain will then be triggered to enter into a particular brain pattern and uh, which is where we tend to get uh, the, the body will, will, will move into when we're going into the legs of meditation. Um, and uh, and we also have hypnotic suggestion can also be brought in there. False memory can also be induced. So we have a 20-second window, um, which if we understand the signals from a body, we can defend ourselves against this encounter and better understand it. Um, and uh, But that's something I'll talk about, about later on. So there is a difference within every single individual about what they're seeing when the conscious connection is linked to every single one of us on a different or a different level. Steve Mira. Steve, you've been working alongside Barry Fitzgerald in a special study known as Project Doorway. Part of that research involved the Caloris UFO incident from 1977 to 1978. Steve, what have you learned from studying this case? Well, that's a good question. Well, we had an interesting trip to the U.S. Uh, a couple of years ago, and um, uh, reporter George Knapp uh, had driven all the way from Las Vegas to L.A. to to interview myself and Barry about this, actually. And um, what we found was very interesting is that how some of these incidents, some of these cases um, are being swept under the rug to some degree. I mean, there are many places uh, around the world where we might consider that a UFO phenomenon consists of all love and light. And in many places, that's exactly what the belief system is. But it doesn't tell the full story about this phenomenon. Sometimes people are injured or even worse. And when we go and deliver um, information about the subject, we pretty much state for what it is. You know, we don't want to paint it in any direction. It's, you know, not give it a belief system, a certain tag, uh, and just report on the evidence that's being provided. And uh, the Colossus UFO incident, which took place in 77 and 78, was one case like that. And it's not the only one. There has been others around the world, as well as like, for instance, in India where people have been attacked by these flying objects which fire a pencil beam light down at them. Now, the villages and the people that lived on this small town, this small village of Calaris, off the, an island off the shores of, uh, of Brazil, um, really wasn't a big place known for military and or policing or anything like that. It was kind of just out, tucked out of the way. And uh, people lived pretty much a simple life. And one day, they were besieged by these objects. And this went on for a considerable length of time. And the biggest problem for them was trying to evade these crafts. Because what was happening is that these lights, these beams of pencil beam lights had come down and were striking some of the villagers. And when it did, it paralyzed them. What the biggest problem was, they because they, they obviously thought, well, let's stay out of sight, and they got very panicky, very worried, and they decided when these things are around, is run off into the house. But the biggest problem was is that these lights from these objects would penetrate solid things, would penetrate the walls, would penetrate the roofs of, of houses. People would suddenly find themselves waking up in bed, 
seeing this beam of light coming from the ceiling and hitting them in the body, not being able to move, and tremendous, tremendous pain. There was this, you can't imagine so not being able to move under those circumstances. What was left behind was puncture wounds between seven and nine little holes. But what was most fascinating about over, over a thousand people, actually it was about 1,300 people, that was these things attacked, is that the amount of people that had adrenal weakness, because the, the, the iron, it was seen like the iron content from their body had been suddenly taken, diminished. And, and that was a really fascinating thing, is that why is this happening? Now, don't get me wrong, you know, they, they, these people did go to hospital and did see doctors, you know, and some of them did die from those, incidents, from those injuries. And um, it wasn't publicised very much. It was kept very quiet. These incidents do happen. So when we call, we like to call it for what it is, this phenomenon. And we realised, hang on a second, we have a problem here. Because I'm faced with people saying, Steve, where's the best place to go for a sky watch? <laughs> and I say to them, are you sure you want to do it? <laughs> because, you know, we don't know what we're going to experience. We all love to see something in the sky. Don't get me wrong. It's fascinating. It's hypnotic even, isn't it? But do we truly know what that might result in? Do people, because I've talked to all the people and said, I wish I never had my experience. You know, I was interested and went out and, and I wish I never had it. So that can be a real problem for us. So that's why it's really important for us to say about this phenomenon for what it really does represent. It's, you know, it's, it, it's good side, it has a bad side. Maybe it's just a gender. You know, maybe there is no good and bad. Maybe they're just doing their job. And I've said this many, many times, just like, for instance, police officers come and arrest somebody. Do they consider right, that they've been handled badly? It's, it's a bad incident for them. Is it good? Is it? It's just a gender. It's just a job. And it's also how we perceive this to be. And, of course, like what we wanted to do through Project Doorway, myself and Barry, is represent that. And, of course, George Knapp had come over to interview us because he said, there's a very interesting news article I'm releasing in a few days. And what was being released from the the, uh, the U.S. government was the statistics of people's experience under those uh, incidents. And they were lies. They were not true. They mentioned, you know, lots of different information about how people weren't injured, how people didn't die. And what was interesting for me is, is that why? Why is the lies there? Now, all we've got to do is go and talk to a very good researcher, AJ uh, uh, Gerard from Brazil. And he was part of the hearing process, UFO hearing, about that particular case, the Kalash UFO incident. He was on the ground. He was talking to the people. He knew how many people were affected. He knew how many people felt seriously ill, those that also died. And he reported over 1,200 people were very severely injured. And, of course, what was interesting is that the U.S. government tried to make us believe, again, just as many others, is to sweep that incident away. So what we like to say is call it for what it is, and we do stress caution. You know, because sometimes we just do not know what phenomenon we might experience whilst we're out there. Richard Doty. 
Richard, over the last few years, there has been considerable discussions over the Tic Tac UFO. Richard, what are your thoughts about the Tic Tac? Do you think it could in fact be some kind of advanced drone that we ourselves have secretly manufactured? Great question. Um, well, the incident happened in 2004, and there's other incidents have happened since and and obviously um, some research has found that there's been incidents of of uh, military aircrafts and even civilian aircrafts encountering uh, these tic tacs uh let's go back uh to the 1980s i'm going to talk about this tomorrow with paul benowitz one of the things that paul benowitz um found out and uh he he photographed some of the early drone programs that the United States government had that was te- that were being tested around New Mexico. He photographed that. The jump ahead to uh, 2004, the incident happened on USS Nimitz. Um, a lot of really, really smart researchers have found out that there were some events that occurred prior to that uh, that uh, people questioned, questioned the Navy uh, why uh, three days prior was the alert planes, the F-14 or the FA teams stationed on the the USS Nimitz, the aircraft carrier? Why were they uh, taken off uh, armed alert? The weapons were taken off the racks. Uh, why, why 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 is that? There's a um, uh, former uh, weapons officer. Um, who now lives in Utah, who's, who has, has spoken about this. Nobody seems to know, except that there's some people that came on the ship, uh, prior to the incident and, uh, downgraded some things. Now, switch, uh, speed up to the day that this happened. Um, aircraft, radar systems, uh, spotted these things in the sky. Um, it was being tracked on ship radar, a number of different ships around the carrier, uh, were tracking this, uh, these objects. And there's the way the carrier group is set up is that the aircraft carrier is, has to be well protected because that's where the aircraft, the planes are at. So, um, as these things were being tracked, the, Commander of the USS Nimitz, so the carrier group commander, launched the two FA-18s after these uh, objects, Tic Tacs. Unfortunately, there's, these weren't armed. The, all they could do was track them in the air and spot them on the aircraft radar and then report back to the carrier group what, the, the, what was being seen. But there was no way shooting them down. Now, people put two and two together. Common sense says that maybe they didn't want them shot down. Maybe this was a test of the carrier group. What, what would what would the carrier group do? What would the commander of the carrier group do if they were if they encountered something like this in an unknown? And how did they, how would they react? So. Were these things ours? Were these things something in an experimental stage? Or have we perfected an anti-gravity device in 19, I mean, in 2004? 
Or was this extraterrestrial? That's the big question. There's a lot of evidence that can point in both directions. I, I, I've spoken with uh, um, some of the radar controllers. Uh, they've speak, spoken at different uh, conventions. Uh, the, they think that it wasn't one, nothing that we've ever encountered. But there are other people who have said that we have things like this being tested at Area 51 or Dugway Proving Grounds, which could be another uh, form of an Area 51 test testing area. So that's the dilemma. Uh, what were these? Uh, will, the, will the government ever come out and say, yeah, these were ours? Or did we did we test these things against a carrier group? Now, any people, anyone that's ever been in any kind of special forces or in, in any kind of uh, advanced training, whether Royal Marines or SAS or Navy SEALs or uh, uh, Army Rangers or even U.S. intelligence officers, you're, you're, you're given these uh, scenarios that you can't win at. And you're evaluated as a human on how you react to these unknowns. What, how are you, how are you going to react to something you know you can't defeat or you know you can't get out of? Was, was this a scenario, uh, created by the United States Navy or, or the Department of Defense or some other uh, government entity to test the crew, the, the aircraft pilots, the radar crew, the ground crews, uh, even the, 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 the fleet commander? Now, He's been interviewed hundreds of times, and he claims he knew nothing of any kind of exercise. Well, of course, they wouldn't tell him him that. So it's left to us to decide what, what it was. Was it extraterrestrial evidence of that, or was it one of ours? That's a dilemma that we'll just have to figure out on our own. Yeah. Paul Sinclair. Paul, the location where you've carried out research and investigation looks to have the same type of reported phenomena that has been reported at Skinwalker Ranch in the U.S. What do you think it is that makes these places so unusual? Good question. I mean, it's not just Skinwalker, is it? And I said earlier, you know, Bempton in particular, it could stand alone. There's as much unexplained phenomena being reported and seen there, not just by myself. You know, there's that many people. Coming forwards, we could spend we could spend a month up there, six weeks up there, and see nothing. And somebody might just go when we're not there, and they, they experience it. What makes them special? It's special. I don't know. I believe, that, like I said previously, sorry for going over old ground, but we have got concentrated pockets of phenomena presenting within the unexplained zone, and it's the higher Baku forest, you know, in in Romania. That, that there's not just it's not just sort of Bempton and Skinwalker. And I believe these places are all over the world. It just takes the right combination of people to start lifting stones. You know, you, you, you find an area, find somewhere where something's happening of, of an unexplained nature. And if, invariably, when you start looking, you'll find that there's an interconnected phenomena occurring at the same time. I don't know what the mechanisms are. You know, it's, it's very difficult because... The, it's almost as though there's a there's an enabler, because as one thing's happening a few weeks later or within the same time frame, you've got something else happening. 
I've not got an answer for why these these areas are pr- producing such a vast array of unexplained phenomena. And I likened it to it could be a hive mind. It, it could be just one all-encompassing phenomena that's that's presenting, that's showing you your your worst fears, your worst nightmares. You see cryptids. If you want to see nuts and bolts UFOs. You're going to see nuts and bolts UFOs. Speculation, that's all we're doing, to be honest with you, all I'm doing. But that's what it could be. If you want to see light form phenomena, you will see light form phenomena. I realise that not everybody's going to agree, uh, and that's not what it's forced to be. But, you know, I I don't think any of us really know at the end of the day. I'm sorry I've been a bit vague with that, but I haven't got an answer. Thank you. Billy Carson. Billy, over the last 30 years, it seems that public knowledge of our technological advancements are becoming less and less. Billy, do you believe that we are involved in a secret space program? And if so, how many years in advancement are they? Uh, yes, so I really do believe that we are involved in a secret space program. Um, we know that NASA is the front for the main space program that's presented to the public. So is the European Space Agency and the Indian Space Agency and the Russian Space Agency. But behind the scenes, primarily, I believe that America is leading the way in a secret space program. And uh, how I come to this conclusion is, well, I own a tech company, First Class Space Agency. The company is now five years old. It's a tech company. And we are doing R&D research and development. Now, through that company, gives me access to the Space Symposium and other private space industry meetings. And in those meetings, I have TS clearance, top secret clearance, and to private space. And in some of those meetings, I can't tell you everything we talk about, but we do. Uh, one thing I can tell you is that people used to think that the military, uh, you know, and the, and, the, uh, and the space agencies were 50 years ahead technologically. No, try 300 plus years ahead of what you have today, of what we have today. Pretty much whatever you can, whatever you can think of, whatever you can imagine in your brain has already been done or experimented on to a point of where it's theoretically possible. Okay. And so this space agency and why the reason why NASA ended its shuttle program, they didn't really end their space agency. NASA is still a space agency. What they've done is they've gone private. Why? Because of Freedom of Information Act. So if NASA is publicly doing a lot of these um, explorations, and creating these technologies, exploring warp drives and EM drives and all these other new propulsion technologies, then we as the people can easily uh, request information on what they're doing, how they're doing it, and kind of uh, a certain level of how the technology works. However, by taking it and transferring it to private industry, saying, oh, we're out of money, guys. We're going to transfer all this over to the private industry. There's no way that you can get a Freedom of Information Act on Tesla on uh, you know Lockheed or any of these other companies that are producing these top secret Pentagon approved projects. And so by moving it from public to private, they're now able to hide and go dark. And then this, the, the space agency behind the scenes is then allowed to now, due to the, uh, the, the new space force, siphon trillions of dollars into that where they can continue to develop all these high technologies. Prior to uh, this whole 9-11 situation, we had, we had uh, trillions missing from the budget going into these black budget projects. And uh, now that there's a space force, they don't have to hide where the money is going anymore. They just say, oh, we need it for the space force now. 
And so we're in a situation where they're siphoning a lot of money into these projects behind the scenes. We do have the X-33, X-37B, which is a uh, uh, military space shuttle program that's launching right now. They publicly announced when it launches, but the missions are top secret. How long do they go into space? Two years at a time. <laughs> where are they going with these cargo ships? We're launching the most advanced navigatable shuttles right now today, publicly available knowledge. You can learn about the launches and the return, just not where they're going and what the payload is. Well, where are they going with these payloads? What is the payload? And why are they going into space for two years with an advanced navigation system? So, yes, there's, an, a, there's a secret space program for sure, and they're hiding it in plain sight. Barry Fitzgerald. Barry, is there an element of esoteric undertones when dealing with the real phenomenon? All of the phenomena that we see across that weaves its way into many of the fringe research fields all possesses an element of esotericism. Um, and we, we have to realize that you can, um, such as CE5 and things like that, you can summon the phenomena to you. Like when you go into a paranormal situation and you're using whatever particular type of device that you wish to try and communicate with spirit, you are summoning. It's all got connections with esoteric uh, undertones. And we have to realize that, that when we're dealing with something that's coming from beyond the veil, are we looking at something that's coming from the same source? It's just disguising its appearance. Um, so to understand, I think that's one of the fundamental keys in understanding the phenomena is that the, the majority of the true phenomena can all be summoned. Steve Mera. Steve, you've discussed on many occasions about the connections between UFO encounters and the paranormal. One aspect you have covered is the ability to conjure such phenomena. What exactly does this entail? <laughs> it's just like about what you're saying about what does it actually entail conjuring? Well, really, you know, if we want to talk about CE5, for example, we take five you know, people who are going to go out and meditate in a particular location. It could be on a beach, could be wherever, a location where people have seen a few lights in the sky. And um, and you you over a period of time, you get the right amount of people together. Yes, phenomena can be seen. It can suddenly appear, manifest. Um, it's no different than uh, having five people which are meditators on a beach conjuring a light in the sky than there is five mediums around the seance table conjuring a ball of light. It is one of the same thing. Now, um, I, I, I'm friends with a number of people, researchers have been involved. Some of them have been on those skull experiment sittings. Which was, um, um, which was experiments in regarding this type of seance and communications with, with, with spirits, entities, call them what we will, which started taking place in the 1990s. Further things carried on from there where there was manifestations of small craft seed, balls of light, which seemingly had mass to them, which would land in people's hands. I mean, it literally is, as researcher Grant Cameron said in his book, magic. 
you know, how do we really define what this real, this, this phenomena is? Um, and how do we really trust is exactly what we're experiencing the phenomena? I mean, when something is conjured, does that mean that that is the phenomena or is it something that represents it? And like Barry has mentioned before, you know, on many, ta- many occasions you have these materializations, but in, in some cases they act as if they're, uh, what's their glamouring? Mm-hmm. They, they seem to glamour. We- you know, it's happened to me on location. I've been absolutely transfixed by a, like a close encounter experience of beautiful, beautiful lights. It's putting on a wonderful display. But as soon as you are transfixed with this, and I'm sure many people would be, you are completely and utterly unaware of what's going on behind you. And there's been a few times where you had to hot tail out of some places, <laughs> but, um, but you learn. You learn through that process that everything, you know, the world of metaphysics literally means that it can be seen to be physical. And I'll just finish on saying that, that those connections have been seen time and time again. In the research field of the power psychology and the paranormal, when we look at apportation phenomena from the poltergeist um, cases, there was an incident where there was a mug which had apported. But lucky for us, there was three other mugs identical, so we could take them both, one was the apport, one which wasn't, and analyze them. And they were both put under um, uh, microscopy, atomic microscopy. And what we found, uh, it, it was a computer program that looked at it and kind of says, you know, are they both the same? You know, a scale effect. And the scale would suggest that the apported mug for instance, looking at Barry's glass of mine, look the same, feel the same, weigh the same. Under the microscope, it's saying that this is not that. It's saying that it might look it and feel it and everything, but boy, is that not the same. And we look for those little elements in there to say, well, what is different? One of the biggest differences in there is, a, is the, uh, the diathermic reactions in there are incredible. Now, the other t- we recognised some of these diathermic reactions. We thought, where have we seen this before? And it wasn't in the parapsychology realm or the paranormal. It was in the ufological, where a materialisation of UFO had come so close to ground that it had affected the plant growth. And scientists came out and they took samples of those plants. And it was known as a, a plant biological traumatology test. The results of that showed this very same diathermic reactions in the plants that have been affected. So we have to really sit back and consider, is the materialization of a UFO and materialization of, an, in a, of a morph in a paranormal case utilizing the very same physics here? And that leads us to really come to some questions as to what really are those connections between this phenomena and why should we even have them? Richard Doty. Richard, the subject of ufology over the last several years has seemingly taken a shift. Numerous researchers are now focusing on the aspects of a conscious connection between UFOs and the observers of specific areas where UFOs are seen to materialize and dematerialize as if jumping through portals. Richard, what are your views on this? Well, that's a fantastic question. Um, we did a study, uh, the government did a study a long time ago, uh, way back before my time during Project uh, Grudge and Blue Book 
and, and uh, sign uh, back in the uh, early 50s up through 60s. Um, it wasn't a well, very well-known uh, program, but they, uh, when somebody reported a sighting of a UFO back in those days, there were Project uh, Blue Book investigators, and, there, and almost all of them were military, and they were assigned all over the United States. And when somebody uh, made a report to a local police agency or a sheriff's department or uh, they then we would the, the UFO investigators will go out and, and, and evaluate. But one of the things they did uh, unwittingly uh, the, where the, the witnesses doesn't know, they did a, a psychological evaluation of the person, not a, not a detailed one, but they asked him certain questions that would um, uh, key a, re- a certain response. And um, people who are psychologists or psychiatrists or people who work in intelligence, we were trained to do that, to look at the response of a person on, uh, with key words. And, and they would record that. And then later on, scientists would get together or psychologists and analyze what information that was gathered from these witnesses. And what they found were, you know, there's probably the majority of people who made the first uh, reports were legitimate. They saw something in the sky, uh, probably, and they, they're saying 70, 80%. They just didn't know what they were seeing. And, and, and a lot of what they were seeing could be ex- easily explainable. But there's also that segment that couldn't be. But they also found that these, these people that had frequent uh, sightings were drawn to a certain area. And then they see, they see a sighting. Now, jump ahead. Uh, I had a, 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 a case where this person uh, would write me letters, uh, not, not emails, but letters. He's actually a real letter writer, which you don't see many nowadays. But uh, he lived in uh, Canada, Yukon Territory, Whitehorse, just outside Whitehorse. He was a retired um, Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman. He worked there for like 35 or 40 years. Um, I finally got in touch with him. He told me he could summon a, a UFO. And he, he had actually had the, the, the encounters with, with the ETs from the board. He filmed one and he sent me the film. He first sent me a, an audio tape where he was recording what was happening. And then he sent me the actual tape. Now I looked at the tape and I, I'm a straight shooter. If I, if I think you're, you're, you're lying to me, I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you, you know, I think this is, this is real. You're lying. You're faking this or something. I looked at this and I, now I'm in New Mexico and he's up there and I get on the phone with him. I talked, I spoke with him. He said, well, I'll bring you up here. I said, no, no, I, I can get go up there. And that's an entirely different story of how we, eventually got up there but he actually went out on his patio and this is the the only place that these this he can do this and he would think and he, he had a laser uh, a pointer a, a high-powered one one that you're not supposed to shoot in the air and he'd flash that and probably within 10 or 15 minutes a craft appeared I mean, I was bewildered. I mean, I, I mean, I was totally 
caught off guard because I didn't believe, I wasn't believing him in initially. Unfortunately, that never landed. It, it flew around. It got close to the ground and then it went away. So his film showed the craft landing and these two long, uh, tall, lanky, uh, ETs coming out of the craft. They never came close to him. They never came close to his house. They stayed close to the craft. And he had a dialogue with him through brain transfers or brain thought transfers, not telepathy. They don't really use telepathy anymore. It's, it's, it brain thought transfers is the, the scientific Dr. Greer talks about. And, uh, they'd last, they'd be on the ground for, you know, 30 minutes or so and then they'd leave. And then later on, he told me the reason they probably didn't come out was because of me. I'm there and they don't know me. They know him and his wife and they're the only two who's ever had connections. But there's been a lot of studies about people that can draw these, uh, these crafts to them. And a lot of them, and I've spoken with some, some, um, abductees here at this conference, uh, they, they've had an abduction or they had an experience at the younger years. And now as these things come back, they're more attracted to a certain location where they can encounter them. Now, unfortunately, some of the encounters aren't very, very nice. Uh, I mean, there's horror stories when you get to the abduction, uh, enigma, but, but I think the, our scientists have now that the scientists that are studying these things are saying that people can be at a location and draw these, uh, draw these crafts. Now I'm not in a, in a situation. I think there's more people on this panel could, could speak more intelligently about why or how they, this happens or why, why they're attracted. But, uh, in my time, uh, both in, in, in intelligence, working for the government, working for Dr. Putoff in private research, I found, find that, that people are drawn to, 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 to these situations. Thank you. Paul Sinclair. Paul, after writing more than four books, talking with dozens and dozens of witnesses, and dedicating yourself to years of research, what is, for you, the most significant case you have ever investigated? Without a doubt, Hunambi, which we touched on earlier as, as regards the name of the village, but not in connection with this. And yes, I've wrote about it, and I've only touched tip of the iceberg, I think, and uh, it would probably take an afternoon to discuss it, but just give you an overview. 1996, 97 and 98, three men worked at an industrial estate as a second job after their primary jobs, day jobs, painting fairground rides and high-class motor cars in this huge warehouse. June, July and August of 1996, 7 and 8, that's when it happened. Every type of phenomena began to present. Now, I'd known one of the witnesses for over 20 years and he'd never told me. Son even worked for me. And they ended up doing a job somewhere in a tiny village called Flamborough. This subject of unexplained phenomena came up and he told the guy who was overseeing the, the, this work on this property. Well, it was a public house. Didn't know that this former military guy knew me. He says, you better tell Paul Sinclair. So he had to tell me. You know, because we were friends anyway. 
an incredible story. So they worked there in 1996. June is preparing some vehicle. And there's overview, huge warehouse, bottom right-hand corner, toilet block above it, the boss's office. And the boss was one of the three men. He's preparing the vehicle. A block of wood flies straight past his head. There's a void between the top of the roof. And he looks and he thinks someone's acting about. And he just sort of carries on. Thinks something's in that void. Carried on. He has a bang on side at unit. Doesn't know what it is. And then the other two guys come to work with him because he explained that the boss were fairly lazy and he weren't there half the time when they arrived. So over the period of months, light bulbs would pop. The, the all and, and fuse the power in the workshop. The radio would be plugged in, yet the, the music would carry on playing. And apports, gravel would fall in front of them as they're walking through the workshop. They'd tell other people on the industrial unit, it's still there, this unit. Back in 1997, six, seven, and eight, there were only a few units. And some of the guys remember on the, they're still working there because I've been and interviewed some of them. So, so you've got all manner of unexplained phenomena. June, July and August, for some reason, it started and slowly built. They, they allowed, there's a large area of land at the back. They allowed a guy to use it to break up caravans and sell parts, caravan scrapyard. So while the vehicles are parked in front of it, they're having a big argument one morning because he tells him that the radios are playing in the night. The horns are beeping on the cars. They used to take the batteries out for theft. Could, it's, it's an impossibility, but it was happening. The boss who I spoke to, because I interviewed at length all three witnesses, uh, said I was locking up one night after the other guys had gone home early hours of the morning, and I suddenly got an overwhelming fear, and I turned round, and there's a huge creature there, just the shadow and shape of it, like a Bigfoot. So I just literally went, and it walked off into the darkness. No animosity, nothing. But it, it, it culminated in, in 1998, in, in August of 1998, when you could drive a bus into this warehouse, the front end, and straight out the other side. So I'll give you an idea of the, the size of it. The shut, roller shutter doors were up at the back, about eight foot. And we'll, we'll say, Andrew, the first witness, said, I found myself stood at the doors. He said, and it can't have been real. And I'm only skimming surface here, guys. I'm sorry. He said, because in the compound... There's a typical 1960s flying saucer. I can see it. There's all mist around it. He said it's about the size of a flat-back truck, a little bubble on top, and there's a being inside it. He still, to this day, he said it must have been a film set. He said it's got to have been. He said, now all three guys talk a similar story. He said, then I walked to the front, and there's the roller shutters and the small side door, front and back. He says, and I opened the side door. Military guy... Black head to toe, grabbed all of him, threw him to the floor with a gun, don't move, lots of swear words, threatened him, and he had to stay where he was. Second one, so we've done Andrew, Dave does the same. He finds himself stood there when you'd think they'd all be stood there. And he says, I asked him, because I spoke to him all separately, I wanted to see, what, and they'd not spoke for years. Andrew got into Dave, they'd lost touch with the the the, the boss, but we got in touch with him eventually. He said, yeah, he said, there was something down there. He said, I didn't see a, a flying saucer. He said, there was, there was, a, there was an object there, but it was so, ex, so shrouded in mist and, and almost like arc welding lights flashing from it. I couldn't tell. He said, but those three beings stood in front of it. 
very tall. He says, if they've got clothing on, then they've got wet, almost wetsuits. He said, I'm tall. He said, they're taller than me with large heads. And walk to the front of the building, opens the side door, he's thrown to the floor. And he gets that, he's threatened. The boss tells me the same story. He saw one being. We've only skimmed on Humanby. I mean, it's, it really is a talk for at least an hour. And, you know, so many things were happening. They've got everything. They've got, you know, the, the, the materials floating. I mean, I hope I've got time here, guys. But Andrew said he used to tease the phenomena. He'd shout at it. Give me some money I can spend. Give me something I can use. Give me the lottery mon- numbers. And the boss said, there's, there's another element here that we've not quite got into and I've not got to the bottom of it yet. But the boss said, stop it. You don't know what you're dealing with. You know, you, you must stop this. He said, no, I'm just doing something. I'm just bent down. I look and I can see this circle coming towards me and it smacked me on the head and it was a coin. And they've all told the story. They said he was just spinning around on the floor saying, I've been hit, I've been hit. So there was an intent with the phenomena as well. Uh, although they were having all this sort of, I don't know, this conglomerate of, of activity at Humanby back six, seven and eight. And uh, yeah, we've just touched on it. There's absolutely so much more that I could tell you about it, but thank you. Okay, last question. Billy Carson, Billy, many are now aware that UFOs have seemingly deactivated or neutralized ICBMs, not only in the US, but also in other places around the world. Billy, could some of these UFOs be coming here to make sure we do not launch nuclear weapons on Earth? Um, yes, <laughs> I think that's exactly what's going on. Uh, we do have accounts of veterans, former military officers, former nuclear physicists, former nuclear scientists. Uh, you know, at first, imagine one of the hardest jobs in the world to get employed. You go, go apply to be uh, the person that operates in a nuclear silo, that works in a nuclear silo, right? These have got to be some of the toughest jobs in the world to get. Imagine being, uh, you know, the person that actually knows how to program the codes into the nukes and activate and deactivate them. So when these people, which they did, uh, come forward and testify that UFOs have showed up at these silos, right, uh, in broad daylight uh, and, and actually deactivated nukes, activated nukes, in other words, played around with the codes. Uh, and they actually have a procedure, a protocol when this happens, that when the, they're told to, to go down into the silo, close the door, and wait till the activity above has stopped. They have an actual protocol. This is a, a known protocol. And so when these people start talking about the UFOs showing up at facilities and doing this at nuclear silos, then we have to pay attention. Okay. Because these are, these aren't, you know, not, not, no, nothing against anybody with a regular job, but these people don't have regular jobs. They're, they're controlling the world's nukes. And right now there's over 20,000 of these things. Unfortunately, they're all pointed at us. While we're on the planet still, if you didn't know, <laughs> we have no escape hatch. We have no escape shuttles to get off of this thing. And so if you're an alien race and you're flying by and you go, oh, let me scan this planet. Oh, a lot of life, a lot of a lot of activity going on here. Civilization is booming. Oh, they learned how to split the atom. Oh, let's check it out. Let's see what they've been able to do with this. Oh, they've got weapons. Let me see. Let's analyze these weapons. Let's see what they're, what they're all about. What, the, what is the trajectory of these weapons? Oh, this is not. Wait a minute. These weapons aren't to defend them from space invaders. 
their life trajectories are going like this. <laughs> they're pointing back at themselves while they're on the planet with the, they're going, oh man, this place is a ghetto. <laughs> Please put your hands together for our esteemed guest. Okay, time for a break, everybody. That'll give us a moment to digest a little bit. And we'll be back in about 10 or 15. So see you shortly. Thank you for being here and listening together. Good stuff. Namaste. Talking to you, Richard. Thank you, Rama, and good evening, everybody. It's right up nine o'clock Eastern. Good evening, Rich. Uh, yeah, well, whatever. Uh, we already had a, a nice astrology report on the new moon in Pisces. We did. And uh, but what's interesting to me right now is uh, this uh, spread from Pluto to Mars is uh, 136 degrees. And it's probably about as narrow as it's going to get. That's just, they're all packed in there just just, about a, a third of the, of the circle. Now today we had moon conjunct Mercury, and they're currently at eleven and thirteen degrees there in Aquarius. And uh, the sun was in the first degree of Pisces, just barely at this at this time. Now. Um, Venus is uh, passed by Neptune, and Venus is at uh, 29 Pisces, and Neptune's at 25 Pisces. But Jupiter keeps on moving along. Jupiter's at 10 Aries, and Chiron's at 14. The North Node is at seven, eight, eight Pisces, and Uranus is at sixteen Pisces, and then Jupiter, uh, uh, Mars is at uh, sixteen Gemini. So that's the layout. That's what we got going on. We had a, 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 I don't know what it is, anything else. The moon is moving fast, over 15 degrees per day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mercury and Venus are both moving more than a degree a day. Mercury's moving a degree and a half a day. And the sun's moving a degree and a half a minute per day. So Venus... I guess it's a gravitational effect and uh, geometry effect, but uh, uh, Mercury's a 
degree and a half a day, and Venus is a degree and a quarter per day. And nobody's retrograde. So we got that going for us. So let's, how long is Kaipacha? 28 minutes. All right. Let's see what's on the old man's mind out down there. (laughs) Wherever on the world he is, you know, he he likes to move around. He sure does. Yeah. Uh, Here we go. Hola, it's Capacho with the weekly Paley report for February fifteenth. So the moon, you know, right now is in Sagittarius, but probably by the time you hear this or I upload it, it will have moved into Capricorn, you know, and it's in that final quarter phase. Moving through Aquarius, it's going to hit Pluto. Moon conjunct Pluto on Friday, then she goes into Aquarius and uh, conjuncts Mercury. Remember, Mercury went into Aquarius last week, squares Uranus before she goes into Pisces. Not only that, what I also find very beautiful is that after Venus joins together with Neptune today, she travels and travels, letting go of the final, final degrees of the zodiac and goes into Aries. Starting a new cycle on Sunday. So there's going to be a change in energy. Not only is there a new moon on Sunday, but then Venus is also going from Pisces into Aries on Sunday. So, yeah, we'll see a little bit of a change, I think. Let's welcome that in. I'll look at the camera and figure out something to say here. All right, everybody, it's a Venus-Neptune day, the day after Valentine's Day. Venus, love, 
attraction, beauty, harmony, and peace coming together with her higher octave of universal oneness, love, harmony, and peace in the sign of Pisces, the dreams, the illusions, the fantasies, the imagination, the inspiration. Really something to have that happening at the same time as the sun comes into Saturn tomorrow. Kaboom. Like, like shoot your balloon out of the sky. <laughs> Going. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I'm going to take this time, you know, to savor this moment and uh, hopefully we can savor each and every moment of a cycle, whether it's starting, breaking out, full, letting go, surrendering, returning to source. This Pisces, and we have this new moon in Pisces. I'm going to read to you the Sabian symbol. I don't really like it that much. <laughs> but it's one take on what may be happening. And that will be happening maybe for, you know, many, many people. But it doesn't have to happen for everyone. And it doesn't have to happen to you or for you or around you. Because we have, we have our imagination and no one can, it's almost like a, a very special sacred place that is always open to us in our heart, mind, where we can connect to the divine, to the timeless, to the infinite. And that's what this mantra is about. And that's what this month can be about. I just wrote the lunar planner, so I'm trying to, uh, I see what's kind of coming for this whole next month. And then I found some people don't even know about the lunar planner. You know, I mean, I, I write this lunar planner. Uh, it, there, it's a weekly thing. I usually write the new moon. At the beginning of a new moon, I'll, I kind of look over the whole month instead of the Paley report, it's just weekly. The Lunar Planner looks over the whole month. And then either Jessica or Soul uh, follows through with the uh, first quarter, full and third quarter. And that comes in the newsletter and we post it on the website. It's uh, the blog. And I think we post it on YouTube and uh, Instagram. But on YouTube, I think you have to hit the community tab or something. But big stuff coming. I mean, this Venus does go into Aries and, and she will be joining together with Jupiter and Chiron in Aries. And I almost wanted to like jump ahead <laughs> to, to that powerful healing experience, you know, that, that, that can happen for us this month. But I'm going to hold back and save uh, that for a little later. But we do have the sun moving through Pisces for the next month. And after now Venus hits Neptune and moves on, the sun is going to come around and join together with Neptune in three, three weeks or so. 
And there is this whole alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, the infinite potential of Pisces, out of which every imagination, every creation, every inspiration emerges from source, from all that is, from the one, and diversifies through Aries and shoots out and spreads out and goes this way and that way and backwards and forwards and crazy and ah! Until it goes around and goes around, you know, and then returns. After the journey of maturation and a falling away of illusion, This is the thing about Pisces and Neptune that, you know, astrologers are plagued with. (laughs) It's a real tricky one. The difference between an illusion and delusion versus imagination and inspiration. It's like they all come from the same pot. And it's really something to now have the sun conjunct with Saturn, which is third dimensional reality, grounding, practical form, structure, the rocks of these mountains, the constructed airplane flying overhead (laughs) to remind me that I am not separate. From the collective experience. But, yeah, this place. This place is real. And and what I really want to bring forward here is this union of spirit and matter. It is Neptune and Saturn. Saturn entering Pisces himself. He's on the verge, the critical degree, the 29th degree of Aquarius, wrapping it up, folks. (laughs) After more than two and a half years of social distancing and separation from and within the collective consciousness, Saturn is now going to enter Pisces for the next three years. This is a big transition. And we're really going to be dealing with a lot. We're going to be working with a lot of energy on this plane. But what I really want to encourage with, you know, with this report, with this mantra, with this new moon, that it's not all about the here and now. It's not all about the third dimension. It's not all about our egoic experience on this planet because we are infinite spiritual beings having an earthly experience. And it's important to keep that and to build that bridge to, to strengthen that core. There's often the analogy of building a hut on the other side of the river Styx so that when we die, when we pass on, we already have a beginning. And through our meditations and through our spiritual work, we have 
projected ourselves and, and, you know, woven. Yeah, like these beautiful bird's nests. Did you see them hanging over the water? Just woven together. We want to weave. We want to build our hut on the other side of this world. So let me read the the mantra for this uh, new moon. is like, eh, you know, I mean, not the mantra, the, the Sabian symbol, but a squirrel hiding from hunters. The individual's need both to ensure his future subsistence, his future subsistence, and to protect himself from aggressive social elements. Uh The squirrel not only has to hide and store food for the winter, but to be on the lookout for the dangers involved in gathering this food supply. Social processes always cast strong shadows. The individual is never certain of being safe among his fellow men. Once the process of individualization with its negative aspects, competition, social aggressivity, and greed forces the breakdown of the organic tribal state of mankind during the archaic ages. This symbol warns of the dangers of life in society during an era of exacerbated individualism when violence is a possibility never to be dismissed. The need for self-protection and caution is ever present. (laughs) That's a little foreboding for a new moon setting the tone for for this next month. (laughs) If you read about the the lunar planner, I talked about catharsis, but I'm not going to talk about that here. I'm going to talk about Pisces, Neptune, and the 12th house being associated with hospitals, prisons, ashrams, monasteries, places of isolation and seclusion where you do your Vipassana yoga where you connect with the multidimensional worlds, where you step back and you step away from the hobnobbing and the social aggressivity and the greed and the, yeah, the whole drama unfolding here. It's time. It's time to step back. It's time to take a step out. So you want to gather your supplies. You, you, you want to, you know what? You want to feel, right, held 
And, you know, like the squirrel, gather your little nuts together and, you know, make a nice, safe, warm, beautiful home. And then proceed on from there because this is where we really want to understand that there are dark forces at this time seeking to cut us off from the spiritual world, descend into the material world, and through transhumanism become one with machines, denying our true, essential soul nature. And what I want to encourage you to be doing through this month, especially, as the sun transits through Pisces, is to keep that bridge open and to strengthen your awareness of the heart forces of love, of the law of one, of unity instead of separation that we have. So it's not us versus them, win or lose, gain or loss, or polarized reality but that we, from a higher perspective, I climbed this mountain yesterday and yeah, you know, it's like the higher you go, the farther you see, the more there is and the greater you're able to weave it all together and make sense out of the whole thing. So as we do our meditations and our breath work and we raise our energy and we come up into our witness, Mercury and Aquarius, okay, we open that third eye and we connect dots and we see things from the past and the future and the origins and the destiny. And we're not just like caught in this this little window, this little frame of a long movie. So, you know, it's like as we open, yeah, we are really attuned and witness and see, like I say in the mantra for today, through the window, these illusions, these dreams, this, this imagination that we have is not all false, fake, uh, you know, just because you can't touch it, taste it or feel it and it has no material presence that does not deny its reality. Nothing is achieved without creative imagination. We would not have what we have today. We would not be where we are today without dreams and inspiration and imagination. And yes, some of it is illusions. Some of it is delusions. And this is where we get tripped up. But I would say that now there is more of a tendency to fear, to push off, to ignore our dreams. Uh, you know, oh, that's, you know, that's just a dream. That's just a fantasy. That's just your own, uh, you know, your own inner stuff. That's never going to happen. That's not real. You can't touch it, taste it, pay for it, buy it, store it, repeat it. it it's, it's too flimsy. We want 
you know, boom, computers, artificial intelligence, robots and drones and, you know. <laughs> but yeah. Time. Time is the test of truth. It will be played out. You know, when the Wright brothers wanted to fly, you know, they had an imagination or they had a dream or they had a vision or they had an imagination of, you know, flying. Uh, I want to fly. We can fly. What did they do? I mean, they, they failed and failed and failed and failed and went back to the drawing boards and back to the you know, warehouse and back to the and made it again and again and again and crashed and crashed and crashed until one day. Woo! I want to encourage you, even if you fail and even if people call you a fool, be the fool. He starts out the tarot, the first of the major arcana, babe, as the fool walking off the cliff. <sighs> and you may fail and fail and fail again, but... You know, whether it's in love and relationships or jobs and money or family or homes or ideas and businesses that just don't let go of the dream. You can make it happen. And maybe you need help. Maybe you need support. Maybe it's not something to do alone or by yourself. And you need to invite others into the project. But there is a way. There is a way. And if it fails and 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 fails... It is a sign, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it is a truth, truth through time, right? Through multiple disillusionments leads you to modify and modify and adapt and edit and, and correct and re-envision and re-imagine and remodel and So it may not come out in its original form. And your dream may not be realized as you first initially dreamt it. But it inspires us. It excites us. It moves us through life. It gives us purpose and meaning. So chase your dream. That's what Venus Neptune says. It's, 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 it's go for it. And you may be the squirrel and maybe people are going to try to shoot you down or the hunters are out there and it's a dangerous world and everybody calls you crazy or whatever. Uh, boom. Get together with some like-minded souls, baby, and freaking make the future happen. Ow!
It's a this is a real crazy this is probably the craziest mantra I've <laughs> come up with for a long time. But anyway. Yeah. Not all illusions are delusions. But windows through which I may see a future so nice full of sugar and spice. <laughs> That's prepared and ready for me. Let's open our hearts to receive. This is Venus. This is the feminine, the receptive. There is a banquet prepared for you. And we have to open to receive it. And we have to believe in it. And when we do, it manifests. Let's not forget Pisces is also the realm of the mystic and the magician. It's magic. Grace, redemption, forgiveness, compassion, all these matters of the heart. So this month is, this new moon is, yeah, that I am going to remain in my heart space. I am going to remain open. I am going to be the squirrel that goes out and faces and trusts myself and trusts spirit and trusts my guidance and trusts my instincts to be led to the right place at the right time to gather all that I need so that I can return home and dream and relax and open to the spiritual world. Yeah. (laughs) So just a few thoughts to leave you with this week amidst the chaos and amidst the social disturbances and... Yes, all that is going on on this crazy, wild spaceship planet Earth. Yeah. Not all illusions are delusions, but windows through which I may see a future so nice Full of sugar and spice that's prepared and ready for me. Feel. Feel into that one, baby. And have yourself a good Oh, yeah, the song. Song for uh, today is Way Over Yonder. Is a place I have seen. It's a garden of wisdom from some long ago dream. Yep. Maybe you have to go way over yonder. That's okay. Pisces also has to do with letting go. Let go of the ties that bind and flow with the river of life. Namaste. Aloha, so my love.
Pastor Talking Dick to you, Richard. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Now, as I usually do, now I'm looking at next Saturday's chart. Now, uh, this, uh, this new moon is, for most of us is going to be late Sunday, early Monday. But by next, by next Saturday, the moon's going to move all the way from, uh, from that two degrees of Pisces up to, uh, 20 degrees, 22 degrees of Taurus. So, so during the week, the moon is first going to conjunct Neptune. Then Venus, then Jupiter, then Chiron, and then Uranus uh, next Saturday morning. But next Saturday evening, we're going to have Mercury getting close to Saturn, 22 versus Saturn's 29. And the sun will be at 8. And... Venus will start its conjunction with Jupiter, oh, probably Thursday-ish. By Saturday night, Venus will be at 8 degrees, and Jupiter will be at 12 degrees of Aries, with Chiron at 14. So Venus Venus to Chiron is a... Is a, a Conjunction getting ready to happen. You know, being only uh, six degrees apart with Jupiter in the middle, so we're going to have a we're going to have a, a stellum in Aries of Venus, Jupiter, and Chiron. Now the Jupiter and Chiron is already going on; it's already operative. But I wonder what Venus is going to bring us later this coming week. Venus brings stuff, generally good stuff. Mm -hmm. So we got that going for us. And Mars will be at 18 Gemini next Saturday night. Mm -hmm. So. That's about it. And uh, when we get back from uh, Tanya, I want to take a look at a couple of these Sabian symbols because individually, there's you got you got Pluto at thirty degrees of Capricorn, and you got. The sun at one degree of Pisces tonight. And uh, so we'll start, take a, take a look at those two to start with. So uh, let's go see what Miss Tanya has for our listening enjoyment. Okay, here we go. Thank you. 
Sonia Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an upcoming event in the astrology and numerology, deciphering the star codes so we can navigate the event with the utmost grace as possible. And in this case, it's the very graceful and beautiful Pisces New Moon. And what I love about it this year is that it takes place on February 20th in the second month. Now, two is the number of peace and balance. And Pisces also represents peace and a sense of spiritual balance. So we have a tremendous numbers code that takes us into that kindness and caring, compassion, love, and bringing balance within so that we can use our incredible intuition. Pisces is such an intuitive sign to surrender and receive what we need at any given moment. Now, this new moon is highly fortunate. It is incredibly beautifully aspected for one neptune the ruler of pisces and the ruler of this new moon is conjunct venus now venus is exalted in pisces so the ruler of pisces conjunct venus is so beautiful venus of course is a benefic that means she showers us with beauty love abundance And so this is the energy we're really going to feel. A conjunction is a merging of two different frequencies. And this will result in fortunate blessings, in abundance, and in spiritual breakthroughs, which we're going to go into in a moment. Now, the new moon happens on February 20th at 7.06 a.m. Universal Time in London, and that is 2.06 a.m. Eastern Time, New York, and 11.06 p.m. on the 19th, and that is Pacific Time, L.A. Time. Now, the sun and moon will be conjunct Saturn, and it is an out-of-sign conjunction. That means Saturn is in Aquarius, not Pisces, but very late Aquarius, 28 degrees. So it's a critical degree and actually very close to the sun and moon, which are at one degrees in Pisces. And actually, this is the fourth consecutive new moon at one degrees, bringing a lot of new beginnings energy and a sense of fresh starts, like an energy surge. We are continuing that momentum and it's going to actually appear again in the next new moon. Now, the sun and moon conjunct Saturn really allow you to get grounded in control and take care of the responsibilities, especially regarding your spiritual well-being, how you feel. And so feeling is really a big part of this new moon. And emotional commitment with Saturn in Aquarius conjunct the sun and moon means that you are going to be very absorbed in activities that help you concentrate, get ahead, and achieve. Saturn is an achieving planet. Saturn rules the career sector, the 10th house in astrology. So it's very much about your achievements. And in this case, it is spiritual, loving, musical, artistic, beautiful achievements. 
So bringing order and structure into your life is important. And Saturn provides that. Saturn provides the perfect balance to Piscean energy, which is very unstructured, very open. There are no boundaries with Pisces. And with Saturn, there are. So it's really a lovely way to declutter and especially clear your mind of cobwebs. Those cobwebs from the past or worries about the future or illusions, right? Those pie-in-the-sky ideas that are never acted upon or or not explored on a deeper level where it truly has an impact on your life. So this is an amazing moment when Saturn comes around in this way. Now, Mars is trying to Mercury as well, and that initiates, it inspires Mars, after all, rules Aries, the first sign, this new moon is at one degree, so there's a lot of initiation, forward momentum energy to begin with. But Mars trying Mercury gets your mind on just new ideas and firing you up with passion. And Mercury is also square to Uranus, and a square creates tension so that you get up and act. So this square can result in impatience. It can result in nervous energy or anxiety. So the pace of life quickens around this time, and you want to make sure you dot all your I's and cross all your T's and refrain from being impatient or going into a place where you worry or are anxious. Just be very flexible and open. Now, Venus plays a huge role, a beautiful role during this new moon. We already looked at the fact that Venus is conjunct Neptune, and Venus is also sextile Pluto. So Pluto and Neptune, those are very slow-moving planets. Pluto takes about 248 years to go around the zodiac, and Neptune around, I believe, 150s give and take 156 or so years. So with this Pluto immersion and Venus, there's a lot of love. There's a lot of passion. There's magic. And since this new moon happens in the month of love, February, love and romance are really heightened at this time. And it also impacts existing partnerships, which feel very spiritual, very profound, Beauty and creativity are very much part of this, as is uncovering things that creatively you haven't looked at maybe deep enough. And now you're getting these unbelievable aha moments with Pluto coming in with Venus. So you're drawn to all this harmony and beauty. And what's wonderful is to make it all real, Saturn is conjunct the new moon, right? Saturn is the manifesting planet, the planet that takes responsibility and gets things done. So yeah, there's a lot of really awesome energy here to take that nurturing, creative imagination and do something really exciting with it. So focus on that. Now, Pisces, the shadow side of Pisces is to get in a nebulous state. And so if you feel that you're a little bit in a fog and you can't really let go and focus on the new beginnings energy and you can't figure out what the truth is in the situation that you're in. Have a mission to be around grounded people or grounding energy. Go ground your bare feet on earth. And you will start tuning back into your body because otherwise you will believe 
illusions and feel deluded and then make decisions that you may regret later. So Pisces can do that. Pisces can undo things because it is so fluid. And so when you get all your ducks in a row, make sure that your decisions are made in a place of feeling very balanced. That's why it's so important when you're making big decisions to be in a place of crystal clarity, not when you're in a fog, not when you're feeling down, not when you're feeling depressed or feeling angry, upset, right? So you need to really discern what is real and what isn't. And to do that, you turn to your body. So you have this beautiful brain that is left and right brain, which is very creative and intuitive and the right side and the left is very practical, analytical, can fix things. And that balance is obviously very important. But sometimes you can't get those deeper answers for those bigger questions or those spiritual queries. That's when you sort of go back and forth and, you know, it's like you're not getting a grasp. So that's when you check your body, especially your tummy, which is another seat of the brain. The gut is a a part of the second brain that scientifically has been verified where in your gut, you have a biome that has nerve endings. And that's why it's important to keep the bacteria in the gut in a healthy balance. Because when you, when you do that, when you eat well and focus on your health, it impacts actually your decision-making because your gut resides around your solar plexus. That's the third chakra. And the third chakra is all about feeling reality. So these little sensors that you have in this belly gut area really give you a yay or nay feedback. You know, is this true or is this should I just, you know, throw that out the window because it doesn't ring true, right? So you practice that and you start listening and you start always asking for guidance as well, right? It's a combination of turning to the all that is your guides and also turning to your body, especially your your gut. So gut feelings, right? So that is your second brain. So the combination of the two is really being blended in a beautiful way. And the gut is, of course, always accentuated when Pisces is activated because Pisces is all about feeling. So trust that. Trust yourself that you have that guidance and you have your guides and have a good time with it. Make make some fun connections. It's not always serious. I know Saturn is conjunct this new moon in Pisces, but there is a lot of joy as well with with Venus conjunct Neptune. So there's beauty, there's spirituality, there's love, there's caring. And it's just a wonderful time for you to explore what is beautiful, what is spiritual, where's spirituality, where does it come from? How do you connect to it? And to help you with that, I actually have a free masterclass at spiritualmasteryclass.com. And it's a perfect time to tune in during this Pisces new moon period, because what you're going to discover is the secret to spiritual mastery itself, the importance between individuality and uniqueness. 
Now, this is a really, really important topic because it is your uniqueness that you want to focus on versus your individuality. And you'll see why in this masterclass. We also focus on the importance of your natal sun and natal moon's position and how that impacts a happy, abundant life. There are so many wonderful tools in this masterclass and it's free and you can have instant access at spiritualmasteryclass.com. So enjoy that and have a wonderful Pisces new moon and I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of fun. Here again, 
is what, here again, what is at stake is a meeting through, is a seeing through the facts of telluric processes in human history. Assuming that these facts are at least a part of the outcome of the decisions of a supreme council of quasi-divine beings, obviously the symbol can also refer to what occurs at the more ordinary level of business and politics. At At any level, it refers to the highest form of social interaction. And the the other thing here is it's it's reference to executive power or the power to execute or to get stuff done. All right, now we want to go to we want to go to one degree of Pisces here because that's where we. That's where the sun is today. Pisces one. In a crowded marketplace, farmers and middlemen display a great variety of products. We've read this one recently. Mm-hmm. But this is the process of commingling and interchange, which at all levels demonstrates the health of a community. And again, this can be taken from a position of love and wisdom or a condition of greed, ambition, domination, you know, all those negative things. So that's that's where that's where we got to get get through today. Now we 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 know we know that Tanya doesn't round up her degrees, but Kaipacha mm-hmm. uh, does. So he read two Pisces: the squirrel hiding from hunters. Yeah, then we got. Let's see. The other thing here is. Oh, Venus is going to be in the last degree of Pisces very, very shortly here, right? And, you know, that's that's kind of significant, you know. The last, the last degree is 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 like the first degree, and if if any two signs. Uh, share, share a degree would be 30 Pisces in one Aries. 30 Pisces is a majestic rock formation resembling a face, which is idealized by a boy who takes it as his ideal of greatness. And as he grows up, he begins to look like the face in the rock. And this is the power of clearly visualized ideals to mold 
the life of the visualizer. And uh, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Hawthorne wrote that story to, uh, to show the capacity for self-transformation latent in man. This power can be developed through visualization when the emotions and the will are poured into the visualized mental image at the highest spiritual cosmic level. This is the power used by the godlike beings at the close of a cosmic cycle in projecting the basic formula which will start a new universe in a biological sense it is the power latent in all seeds the power to produce and guide the growth of the future plant and is a most fitting symbol for the last phase of the cyclic process Within the end of the cycle, the seed of a new beginning exists in potency. Unless the entire cycle has proven to be a failure. Now, just for grins, the first degree of Aries reads <clears throat> Act 1 Differentiation Scene 1 Desire A woman just risen from the sea A seal is embracing her And again This is the emergence of new forms and of the potentiality of consciousness. So we got we got all that all that stuff going on here. And the other the other thing that that kinda has my attention here and I haven't figured out what the exact degree is going to be but I think we can estimate that since Chiron is at 14 and let's see, Jupiter, how fast is Jupiter moving? Uh, da, 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 da. So get rid of that. Let me see that. Click on that. Jupiter, let's see here. Jupiter is moving at a fifth of a, a fifth of a degree per day right now. So it's moving one degree about every five days. So we've got. In about 20 days, Jupiter will be conjunct. 
we're going to go. We're going to go for 15 Aries. Is an Indian weaving a ceremonial blanket. And the keynote is projecting into everyday living the realization of wholeness and fulfillment. So that's, uh, that's pretty good here. In Asia, one is told of the spiritual vesture of the perfect ones. The man who has attained the spiritual state is figuratively robed in the universe and more precisely in the Milky Way. The great white robe of interwoven stars. This is the ultimate kind of weaving. There was also Penelope's weaving and unweaving, waiting for the return of her polarizing mate. The mind of the American woman, in which these symbols took concrete form, could think only of Indian weavers. For the white man, who is hungering for symbols of a state of living in total harmony with the universe, the traditional Indian can be glamorized as the answer to the inner emptiness of the city dweller, surfeited with artificial values. At any rate, we may thus prefigure a future state of fulfillment in conscious harmony and unpossessive love. So, that's a nice place to end our little astrological check of the conditions for tonight. So, I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. I agree. That was a good place to end. Yeah. Well, I want. I'll just. I'll just say this in passing. You. Uh, you came up with a an interesting selection of stuff to play for us this afternoon. Yes. Yes. And, and, and you know, it's like, especially when you when you take them all together as a group. <laughs> yeah. It points out how complicated life on Earth is. <laughs> yeah, we all volunteered, didn't we? That's the theory. I <laughs> I haven't remembered volunteering, but I suppose I did. <laughs> well, we're all, all here Namaste. Namaste. Till we meet again. Okay, Rama, you have the phone numbers for our um, conference call, right? 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. 
Okay. I want to say that one more time just for people who might want to write it down. 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353863-POUND. Okay. We'll see you all there. And we'll be back here uh, at the top of the next hour. Back here to BBS Radio, the best radio there is in this universe. And yes, we can. And we'll see you on the conference, everyone. See you now. Namaste. Okay, thank you, Rama. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, we're going to settle in with uh, Regina Meredith. Um, and this is called, um, let me see, back it up here, the spiritual lives of scientists, that's pretty intriguing. Can science help us understand the spiritual order of the universe? Paul J. Mills, Ph.D., has been a student of metaphysics and science for many years. Mills shares his personal journey that inspired him to study esoteric knowledge, such as Vedanta and Ayurveda, in addition to his scientific work in biomedicine and integrative health, detailing the results of the transformational power of gratitude practice. In a study from the Chopra Foundation, Mills describes how recognizing our place in the universe as individuals also helps us to see humanity's place in the order of the universe. And again, Regina Meredith, are you ready, honey? Mm-hmm. Okay, again, it's 47 minutes. So here we go. meditation and within a moment I found myself encountering a vast, vast being pretty much in traditional biomedicine but I always kept the spiritual side of me off the table. We also knew there were scientists who have active spiritual lives and so I started about interviewing them. I interviewed over 30 scientists for the Mainly biomedical scientists and physicists and others. They share with me their spiritual journey. Most of which they keep from public view. Science should have been by our side all these centuries. But it's been 
mainly an impediment, but it's not too late. So let's talk about what you learned in your relationship with Deepak and why you were drawn to do that to begin with. Finally, it looks like science and scientists are beginning to understand that there's a metaphysical realm after all. Because we live in an age of scientific materialism, the average person won't jump into metaphysics without some kind of proof. Paul Mills is with us today to talk about the spiritual life of many prominent scientists toward the end of telling the skeptics. You have a wonderful statement about skepticism, by the way. The skeptics, you can relax. It's okay to explore a little bit. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Regina. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> you know, this this book that you wrote all started with a vision, a big vision. And so let's go ahead and talk about the vision, and then we'll understand why it was time to write the book. Yeah, thank you for that. Yes, some years ago, there was an event here on Earth that's called the Galactic Alignment. And it's when our solar system and our Earth and Sun have moved into a certain position in relationship to the galactic center. Yes. And it's a position where there's a kind of open line to the galactic center that we usually don't have. I learned about that as a phenomenon. And after learning about it, I decided to do a meditation because I wanted to understand the phenomenon a little bit more than I had read. Mm -hmm. I closed my eyes to do a contemplative meditation on this, this activity. And within a moment, I found myself encountering a vast, vast being a consciousness that was totally foreign to anything I'd ever encountered before. Can you describe a little bit of it to us, just the nature Mm. of what you felt? I felt in awe because Mm. of of the vastness of this being. And then it began to communicate with me telepathically. And and the first thing it told me was it has no interest in human beings, which was very odd to me. But then it followed it up immediately by saying, but I have a great interest in humanity. And it told me that it had been following the development and progress of humanity for eons, eons and eons. And that one day, humanity will fulfill the reason it was created. And as it shared that with me, it showed me an image of the earth from space. And it's beautiful, really beautiful image. And as I looked at it, it showed me this golden, whitish colored light that slowly spread around the globe. <laughs> and it said... The creation of that light, that energy, is the reason human beings exist, why we're on the planet. And as I began to ponder, well, what was it? What is it that we're going to create in the future? Then the information was, was love. Humanity's role on the earth is to bring into this dimension we commonly call the third dimension, love in manifestation in a concrete form. That's what I was shown. And after that vision, I began to wonder well, what have I been doing as a scientist? Am I am I helping this phenomenon to occur in the future? Am I hindering it? Then I began to wonder, well, what about science in general? Now, I knew science is mainly materialistic and therefore not really helping things along too much. Not in this area. No. But I also knew there were scientists who have active spiritual lives. And so I set about interviewing them. I interviewed over 30 scientists for the book, mainly biomedical scientists some physicists, and others. They share with me their spiritual journey, transpersonal experiences, mystical experiences, metaphysical experiences. Most of which they keep from public view. The vast majority of scientists do for perhaps obvious reasons. And it's not hunting. I mean, literally things haven't changed much since the Inquisition. In fact, a lot of people 
Mm-hmm. Um, state, Jen Ingle Smith, for example, a psychiatrist who also deals now mm-hmm. a lot with the shamanic realms and such, mm-hmm. says one of the most prominent imprints right now in the more astral field that people are moving through and still affect human beings has to do with the leftover imprint of the days of the Inquisition. Mm. And that many, many of these beings and scientists and healers and artists are back and afraid to represent their truth. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. That that underlying imprint from the subconscious level. Yeah. And then, of course, on the conscious level, most scientists, too, at least in the academic realm, value their reputation. Reputation is everything. Right. And if you start deviating off into certain areas, it can it can hurt just a little bit your reputation. And Which affects grants and, and tenure yeah. and everything. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your own scientific background. We'll just go through you kind of quickly so we can get to the meat of what you're trying to share here today. Sure. Well, I ended up in science because I had a metaphysical experience when I was a young boy in, in, in high school, actually. What was it? It was an out-of-body experience when I was meditating. And I had learned transcendental meditation a few months earlier, sat down under an oak tree to meditate, and boom, bam, I'm out of my body looking down. It was initially startling. I had never heard of such a thing. I was raised Catholic. There was no discussion of expanded consciousness at all. But I settled into it very quickly. And what I noticed was there was me, Paul, that I knew myself to be having the experience, but also a much larger me, Mm -hmm. a larger me that was extremely comfortable with the situation. It was familiar. It was peaceful. After I returned to my body, so to speak, I began to wonder, well, who am I? Am I this Paul? Am I that Paul? What is my potential as a human being? And that really led me certainly into esoteric studies, primarily Vedanta, mm-hmm. but also uh, to, to pursue science. Mm-hmm. Because I figured, well, science can get me there. Talk about it has the answers. a little bit in science. My uh, area in science has been primarily biomedical, behavioral medicine, integrated medicine, mm-hmm. oncology, a vast, I'm very collaborative yeah. Yeah, and interdisciplinary yeah. Yeah. and um, been pretty much in traditional biomedicine, but I always kept the spiritual side of me off the table. As yeah. We said a moment ago, most scientists do. Mm-hmm. But in the last handful of years, I began to let that change. And now, of course, it's it's all out in the book. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I, just to backtrack for a moment, what you said is that this being, which is often the case mm-hmm. with guides of a particular, uh, from particular realms, shall we say, I don't want to say stature or hierarchy. Mm-hmm. It's really not that. That's not how it works. But certain level of guides really aren't inter- interested so much in the individuated stuff. It's that the drama and everything that each human is going through is you know, it's 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 um, entertainment almost more than anything. It's and it's not even entertaining. But I understand what you're talking about mm-hmm. about the collective of what humanity is, which I I have great respect for what humanity is, how they've been treated, and what humanity can become. So I'm totally with you on this and the notion that we're capable of something that isn't really even accessible in some other places. Uh, in some other pl- on some other planets and realms, it's not love is not the directive mm-mm. per se. No. And I want to add that uh, last month I was reading a book. Uh, it's a series of lectures by Rudolf Steiner. Oh, love Rudolf Steiner. <laughs> I know we both have share an appreciation for Waldorf we do. and Steiner. Yeah. Yeah. 
This was a series of lectures he gave on the Gospel of St. John. And essentially, I read a section where he described the mission of the earth is to bring love into the cosmos, which is a beautiful confirmation. And he also said, it's up to us as humanity for that to succeed. It's not the earth herself doing it. It's us being here in relationship with the earth. She's already doing it. it. (laughs) It's up to us to come into resonance with the earth and what she already gives us. Absolutely. Mm. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, I went, I read an esoteric document, um, by St. John on the subject of Armageddon that was at once terrifying in its description and so beautiful in the elevation of what it was saying happens at that time, what happens in this transition time by way of love. And it's all, all love that fuels where we go as a species. Mm-hmm. And so it, brilliant, um, brilliant being. Um, so now in your own background, just a little bit before we go into some of the people, because we've already told people, we're going to talk about some of the scientists and mm-hmm. what they came across in their own lives. Mm-hmm. You worked with Deepak Chopra for quite a long time. So let's talk about how your relation, wh- what you learned in your relationship with Deepak and why you were drawn to do that to begin with. Yeah. Meeting Deepak was was very, very helpful for me in my career. In fact, it was meeting him was the reason I could be eventually start tacking into consciousness studies. Mm-hmm. He and I had a meeting, a chance meeting at a scientific conference. We started speaking about integrative medicine, which is an area I was doing research in mm-hmm. at the time. We both started lamenting that integrative medicine and integrative medicine research is not at all really integrative. The vision is for that, but it's still fragmented. Mm-hmm. It's still reductionistic, as is the biomedical model. So we decided we needed to conduct research that was truly integrative, whole person, which we did. We designed a beautiful study called the Self-Directed Biological Transformation Initiative, which was on a whole person medical system, Ayurveda in this case. Ayurveda, as you know, and Tibetan medicine, yes. all the traditional systems understand the transcendental nature of the human being, consciousness itself. So doing that research study and others we did led me naturally to begin to discuss the transcendent in the context of our scientific publications, Mm -hmm. journals, talks at conferences. And that led me to say, you know, I, I just need to start speaking about this. My own personal experience, I'll highlight other scientists who have had such experiences and who have been in a closet, so to speak. And this gets back to the, the vision of love. The question is, what has science been doing for us? And honestly, as you know, it's been a hindrance. It has been a hindrance. Most people... It ridicules those who speak that way. Yeah. Most people look to science for answers. And we have Western science, particularly the materialism aspect, to basically say there's no mystical. Right. There's no metaphysical. So people then believe that and say, okay, well, there isn't any. I'm just going to, I'll do something else here. I'll follow some other trajectory, and I won't have the encouragement to develop it myself. So it's been an impediment. I want to see science evolve out of materialism, just like we as human beings need to evolve out of our egotism to get us to the next step. If science does that, great. If it doesn't, please get out of the way. Yeah, get out of the way. And let's unfold Mm -hmm. this as we need it to be. And now's the time. It is. I mean, to me, we're at such a kind of critical juncture in this, as you say, 
ability to understand, feel, and propagate love in all its forms in the most simple and sweetest levels. People think, oh my God, how are we going to have a planet based on love? And in fact, I was meditating recently. I wasn't meditating. I was sitting down to read a book and all of a sudden I got that funny feeling. I thought, oops, there's someone wants to talk to me. So I closed my eyes and I actually got my cell phone and thought, it feels like something I need to probably write down. And so I just recorded my cell phone. And it turned out it was really an ode to love and every way in which people can love. And that this whole notion of bringing love onto this planet is not a heroic effort at all. It's just taking a moment to feel uplifted, to feel an appreciation for another for for another person, for a little pet, for, you know, nature, for a piece of music. Mm. All of that is a reflection of love. Mm. And if every person would give themselves permission and understand the necessity, and I mean, really the directive for us to take those moments and feel this, it starts. It just starts. It does, because it's all in there. We just need permission and somewhat of a setting. Yes, and then it begins. It does. And it starts in mass. The more people that can embrace simple, simple practices mm-hmm. like this, like gratitude, which is just loving appreciation, it's just love. Yeah. I think that's why people like gratitude meditation so much. It's powerful. It's it, very powerful. It overcomes a, a duality and separation. It really as a does. Practice. So now when we're getting down to these scientists, their spirit and their mind, and how do they work with that? Uh, so most of the scientists I interviewed had, well, some had a, a kind of a transpersonal spiritual awakening while they were already scientists. And I'll mention one now in terms of sure. compa- uh, gratitude and compassion, since we were just speaking about that. Some had more psychic, spiritual capabilities as young children, and that led them to become scientists. Right, to figure out why. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the scientists, for example, her name is Professor Dusana Dorje. She's out at York University. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like she her was story. Deep, <laughs> it's a great story. She was deep into Buddhist meditation, compassion meditation, gratitude meditation. And that led her eventually into what's often called a non-dual state, mm-hmm. non-duality, non-dual awareness, essentially oneness. That can be a challenging state for people to first come into if they're not prepared for it, because it also has to do with a changing of the sense of your own individual identity as a person. Mm-hmm. Much of that tends to go away. She was struggling. She was struggling with, how do I live life in this state? Turns out she was fortunate. She ended up having to go to a conference shortly thereafter. And at the conference, she encountered a Buddhist monk. And she asked the Buddhist monk, um, can I speak with you? I'm struggling with something. He said, yes. They sat down. She explained her practice and what happened and where she was at that moment. And he actually, when she shared that with him, she just began to cry because it had been such a load for her mm-hmm. trying to decide what to do. He was very thoughtful and he said, what you're experiencing, this is the normal trajectory of spiritual development. Mm-hmm. And you have a choice. You can either go back and accept the conditioned reality that you've been living in or stay on the path you're on and eventually it will get easier. It'll evolve and develop and it'll become more rich of an experience because the beginning of these states can, you can feel kind of isolated even though it's essentially a oneness state. 
of course, she she's progressed forward. And there are many such stories in the book. Right. There, yes, there are. And what you bring up is interesting. And what, we, what we're talking about there, the notion of spirit and mind mm-hmm. and how one defines the other, when in fact, you can't even separate them in the sense, the truest sense of the word. And certainly in hermetic parlance and many others, many traditions, mm-hmm. all there is, that's all there is, is mind. But that doesn't mean left brain. <laughs> it means perception, awareness, the yeah. ability to articulate between themes. And it's always seemed to me that the biggest roadblock for many people to having a clear connection with higher mind, higher mind, which is part of the soul complex, mm-hmm. is a sense of identity. Mm-hmm. As much as we try, we try to protect the story we've built about ourselves and who we think we are. And that really closes down the ability to just blossom and open to that incredible connection because you might find out something new that you're not or you are. <laughs> we all tend to hold on to our identity. So this, this egotism. Yeah. And that keeps us stuck, yeah. But when people get on a spiritual path, something happens, and that opening arises, then they're on their way. And that's also much of the story of the book. It's, yes. it's not only the story of the individual scientists, it's what's happened to them and how they got on their journey. But it's also about the larger spiritual journey, consciousness development yes. journey that all human beings are absolutely entitled to. And need to take responsibility to start on if they're not already on it. Yes, and, and need to develop. And this is the part I think that's really tough for people is to develop the faith that life with the capital L, meaning you, your soul, your guidance, everything is all there to lift you, not to work against you. And so having that faith to understand change is okay. Mm-hmm. Seeing yourself differently and others differently is okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and if science if science was in that corner, so to speak, yeah. providing that information yeah. just philosophically number one, yeah. or if some of the billions of dollars a year that go to biomedical and all kinds of science research were devoted to that. Mm-hmm. So we as human beings can really begin to understand and are supported in our potential. How beautiful it would be. It would be beautiful. Our reality would be beautiful. <laughs> Um, and it's just, it's, I, it's not that far away. I mean, I think we're headed there. We talked about that. Let's yeah. talk about Dean Radin for a moment. Um, uh, a lot of our viewers know Dean and you know Dean and I've met Dean. I've been in his workshops yeah. where we're talking about, um, utilizing the mind beyond time and space and his feelings on this. Cause he's really, I mean, he's known for his rational ways but on the other hand yeah. this, the experiments he's conducted conducted and overseen are really you can't argue the results anymore mm-hmm. we can't and tell us about his position on the world of scientific materialism yeah well he's not in favor of it of course and he's yeah. been such a pioneer yeah. uh, probably the the leading edge so to speak of scientists yeah. who have the most rigorous scientific Methodology, which is always admired, of course, and needed if you want to get into journals and so forth. Um, and, and a lot of that has been driven by his own personal experience. And he shared with me in the, uh, when we interviewed for the book. And this was an experience he had when he was in college. 
And it turned out it was his birthday, but he had been born on a leap year. And he's walking across the campus and he was thinking to himself, oh, today's my birthday. And what happened is he shifted, his consciousness spontaneously shifted and suddenly he stepped into a new dimension, so to speak. And after he came into the new dimension, he calls these step functions. And he's had several of them in his life since then. And how does he define step function? It's when you leave a prior state of consciousness behind and you're in And when he stepped into the step, step function on the college campus, he looked back in his memory of his prior life and he said, it was like I had been living in a fog, mm-hmm. in a dream, my whole life up to that point. And then going forward, there was no more fog, there was no more dream. It was utter lucidity about who he was, the nature of consciousness, mind consciousness, as let's say mind existing within consciousness, yes. because consciousness is everything. Yeah. And that began to direct his future work, mm-hmm. uh, ultimately become a scientist and to guide uh, the work he does. It is beautiful. It is. And, and he says you can't, you, we shouldn't just throw out scientific materialism because it's very useful in proving a lot in this world, but we cannot limit ourselves to it any longer. We're doing ourselves a disservice as a species now. Totally. There's so much to be said about that. The materialism side, and then there's this term scientism. Mm-hmm. Leon Koss, he was the chair of bioethics committee for uh, the President's Council, the White House, some years back. And he spoke about scientism, as does Rupert Sheldrake. Yes, he does. Scientism is basically this idea that science as we know it has become a kind of religion, religion. for many people. Yeah. And Koss says it's basically a soulless scientism and has been draining from us as people mystery, the mystery of our existence. It's trying to just quantify everything as a manifestation of the material world only. Mm-hmm. Sheldrake speaks of the scientific priesthood. And that's all that has to go. It absolutely must go. It must go. So that we can emerge into our own and, and let science emerge into what it was. Right. Was to be. And I write in the book about that initial split back four centuries ago. Science should have been by our side all these centuries, supporting us, guiding us to flowering into who we're to be, ultimately up to this vision of the future of the earth, manifesting love and that becoming a primary experience for human beings. But it's been mainly an impediment, but it's not too late. It can evolve. Yes. And in fact, Richard Feynman, I, you wrote about it in the book as well, you know, Nobel Prize winner in physics. Physicists are, it's a little easier, it seems, for physicists to get out there. Agreed. Because they're already working kind of in a non-physical world. So mm-hmm. scientific materialism doesn't always, doesn't apply to physicists for the most part. So I find them very interesting. Deep scientific minds, but able to fly out there as mystics as well. Yes. And so Feynman, let's talk about him because he's commenting. He's talking about religion as a culture of faith and science as a culture of doubt. And that's fair enough, the, the culture of doubt. And as Dean Radin said in his interview, and I, I was trained in this scientific lady, some degree of pessimism is needed in science. But pessimism doesn't mean closed-mindedness. And so many scientists have this closed-mindedness. And what's paradoxical is someone will call themselves a scientist but tell you absolutely there's no mystical. Yeah. Absolutely there's no metaphysical. That's not a scientist. 
Yes, there's based, no open mind. Based on not having experience of it. <laughs> yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. But it's happened and it's very accepted. Yeah. Within, within the scientists in that sense. But you're right. Physicists, they're different than the biomedical scientists that I, that world I'm in because they're, they're in that level of reality where eventually things start getting obvious that it's a little different than they thought. <laughs> well, when you just get into the atomic level of reality and realize there's nothing here. <laughs> I mean, the big surprise for me, that was the big shock and surprise in my life. When I was in my 30s and I started reading about quantum reality. Mm. And I think I started with Michael Talbot, Beyond the Quantum. I think that was my first book. Mm. And I still remember how I felt when I read it. And it is mind boggling. Mm. I think almost everyone, including the physicists, to think we're sitting here talking to each other. And we have a cup of tea and a table. But there's actually nothing here. Mm. I mean, the matter of a human can fit on the pin of a head. I mean, the head of a pin. Head of a pin. Yeah. Yeah, pinhead. <laughs> I mean, so what is this construct in front of us? And if any, if any scientist understands just the atomic weight of reality, which is almost weightless, how come they can't allow themselves to go there? This is so obvious. This is something else. We're not, yeah. we're not material. I would say that's part of the amazing hypnosis of what is often called ignorance. Yeah. That even though you're right, we, we, consciousness is infinite and eternal. We are that. All of this is that manifesting as one. Yet it appears to be all this differentiation and differences. And that's when we're just hanging out a little bit too much with the egoic. Yeah. identification and when we begin to loosen that as you know then those other perspectives fall away and we're seeing the reality of things we're experiencing it we're knowing it based on our deep sense of self and that's the end of that and then we can continue to live life from a new perspective that makes sense because if we do when we go into this place mm-hmm. of en masse where humanity is a planet that actually embodies and represents Love in its truest form. William Tiller called it the, mm-hmm. the solvent of the universe. Mm-hmm. Love is the universal solvent. Once mm-hmm. we go to that place, that's a much higher frequency range. Now in there, we should be starting to have different experiences. Telepathically, we talk about the thinning of veils now. They should be super thin. <laughs> Once we start reaching into these higher frequencies yeah. where we simply see and know and communicate more easily beyond the physical realm, right? Yes. Yeah, and I want people, as this begins to happen more and more for people, I want people to have a confidence to to proceed and step forward. Yes. And that's also, if I may say, part of the message of the book, to take your own development into your own hands. Stop paying attention to things like the materialistic sciences that say certain things don't exist about your own spiritual nature. Right. And pull that power and belief and knowledge back in yourself and move forward. Absolutely. And I love one of the statements. This is still around uh, Feynman. I wrote here um, where he's talking about um, uh, science as a culture of doubt. And there's a quote here from you that skepticism translated into closed mindedness is a poison, <laughs> particularly in the scientific inquiry. And I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah. It's actually 
a poison. It stops all growth. It stops the expansion of consciousness. It stops love. I'm with you all the way. (laughs) Skepticism. And people pride themselves on skepticism. Mm -hmm. But even the skeptic, the famous, what's his name? Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer. I started to say Schumann. Michael Shermer. Even he had his own metaphysical experiences and then goes about publicly trying to deny such a thing ever exists. Even the biggest, most public skeptic, certainly in this country. So yes. it's just, these are lies now. They're protecting ego. It's all to protect ego. All to protect ego. So now we have to stop listening to, I think, skeptics. But on the other hand, now let's, I'm going to do devil's advocate here. Mm-hmm. So we're in a world where people are creating their own realities, mm-hmm. where algorithms are reinforcing preferences, mm-hmm. which are becoming beliefs, which are becoming a source of more and more and more division and ignorance. Mm-hmm. So when you have people embracing so much BS Mm -hmm. that scoots around the planet as clickbait and becomes realities. Now it's reality. Where does a healthy dose of skepticism fit in? Or do we just call it discernment? Let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, this is a vitally important point you're raising. And I like the word discernment quite a bit. And, uh, well, you know, Tiffany, my wife, Tiffany Barsotti, she's been working a lot in this area, teaching a course, helping people raise their level of discernment. Yes. And that's something we all innately have the capacity to do. It's listening to that inner voice. It's doing our best to turn inside for that initial hit. Uh, first hit, best hit is something Carolyn Mace often said. And Tiff has shared that with me several times. We, we have an internal compass that can get us there Mm -hmm. we just have to have confidence in it to listen to it and move forward but that said it's a challenging challenging time you the word clickbait clickbait i've never heard that before that's a good one we're being endlessly distracted out in in our environment with media as you know and and uh, i'm really concerned i mean i'm concerned and i've said this on other shows and i know every generation's concerned about the next one oh they're wearing their skirts too short. <laughs> okay, right. Well, now this, this is a little different. Their brains are being wired differently now. And you're talking about something yeah. where attention spans have been shortened, where people are embracing, like I said, they're embracing whatever's coming before them as though it's real, yeah. when it may have no reality at all into it, mm-hmm. because it's exciting. It's almost, It's almost like, an excitotoxin in the brain, like you get from aspartame and such. It's the same thing that's happening Mm -hmm. through media and mostly, you know, interactive media, even more so, but media in general being fed in streams like this, Mm -hmm. where you're, you're now numb. It's beyond discernment. Yeah. It's it's a tough state to get out of this. It's very hypnotic. Very hypnotic. And it's feeding some neural networking that's rewiring itself in the brain mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. everything you're talking about makes perfect sense but now how does that extend into a generation of people mm-hmm. that spends most of their time on devices that are rewiring the brain yeah how do you go back to discernment how do we teach our children and grandchildren again mm-hmm. i mean send them to waldorf that's <laughs> that's why i hate to say that but that's one that's, way to do it but get rid of their stuff Uh, You mentioned earlier your openness and sensitivity to your guides in the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. And 
my personal experience around this lately is that there's more, there's, there's helps on the way, so to speak. Yeah. There's a different vibration coming in that, that I think is purposeful to try to help us overcome these sorts of things. I think so too. And I noticed in a conversation with Lee Harris recently that his group, the Z's, normally they, they're, they approach people in a gentle way. And that's kind of the edges coming out now, which is, you know what? Time to get real. And mm. so even they are starting to speak a little bit more directly to humanity. And I, same thing with my guides and yours and everybody else's. It's time to get real now. You yeah. have some issues here. You have to start dealing with them. You can't sweep them under the rug any longer. Agreed. And I want to go back to the media piece because for our listeners to know how challenging and adverse that can be, particularly for the young people, there's a story in the book that one of my scientists used to travel to Thailand regularly for part of his own scientific research on religion and mysticism. Mm -hmm. He was speaking to some of the nuns at a monastery there, a convent. And those nuns had uh, young people come there for Mm -hmm. generations and generations and generations to do deep retreats. Mm -hmm. A couple of weeks, they were there at the convent. And that would lead them into a kind of an opening, a degree of self-realization that would then guide them forward in their lives. Mm -hmm. What the nuns noticed over the last couple of decades, as the media presence started to ramp up in the in Thailand, Mm -hmm. the capacity for the students to enter into these states diminished and diminished and diminished and diminished. Yes. The parents of kids, uh, people don't like hearing this, but I think we've reached a critical point. If we want to have an an ability for future generations to think clearly, these devices need to go. They have to go, except for research, maybe for schoolwork or whatever. They they have to go. I don't know any other way. You can't do halfway when you have an addictive pattern Mm -hmm. that is reprogramming the brain. You want more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And as the nuns notice, the capacity for organic functioning lowers and lowers and lowers. And thank Mm -hmm. you for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. And that comes to another one. And this is, uh, Thomas Brophy, physicist again, <laughs> yeah. talking about the collapse of the wave, the wave function, which means determined outcomes. So now that's getting into the world of quantum science and, you know, mm-hmm. waves and particles and consciousness and everything working together and yeah. ob- observer effect and so forth. But let's riffing on what we just talked mm-hmm. about, extend that into when the wave collapses, you have an outcome, which these are called choices. Mm-hmm. Choice points. Yeah. How do you make choices with a muddled, unclear, programmed mind? How is it possible to have even a successful collapse of wave function into a good outcome? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't mean to be pessimistic here. I'm just saying we've got an issue we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. I'll answer that by saying getting back to doing our best as we can to listen to that internal voice, that internal wisdom. Because in the book, Thomas shares a story where he was struggling with this exact issue for part of his scientific research because he had more mystical, psychic experience as a child that led him into science. But he was still struggling with this idea about energy conversation and the waveform and the particle and so forth. He didn't know how to resolve it. Uh-huh. And he was sitting in his office in Tokyo. He had been invited as part of a scholarship fellowship to do some physics work there. And he saw a crow land on a branch. And it was one of those moments 
He'd seen a crow land on a branch hundreds of times before, but something clicked for him and it gave him the answer he needed. And for him, it had to do with the difference of a biological living system, how it could manage energy in these contexts versus just a pure physics system. And that really resolved it for him. That was an insight that he was able to have and then move forward. Mm -hmm. And if I may add, he had a very interesting experience as a child. There were several in the book who were very psychic as children. Yes. He, as well as another scientist, went up to the parents, in this case, Thomas, to his father and said, Dad, I can read your thoughts. His father said, no, you can't. So Thomas proceeded to read his thoughts. Bam, 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 bam. Perfect. And his father said, that's impossible. And Thomas said, I just did it. And then his father said, physics has proved, science has proved that's not possible. Oh, my God. So that's an example of the, the materialism side of science closing our minds to the reality of what is in front of us in our perception. And how has that been happening for centuries? When it's right in front of you, you have proof. And you say, nope, (laughs) turn a blind eye. That's a hypnosis. That is a hypnosis. And our world is in a trance, in mass hypnosis, particularly not so much in indigenous areas where people Mm -hmm. are still a bit secluded and away from electronics and media and so forth. But in the modern world where anyone has access to media now, media is not... um, as clean as it used to be. And, I, and I'm not saying, for example, when I was a kid and you'd watch the news, mm-hmm. you had the old guys there giving the news and it was not editorialized. Now, you always had sponsors. You always had people behind the scenes. You always had people at the top deciding the nature of the story. But by and large, you could kind of get what happened in a day without editorializing. Mm-hmm. You can't get that now. That's not possible. You chose your station because of its editorial position. So you're already now siloed. Yes. So it starts very innocently where we think we're watching like CNN, MSNBC, Fox. Already you're in a silo by turning the TV on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Close-mindedness. Close-mindedness. Fundamentalism. Fundamentalism. These are all accurate words for when we consume and take those positions. So let's, yeah, go ahead. Well, just just the question, and you've raised it several times, how how does an individual get out of that? Because we've humanity's been in it for centuries, we could say, the vast, at least Western oh, humanity. We as individuals have been in it, and sometimes we pop out. The, the scientists in the book, they've had, they popped out for various reasons. Many others have been popping out. But people who are really deep in it, how do they get out? And uh, I just guess spreading the word and... Hopefully these higher vibrations start to loosen things up for people's Well, I think that's where love comes in. Love, because yeah. if you do go mm-hmm. into some of these these little practices of thinking of someone you love today, thinking how much you love your little kitty, it doesn't matter who or what it mm-hmm. is, how much you love just making an apple pie for a friend. These vibrations of love do start lifting you to a higher frequency mm-hmm. than the data that's coming in but it's proportionately it's still out of balance you have to spend more time in fostering feelings of care and love for one another and fewer hours on media to be able to shift that balance to where you can have more clear communication with self Mm -hmm. higher self and then make thus clearer decisions so i think you you can't anyone can do it it's a commitment to that Well, may I add and speak about gratitude for a moment? Yes. You mentioned that earlier. 
uh, some years ago at UC San Diego, and this was in collaboration with the Chopra Foundation mm-hmm. and Deepak Chopra. We did several studies on gratitude, mm-hmm. and these were uh, both cross-sectional studies and more the gold standard randomized control studies where we had mainly cardiac patients keep gratitude journals, and others we randomized to treatment as usual. Yeah. Those who kept a gratitude journal for two months only, <laughs> writing down most days of the week, a few things they were grateful for, had such transformations, not only in their mind, not only did they have a bit less depression and more gratitude and they slept better, but their hearts started working better. These were cardiac patients. Absolutely. And they had reductions in a handful of inflammatory biomarkers in their <laughs> blood, including biomarkers specifically for the functioning of the heart itself. So this was powerful, and this works because, as we said earlier, gratitude, I look at it as a kind of a soul attribute. It's a soul inheritance that we just need to look at and start using it, and then it it starts to give us gifts. And one of those gifts is it helps to overcome egotism. It helps to overcome separation, Mm -hmm. the illusion of separation that you and I are different, Mm -hmm. and it begins to activate love. And appreciation. Which is radiant health as well. <laughs> yeah. As a booster. <laughs> Let's Love do, that. We're going to talk about something fun here for a minute. We'll, yeah. we'll go into Tiffany's story about the Ouija board. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that. Right now? Yeah, let's talk about okay. it. Why not? I put it in here so okay. we can have some fun with it. And yes. So Tiffany, your dear <laughs> Tiffany, who I've interviewed several times. Yeah. Well, Tiff, as a young person, had all the clairs, as you know, and she's spoken about that. Yeah. Her her mother was acutely aware of this. She had a reputation about that having that openness and having information to share with people coming in and out of the house. Yeah. Her mother was interested for some time in the Ouija board, and they would sit down with her friends would come over and they'd play the Ouija board. And at one point, Tiffy, Tiffany walked into the room when the adults were playing it, and they were just about to proceed with finding answer to a certain question. And the Ouija board did not provide an answer to the question that the adults had posed. Instead, the Ouija board did its, the people did its thing. And it basically spelled out, do not let Tiffany work with the Ouija board. <laughs> yes. She's way too open. Yeah, I understand that. And that was why. Yeah, that's, I love that little story because this is another thing. I mean, we are quite credulous when we're young. And if Mm. you're really open on top of it, you can be led down some interesting paths that you might not want to go. So we need to have the discernment again of what we play with metaphysically. I mean, Mm. for me, the Ouija board was something I came, I ran into when I was quite a bit older. I was in my early thirties. And so I played with it and the little planquette just took off. It just took off. It was like, and I could hardly hang on to it. It would kind of skip out of my fingers. But what it said right off the bat was, go get a pencil. (laughs) I thought, thank you. This is like out of control. So I got, and and anyone who's read my book knows about that little story about starting to connect. But so I went and got a pencil and then I thought, okay, what? And they said, just get some paper. And so I was, I would like this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to participate. I'll let my hand participate. Mm. And this amazing thing started happening with my hand. The images mm. were perfect right over each other. Perfect. Whatever it was. And that led to automatic typing. And then pretty soon it leads to. So for me, mm. it was actually an entry point into mm. developing my intuitive connection. Beautiful. And so, but I was older. I had a little bit of discernment. I was given. I wasn't given bum advice. There were, were no weird entities. Advice. 
Yeah, I was given good advice, but that's not true for everyone. And be careful. I've seen people play at the Ouija board and have different results. And then it scares the bejesus because you've just gotten some random entity that's going to play its game now. Yeah. So that's, that's nice that she was protected. She was protected from that. And you write about Robert Frost, the poet, and he, Mm. his whole notion was to awaken as using art and poetry as a means of awakening into that part of ourselves. So let's talk about that for a bit. Yeah. And I'll add, uh, Matthew Fox, who, who I wrote about in his yes. book, his creation, spirituality and, uh, and others. That, that's often those who become more awake to, let's say, our human inheritance as spiritual beings living here on the earth. They always seem to get to that point. Art, poetry, creativity. creativity. The, these are the gates. When we start to attend to those as activities and disciplines, even then our inner selves can begin to unfold into our own lives and then in the lives of others. And certainly for, for, for people like Frost and others into society at large, then we begin to benefit from this beautiful insights and the knowledge that emerges. We are all just incredibly beautiful, mystical beings, each with gifts to share with each other and the world. And as you were saying earlier, it's, it's, it's time where we just need to say this is true and start taking those steps forward and avoiding the things that are derailing us by distractions, doubts, Seek out supportive communities and systems for you with discernment. And don't buy into the old industrialized institutional way this earth is, has been and continues to be conducting business. Just don't buy into it, which is number one. Mm-hmm. I don't have time for that. I need to put in some more hours. I haven't met my financial goals and blah, blah, blah. Whatever we do as humans, mm-hmm. we set aside the finer things like writing a little poem or maybe mm-hmm. drawing a picture or using our creative processes for whatever, cooking even, mm-hmm. whatever it is, to engage in the dreamy process of creation is opening us up into higher realms once again. So the dreamy side, again, in the book, I write a lot about Owen Barfield's uh, writings about imagination and yes. others. Imagination, any spiritual tradition understands imagination as a spiritual gift. Again, let's say Absolutely. from the soul as part of our higher mind. Historically, and I was raised, so that's just your imagination. We discount it. Yes, start using your imagination more. It, Absolutely. It's a gift. It'll, it'll get you to where you want to go. Have faith in it. And that is not time wasted. Whatever it is you're trying mm-hmm. to do with your imagination, do it. Mm-hmm. Take the time to do it. Yeah. And Barbara McClintock, before we finish up, we're, we're about out of time. Uh, Barbara McClintock, she won her Nobel in physiology. Mm-hmm. And she said, if you know that you're on the right track, do not let other people dissuade you and turn you away from your own knowingness inside. Mm-hmm. And this is what you've said many times today. I have. And that's part of the structure of the book. I follow Joseph Campbell's monomyth. And there's always a stage in the monomyth. And if I may summarize, the monomyth begins with somebody having a spiritual call to do something. And we've spoken about that today. An intuition, something pops up, follow it. And then if you do, what's going to happen in the next stage of the monomyth is a mentor will show up. Mm-hmm. They will be there to help guide you. The next step is the adversary. And that's what that has to do with. Don't listen to the adversary who says, 
Oh, don't go down that path. Go back to your normal self. Go back to your conditioned reality. Go back to what you know and is comfortable. And uncomfortable. Yeah. Don't do it. Proceed to the next step, step which is basically finding your gifts and bringing them back to the world to share. We could end on that note, but do you have anything else you'd like to say? <laughs> that is a good <laughs> Before note Before we to say share. goodbye, I love Find it. Find your gifts, share them with love with everyone else. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been a delightful discussion. I really, I really appreciate our time together here. Thank you, Regina. My pleasure. Again, the title of Paul's book is Science Being and Becoming the Spiritual Lives of Scientists. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. That was the way that it got recorded was a little Yes. A little bumpy. <laughs> yeah. I think we got it though. They had a wonderful conversation to talk about. Yeah. So, Rama, how about we do George Nury? Yeah. Spiritual Awakening and Archangels. This one is titled Our Individual Spiritual Awakening May Be Sparked by Crises. Channeler and spiritual medium Sheila Gillette reveals her personal journey, sharing her near-death experience and, in fit and visitation from Yeshu in 1969. This experience awakened her channeling ability as the voice of 12 archangels, known as the Theo Group. With, with Gillette as the channel... Pardon? I've heard of them. Uh-huh. Uh, George Nury asks Theo poignant questions about human suffering, the nature of existence in our chaotic human society, and the human shift of consciousness to the fifth dimension for the highest good of all. Sheila Gillette is the author of books including The Fifth Dimension, Channels uh, to a New Reality. She has appeared in many interviews on Gaia, including in the original Gaia series, <clears throat> Channeling a Bridge to the Beyond. Okay. Did you find that, Rama? Mm. Okay. This is 39 minutes, and so here we go. I had a near-death experience in 1969 after the birth of a child. There was this bright light, and I saw movement at the end of my bed, and when I looked, Jesus was standing at the end of my bed. Oh, my. Not a hallucination. Do we all enter the fifth dimension at some time? We're all in it now. They identify as CEO as a group 
and their teachers and overseers. They will answer you directly. You can ask Theo the question. Anything I want. Anything you want. It is the beginning, is it not? Well, welcome to Beyond Belief. You will be glued to your television with this program. Sheila Gillette with us, best-selling author and channeler for 12 archangels known collectively as a group as Theo. Her work has supported millions of people all around the world in their spiritual journeys. Sheila, welcome to the program. George, it's so nice to be here and be with you to all your listeners and watchers. How old were you when you started the channeling of Archangels? I was 24. What happened? What was the episode? I had a near-death experience in 1969 after the birth of a child. And I had pulmonary embolus. Oh, my gosh. And both my lungs were non-functional. On the, on the, on the birth table, you, this all happened? No, it happened after the birth. Oh, my God. And so what pulmonary embolus is, it are blood clots that go into your lungs and break the blood vessels in your lungs. You and can you drown. die from that. You die from that. So I felt both my lungs were full of fluid. And I felt as if I had an elephant sitting on my chest. I couldn't breathe. And my family was being prepared for my death in that day. And so I was in intensive care. And I had two little kids at home and I had a brand new baby. And I said, hey, God, give me a job. I'll do anything. Please, God. Yes. And I wanted to be on the planet for my children. And I just, that was my mantra. And the nurses would come in and say, you have to go to sleep. But if I knew I would close my eyes, I would never open them again. Were you scared to go to sleep? I was fighting really hard to stay alive. I don't blame you. And so in a moment, the room, the little cubicle and intensive care became extremely bright as if the sun had risen in the room Mm -hmm. itself and I saw movement at the end of my bed and when I looked Jesus was standing at the end of my bed oh my not a hallucination no it was people call them apparitions sure but he was standing at the end of my bed and he had a like a cloak on with big open sleeves. But I was mesmerized by his eyes. He had the most beautiful hazel eyes. And I thought a funny thought that I had was his hair was about this length. Yeah. And I thought all the pictures that I had seen were blonde eyed our blue-eyed blonde Jesuses and church statues and course, things yeah. like that. Yeah. And then I would see the auburn hair ones as well. But it was his hair was auburn. Did he have a halo? No, but it, yeah. there was this bright light. Yeah. And Which was bright enough. Yeah, it was bright enough. But it, the presence and his eyes were so kind. And then he took his arms and he went like this under the sleeves. 
And when he did that, I heard in my inner mind hearing as we hear our own thoughts, not externally as you're hearing me. Right. I heard a male voice, distinct male voice say to me, remember my child, you are loved. And at that point, I felt as if my crown had opened up and I, I liken it to warm honey being poured in because this warmth started seeping down inside my body. I could feel this enormous warmth. And as it went through the trunk of my body, I felt as if I could take a deep breath. And it could have happened in hours or moments. It's as fresh to me in my mind as when it happened. After this apparition occurred, mm-hmm. when was the connection with the archangels? I was in the hospital then and started getting better. My my doctors were amazed. And I was in the hospital for a month. And about six months after I was out of the hospital, I started having all kinds of psychic phenomena happening to me internally, externally. I see. I could hear messages as I heard Jesus' voice in the hospital that day. And I had phenomena happening. I had my bed levitate in the middle of the night one night. And if spirit or the angels wanted to talk to me, the chair in which I would be sitting would physically be shaking and moving. So I had feel it. Oh, absolutely. It was very visible, too. And then I could do automatic writing where if I held the pen, it would write messages. And I could do um, telekinesis where you could move objects with your mind. Right, right. And so I did that because I was experimenting with all this to make sure you know, make sure that this was a real thing. Well, you can think 1969, think back. So much was going on in the the world then. Oh, my gosh. But this isn't, these topics that you and I discuss weren't even topics that we would talk about openly. Some people would. It was very private. It was so private because there was so much fear. I didn't go into uh, social situations, for example, and say, guess what I can do, because people would have been afraid uh, afraid of me. And so this developed. I was invited to come and speak to scientists to be tested for my psychic ability. Which was getting better and better and better, I assume. Mm-hmm. It was. And But I was considered a direct voice trance medium. The word channeling wasn't even used then because I was laying down just like Edgar Casey. And, and Were you I would, alert? I, I would be totally not alert. I was not, you're you're in, in a trance state. state and this voice would speak through me. But over over time now, it's developed 
to today where I stand and they walk me and they speak and eyes open, but then eyes closed totally out. That what was good about that is that I was so analytical and curious and I wanted to be sure that the messages weren't being infiltrated by my consciousness, right. that it was that pure. You were inputting as opposed exactly. to... Exactly. But at that point, did you know you were dealing with angels? Yes. You did? Yes. Okay. I was told. Twelve. By them. Uh, the first spokesman was one called Orlos and said that, it, I'm going to say he, for lack of a better terminology was there to prepare my body for higher teachers because it's such an energetic exchange. They had a plan for you. They did. They probably still do. Yeah. I want want you to look at a clip from Gaia's program, Initiation. Mateus de Stefano talks about the fifth dimension. After we see this, explain to us why that fifth dimension is so important. Okay. The fifth dimension is born in the same moment that the first dimension was born. The first dimension was born from the idea that this being has about itself. But this idea has love to be expressed, has wisdom to understand who it is, who it was, and who it will be, and has will to move and create. And also have this idea of living a process of four statements that we call in the whole role like uh, evolution. And once you accomplish the evolution of every stages of the universe, you are a co-creator. You are able to become not only a creation, but also a creator itself. The fifth dimension is the one where the wise ones, those who has accomplished the experience of the third dimension, can watch the, the expression, can watch the whole process of the fourth dimension and understand why, what's the purpose of it. That's why there's a lot of people that say that in the fifth dimension we have the masters, the guides, the people and beings who are heading us in our mission, who are leading us in our purpose on, on life, and are those who who speak to our ears and says what is good, what is bad, where to go, where not to go, what to do, what not to do. Those people that hear themselves in the fifth dimension are the ones that channel the information from the whole are the ones that have the whole picture. Fifth dimension is related to the third one because fifth dimension is the one that helps us to understand the process we live in the third and the fourth dimension. That's why the beings in the fifth dimension guide us in the third dimension. And as we do our lives and as we express our realities in the third dimension, as human beings, our plants, or as animals, minerals, whatever, in the third dimension, 
we help the people from fifth dimension to understand their their selves through that experience. So we used to believe that beings in the fourth, fifth, sixth dimension are people or beings that are more evolved than we are. But it's not like that. Sheila, explain to us what the fifth dimension is. Well, I agree with him. Um, my first book was called Fifth Dimension, uh-huh. Channels to a New Reality. And what Theo spoke to us about is that this time we're living in right now, we're fully, all of us, experiencing the fifth dimension. And the fifth dimension is a realization of the masters that we are. The third is our physical reality. The fourth is our spiritual awakening. And the fifth is the fuller expression in and through us of this consciousness of the fifth dimension. Do we all enter the fifth dimension at some time? We're all in it now. Ongoing. It's it's vibrational frequencies. One could call it enlightenment. The fifth, Theo says there's 12 dimensions about the earth. The fifth and sixth will be expressed and experienced in our human experience, our physical experience, and the others we're in contact with as the teaching realms. So I agree with what he had said that there are beings such as Theo, the archangels, that are here to teach and assist us evolve in our consciousness. And this is a time of this consciousness evolution that they said has never happened on this planet before. Now, is Theo an umbrella for all the archangels? Is an umbrella or a spokesman for 12? 12 of them. Mm -hmm. Now, how do we know at any particular time which is which? Or does it matter? Well, they say it doesn't matter. They will not identify singularly. They identify as Theo, as a group. But we've noticed over time in listening to recordings, you can tell a little bit of a difference who the spokesman is, but they want to identify who, that they say the message is is what is of import, and that the messenger, there would be too much attention paid to the messenger and not the message. When you channel, how do you begin? Because I'm going to have you do that in just a moment, but... Tell us the process. Well, what I do is I just close my eyes. I take a couple of deep breaths to center myself. And then I invite Theo to come in. And they've always come in the right side of my body. All 12 of them. Well, the spokesman does. But their energy of the 12 is there. That's why I say... My body is constantly adjusting to their higher frequency. Are these the archangels, Sheila, that we have always known of? Gabriel, Michael, people like that, angels like that? Yes, angels. They are. Okay. And they're teachers and overseers that are here to, to assist us in our recognizing the masters that we are. And, and in the channeling... Do I ask your physical body the question, they hear it, and they answer it through you? They will answer you directly. You okay. ask them. You can ask Theo the question. Anything I want. Anything you want. 
Now, when we're done with the questioning, how do I get you back? You just say, Theo, I'm finished with my questions. And they'll give a salutation to you. Okay. And then they'll leave and I'll be back. All right. Let's let's try. Let's get you into the mode. And how do I know when to start? They will say you may begin. Okay. And they'll come in and, and say this is the beginning, is it not? And that's how it always starts. And then then they'll say there's one who wish, wishes to ask questions or there's an asking and they'll say you may begin. And this is not harmful to you in any way? No, they've been working with me. They've... Um, for like I say, 50 years. That's a long and so time. it's become comfortable. And you're only 35. How did this happen? <laughs> I know. I love it. Okay, let's begin. All right, here we go. Do what you do. All right, here we go. It is the beginning, is it not? May I begin to question you, Theo? You may ask, yes. Theo, we seem to be at a time in our life on planet Earth where everything is going wrong with people. We've had a epidemic of a disease called COVID-19. We have armed conflicts in Europe. Everything seems to be upside down for people. How does our future look? We see it as very positive. We've been speaking about this time for five decades. It is now the full fifth dimensionary energy that is about the planet, which is a magnificent shift of consciousness for the human species and all species on your planet. And this is bringing about what one would call a new world collaborative world for the highest good of all. So the old structures and foundations that have been known do not work. And that is completing, dissolving, if you would. So the political structures are changing dramatically. The economic structure, which is global, will be changed in the betterment of all. And then there is, as you've seen, the pandemic, as it were, has shown you that you're all connected. It did not discriminate between you as you do between others. It was an equal opportunity for all to then be caring, most importantly, of each other. And this is a time of great change that is a positive. And out of this chaos will come order by the people of the world. So that's a good thing. It is a good thing. Many people talk about end times, apocalypse. Are we in those end times now? It's an end time of what has been known, the foundations that are Dissolving, but there are many good things being born out of this time. New industry, new recognition of how to care for the world. You witnessed in the pandemic, did you not, that when people would stop doing what they were doing, the planet would heal itself. 
And it happened immediately, did it not? So these are the ways of the world that will change new industry that is better for the planet, new consciousness that is better for the planet, new collaborations amongst the artisans and the sciences that bring about the highest good and order for all species upon this planet. You are not competitive species, you are collaborative. But there are those who have been competitive that wish to rule others, and that won't work anymore. Dale, why do you channel? We've come here to be teachers in this evolution that is happening and to allow others to become aware how how magnificent you are. If you could see ourselves as we see you, there would be no discontent and you would treat each other with love, not harm and judgment. Do you know those angels that have been called the fallen angels? We see no fallen angels. That's a concept that humans have made out of their good and bad thinking. So we didn't have Satan at the time? That's an imagination of people doing bad things, isn't it? So there had to be a name given it. And unfortunately, it has been given to one of our own. Who is still with you? Yes. You call him Lucifer, but he is a very light angel, not a fallen angel. Satan is the evil you see in the world, the dichotomy of good and bad and evil have been man-made thoughts. God is not a punishing God. It is a solid state of unconditional love and would not send those who would harm, only to enlighten. Have you met God? Yes. What is God? Solid state of unconditional love. It is not one who sits on a mountain with white hair and a long beard demanding one be smitten or one be saved. It is not that. You all have the power of God, the creator that is you. You are made in that likeness. It is the beliefs of not being bad that has harmed you. Why is there so much evil on this planet? And there is evil. That is coming from beliefs of not being good enough. But Unworthy. Why? why do children go and shoot up other children in schools? Why do we have so much hatred? Because they've experienced hatred by those who they've come to think of as loving to them and have not been. Hurting people hurt and hurt others. Is there a way out for us? Of course, that's what we're talking about. If each and every one of you would do soul integration, integrate the fragmented aspects of your soul that have been harmed in other times and other experiences and loving them, the higher self, the whole self of you, giving them love, 
unconditionally and changing, rewriting the script of your beliefs of not being worthy or good enough. In giving the self that love, you would be able to give it to others. Theo, how do we get Sheila back for more questions? In the asking, it is given. You are complete with your question in this moment. I may uh, summon you back later on, can I? And you're asking it would be given, yes. Thank you. Good day. Good day. Sheila, are you back yet? Yes. Now, while that was going on, that conversation with Theo, did you recollect any of it? Did you hear what's going on? I hear what's going on. I don't retain all the words. I asked him about Lucifer. Mm-hmm. I asked him about the apocalypse. I asked him about other world events and things like that. It's pretty fascinating. It is. It's pure love, too, isn't it? It is. Very much so. Have they ever not been there for you? Once. What happened? I had a client, a private client, that at the time I was seeing people privately and they would come to my office or to my home. And this gentleman came for his appointment. And this has only happened this one time. And he came in, he sat down, I sat down as we did today, and I invited Theo to come in. And Theo came in and said to this gentleman, you are not willing to hear the truth, and left. And left? And they left. And so I came out of the trance state, and here's this gentleman looking at me like you are, And I didn't know what to say or do. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, Theo told me I'm not willing to hear the truth. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yes. And they're absolutely right. They were right. And they wanted nothing. And he agreed. And he said, I almost canceled my appointment because I was afraid of what I was going to hear. And he was perfectly fine with it. But I was mortified at first because I thought, now what am I going to do? I have no control over it. Have they ever brought to you, you talked about Jesus earlier, Mm -hmm. but have they ever brought to you the God figure? I think it's all around us. So I feel in their presence, um, every time they work with me, I, I am imbued by that energy through them. And I pick up vibes from you of pure love. I, I don't think you have an angry bone in your body. You're a human being. How are you able to accomplish that? Oh, I get angry. Do you? Mm-hmm. I do. I wish I was that great. Thank you, George, for for saying that. You don't that. show it. <laughs> oh, I have my moments just like everybody else. We'll talk to your husband. He'll tell us yeah, the truth. He, right? he'll, he'll say I'm pretty human. <laughs> what have you learned from this experience for yourself? Oh, gosh, Um, I wouldn't be the person I am today had I not had this experience and and not had the teachers that I have. Um, I'm a student of them, just like everybody who hears them. And they brought forth a, a process, a soul integrational process, which allows us to 
let go of limiting beliefs, of changing the beliefs, the patterns of belief that keep bringing negative experiences to us. And so I've been a student of that as well. So to answer your question, how can I be who I am today is being that student and really applying applying that information in my life. How often do you channel them? Every day. For yourself or for the good of humanity? For myself and for others. Clients? Mm-hmm. And we do a lot of teaching now, mentoring programs. And we do a lot of internet mentoring programs. And so we have a global, a global group, a global family, I call them. And, um, and we have a certification program in the soul integrational process that that now there are other people in the world that are out assisting people to come into that state of self love. Generally, do your clients channel Theo through you like we just did? Yes. What do they want to know? Do, oh, do they get involved in their personal life, their oh, finances, yes. their relationships? Everything. They'll ask all that. Yeah. And will the angels supply that kind of information? Yes. Too? And they say no question is unimportant. If we have a question in our mind and heart, when that becomes satisfied, we're ready to ask the bigger, deeper, broader, however we want to talk about it, questions. Do they get involved in our direct life? With any kind of influence, can they manipulate and change things? They always say in the asking, it is given. That they're not there to usurp our free will. But if we ask their assistance, ask them for help. And that's true for all of us who have angels and guides. They're waiting to be asked. So every day I ask Theo to assist my life that day. Let me ask them a few more questions, if you could get back into that mode for us. I sure will. I'd be happy to. Go ahead. Okay, here we go. It is the beginning, is it now? It is, Theo. Welcome back. We appreciate the opportunity to be of service unto you. Would you consider being on a national radio show one day to get the word out to millions of people? We would in the asking, yes. Did you ever have a life as a human? No. You were simply what from the beginning? We were archangels as messengers of what you call God or that solid state of unconditional love. Is Michael with you? Michael is with us as with you. Can I talk to him individually or whom who am I talking to now? You are talking to Theo, the collective group as the archangels we are. Are all 12 of you inputting as you speak? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. I had heard years ago that Michael was always there on the battlefield of soldiers to help them. Is that true? That's a human vision. Yes. But did it ever happen? Yes, because he's the overseer of that legion of angels that are there to assist 
Why, when people pray, do sometimes angels assist them and sometimes they don't? They always assist them, but they may not get what they want. It may not be in the highest good of their soul. And the soul has control, not the personality. Why does God allow bad things to happen? It's people that bad things happen. It's personality disorder. It's human activity. God is a loving God. But you have the power. That's what we're here to let you know. Each and every one of you have a convenient excuse that God did this or that to you. Nothing happens to you. It happens through you. Life happens through you and for you, not to you. Life is a gift. There are billions of souls that would like to have a human body. You won the lottery. You got one. And so what you do with that is of great importance, particularly now in this shift of consciousness. And what you are doing in informing people of the power within is a purposeful gift you give them. Do you sometimes wish you were in a human body? No, we like what we do. It's a great thing, though. You could have a great time. We have the opportunity of having that through you and with you. Wouldn't you like to eat a hot dog? We don't eat. That's my sense of humor. Yes. Did you catch it? We did. Did you appreciate it? That was ours as well. We don't eat. Do you laugh? We think things are very humorous, but most think we are very serious. Do you cry? We have sadness, yes. What makes you sad? Sometimes what humans do. It's a strange being that we are. We find you oftentimes humorous. For you keep doing the same things over and over again and And in that, having similar results until you change your thinking. And that's what we're here to impress upon you to change. Theo, thank you for spending some time with us today. We are appreciative of the opportunity to serve. May we have Sheila back. God's love unto you. Good day. Thank you. Sheila, I asked Theo some pretty profound questions, and they answered me directly. They do. Without any hesitation. I found that to be true now for the five decades I've worked with them. Let's talk about the documentary Tuning In on Our Gaia and talk about channeling and see what they experienced to see if it echoes what you went through. Okay. All right. Greetings, dear one. Yes, hello, dear. May the peace of the great spirit be with you always. So let us begin with with the discussion. The first time I ever talked to Tobias was uh, on an airplane in 1997, and I wasn't particularly spiritual or metaphysical. Um, I was in the business world at the time, and Tobias came in on this plane flight and started talking and. And uh, hasn't stopped since. But uh, 
initially, it was just me talking to Tobias. I hadn't even told Linda about it. And how long did it take you before you um, broke it to Linda? That this it, was about a, it was about a year. So you kept it yourself for a year? Yeah. I received what felt like, what I experienced to be a telepathic contact from Bashar and his people. In that moment of the telepathic contact, a memory actually came back of having made an agreement somewhere prior to this life to do this. I grew up in a Roman Catholic family of Sicilian immigrants. Most of them, even today, after I've been channeling Joseph for 15 years, don't know what I do. They have some idea because I don't talk about it to them and they don't ask me. They know I do something weird. I was very lucky. I had a lot of support. Um, my friends were very accepting. And that's one thing that I've always been really open about. I didn't really hide it, um, even from employers, you know. And I, I've i always felt it was really important for me to be honest about that because I saw how it impacted people. I started in a class where we were really studying making a trans bridge a uh, an interpsychic bridge to other sources of intelligence and so it started in the context of that class see i thought that all of these esoteric things were for uh, older women over 40 uh, and it would have nothing to do with men so i was dragged to these two guys who channeled for me and there was something this was uh, three years apart they both told me the same thing and that is when I had to start looking at how could guys 20 years apart in age, three years apart in ID who never knew each other, give me information that was identical. And the information just happened to be that there was a master named Cryon who I was supposed to get a hold of. Sheila, what would you like to tell the many people who are watching you right now? You've got a platform. Well, what I'd like to tell people is you are more than you think you are and that you're better than you think you are. And getting in touch on the inner with that wisdom that each and every one has, that that's what we're here for now in this fifth dimension. That's what we're here for now in this consciousness shift. And if we all gain that inner love, it's an inside out job. Sure. We can let go of those limiting beliefs. We can have peace on our planet. How do people get a hold of you? They can check out our website at asktheo.com. T-H-E-O. Yes. They're remarkable individuals, angels. And uh, they've been there when I needed help, too. I'm sure they have. They don't turn their backs, do they? No. Nope. They just are constant in are the you, message and the love. Are you happy for our future? I am. I'm optimistic. I know there's all this chaos going on, but I, it never I trust. Stops. That's living, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess so. But I think as we evolve in our conscious state and in our self-love, it will change the world. It truly will. Sheila, thanks for being on the program. And thanks to Theo for being on the program. It's been my pleasure and it's great meeting you. Fascinating. It is the first time I have ever interviewed Archangels, and I'll never forget it. I'm George Norrie. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief.
we are delighted <clears throat> with what's coming through. Uh, and it's a reflection of the evolution of our consciousness, I believe, indeed. Mm-hmm. So, this, what a, what a wonderful experience. Uh, this one here is called Oracles of the Occult. How are revolutionary movements linked with humanity's potential for channeling? From the prophetic oracles of Delphi to Renaissance spy John Dee, experts share how different figures spearheaded movements that have shaped our understanding of the channeling phenomena. Map the course of occult history through revolutionary movements that reopened doorways to mediumship, scrying, angelic communications, and spiritualism. Mm. And I think we're ready. We'll uh, recognize a number of these people. It's a group. That I'll be sharing, and this is 26 minutes, and so we shall begin. humanity through the dark times. There are legendary tales from ancient Greece of the mystical oracles at Delphi. Through the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, the word oracle was embedded deeply into the category of a cult and became a label instead of a gift. An oracle is basically an interpretation of the data that is out there. Through thousands of years, the people that were able to read reality and to see the reality in a, in a way that they can observe everything uh, before it happened, they became those people that could advise others and to receive the data and information from other levels. So they became themselves the interpreters of reality. Oracles are always giving countercultural information. If you think of some of the wild things that many of the oracles have been saying over the past, you know, even hundred years, uh, it's out there. It's wild, but It's part of the evolution. So a lot of times the oracles are on the front line of bringing forth this information. And then it takes a while to digest and metabolize. And all of a sudden, soon things seem normal that once weren't. And now that we understand that level of reality, then we can go further. But the oracles are always at the cutting edge of that. So it's a thrilling profession and it's a dangerous profession as well. The word oracle is really what was used in ancient Greece and ancient times 
The oracle means at least three things. The oracle is a location. It's a portal where the energies are able to come through more easily. The oracle is the person or the spirit that is transmitting that information. And the oracle is the message that is being transmitted. So there are three things wrapped up into that term oracle. In the West, the most famous oracle center was that of Delphi in Greece. There was an older center as well, known as the Oracle of Dodona. And there were oracles in Egypt and so forth. But somehow the Delphic Oracle has captured the imagination of humanity for a lot of different reasons. In the ancient Greek world, scholars, soldiers, statesmen would visit the Oracle at Delphi. And the physical experience of visiting the Oracle based on records that we have involved entering into a cavern where a female oracle would be seated on a kind of tripod above a crevice in the earth. And this crevice would emit some kind of vapor and the oracle would be imbibing these vapors, which facilitated a trance state and was said to be able to receive information from the gods. The oracle at Delphi is still kind of an interesting mystery because we know that these were seeresses, just like we have in the Norse tradition, where they would sit upon a raised platform, just like in the Norse tradition, interestingly enough. But the caves at Delphi have this interesting little gas, this volcanic gas that comes out. Now, of course, if you're swamped in this gas and you're completely inundated, it'll kill you. But if you are elevated above it and you're breathing it just slightly, It'll put you into an altered state of consciousness, an altered state of being, which will open you up to become a conduit to let this information flow through. Once a month, the oracle would be given. And so while it started out as being this local situation where people were breathing gases from a hole in the earth and starting to prophesy, they were starting to give all sorts of information But there was a little problem, apparently, in that they would tend to fall into the hole or fall off a cliff or something like that. So they tried to regulate this. That's when they started assigning women to this. There were different female figures seated atop the tripod in different eras because the Oracle of Delphi was operative for centuries. So through some sort of initiatory process, that we have only a vague idea of a figure named Pythia or Pythonus would be selected as the oracle during different generational periods and would be the figure who was seated atop this tripod receiving this extra physical or trance state information. So the individual personas are lost to history, but different women across different generations would function in the role of seer at Delphi. There was a woman named Themistoclea who was one of the Delphic Pythias, all right? That was their title. Pythagoras took all of his precepts from this woman. He would sit at her feet 
So if we think he's the father of geometry, no, Themistocleia and uh, was along with many of the other esoteric precepts that that he was all about, the Pythagoreans. There was an older oracle named Herophile who would stand on this particular rock at the site and she would deliver these oracles in verse. Can you imagine a kind of a rhyming, uh, cadenced verse? And there, there were others like this. We may or may not know the entire intricacies of the entire practice, like how they set up, how they dress, how they perform. But what interests me more is what's going on at the mental level, what's going on at the spiritual level. And so all of those accoutrements is nothing more than opening the veil, getting their mind tuned into those frequencies, which comes through their spiritual practice, their meditation, all of their devotional works before going into that right tunes them into the work that they're doing. So you loosen, you're open, you're connected. And ultimately, that's what they were doing at the Delphi Oracle. We also know is that the Oracle went through a different transition where the women were originally channeling the consciousness of Gaia herself, Mother Earth. And then there were different types of deities or entities that ended up coming in and taking over and being the intelligence that was delivered through these women until ultimately what we have is Apollo, the sun god. So this is a very detailed and intense history and process of what would go on with these women. It seems that they, the primary location where they would receive the information was in their wombs. And what this was understood to be was the spirit of the God coming into the womb. And the Christian writers were horrified about this. They would write, and and this was one of the ways in which they were trying to get rid of paganism and so forth, because they were saying, look at what's going on at Delphi, among other places. And in fact, these women would declare themselves the celibate wives, daughters, and sisters of Apollo. So it's very fascinating and mysterious when you start looking at this information. By the late 1500s, most of the oracle traditions were labeled witchcraft throughout England. Queen Elizabeth I was on the throne, and Shakespeare plays ruled the narrative. Several speculate that Her Majesty's Secret Service was full of mysterious personas. Some argue that Shakespeare was also deeply entrenched with this secret service and working closely with one of the Queen's main esoteric advisors, Dr. John Dee. Evidence is mounting that together, Dee and Shakespeare crafted an elaborate cryptographic masterpiece through sonnets and plays that was meant to be discovered once the Dark Ages had long passed. One of the most curious and underrepresented characters of the whole Renaissance is this character, Dr. John Dee, who was, one can safely say, the leading mathematician of the time, the leading astrologer, the leading cryptographer. He was a spy for Her Majesty on Her Majesty's Secret Service. His code number when he was spying for her in Europe was... 007, 
he's the person that is working with Shakespeare to bring this wonderful knowledge of unifying the poetry and the math, all balancing all the opposites so that you're back into unity consciousness. That's true alchemy. That's what Dee's goal was. He was dealing in the occult and he was dealing in trying to communicate with angels and you just don't do that 400 years ago. And yet he was under the radar trying to do that because he truly believed that he could bring about a reformation of the world. He felt all the schisms between Catholicism and Protestantism and Judaism and Islam and all the world's major religions connecting. They should be one. They should be this unity of the divine. And that was his true ultimate purpose. And he tried to bring about this healing through contact with higher beings. That was his, that was his means. He thought if I could just speak to the angels, I can help the world heal. Since he was not clairvoyant or clairaudient himself, he needed a medium, which in those days was called a scryer. So this guy shows up on his doorstep named Edward Kelly. And he's a good scryer. He immediately starts getting results. Looking into some sort of an obsidian mirror or a crystal ball. We don't know for sure what it was. He impresses D right away because he can see the angels. And so begins about a 10-year period where they are scrying to the angels. So D believes he's talking with Uriel, Gabriel, Michael and Raphael, four archangels. And from the work that I've been able to glean from the codes that he's left, it's absolutely clear that he was. Because they give codes that are utterly unfailing in their brilliance and their accuracy and their precision is mind-boggling. It's just so beautiful. And there's no other explanation than that this was given by divine Providence 2D through angelic beings. In the middle of their entire roller coaster ride of experimentation with talking to angels, something is downloaded 2D called the Enochian Tables. It's a grid of four quadrants that were given to John D, a massive, massive download in which Kelly is seeing. Flame 60 foot high with the letters and he'd name a letter and D would write it down and name another letter and write it down. They told him the absolute grid to put it into, 624 characters, you know, and it ends up being this massive thing that had then been co-opted through the, the centuries later by Alistair Crowley the Golden Dawn, Israel Riglardi, these names that are in the esoteric modern era, it totally takes D out of the picture. They step in and say, oh, D and Kelly didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. We'll take it from here, fellas. And they change it and they give you all kinds of added information and they turn the Enochian tables into little pyramids and colors. And it's completely different. There are different versions of the Enochian tables. Um, the 20th century magician Anton LaVey used a kind of reformed or adapted Enochian language and 
one of his books. And there are different permutations, just as there are different permutations of the Tree of Life's symbolism in Kabbalah. Throughout the Renaissance, occult practices remained deep underground. During the 1700s, the Revolutionary War raged in North America, and the French Revolution was in full swing. Those in tune with their extrasensory perceptions began gathering and enjoying their newfound freedom to share and express their healing gifts. Here in the United States, when we think of new religious movements, new trends and alternative spirituality, naturally, people think of California. But it was really New York State in the early days of the nation that served as a springboard for everything that was novel and fresh and experimental in religious movements. In particular, uh, there was an area in the early to mid-1800s in central New York State referred to as the Burned Over District, which became the birthplace of everything that was new in religious and social thought. Uh, this was a snaking stretch of land that was bordered by Buffalo in the west and Albany in the east, and it was opened up to land speculation after the War of Independence. And people flooded into the Burned Over District, and it became ground zero for new congregations, new movements. It was the birthplace of Mormonism, of Seventh-day Adventism, of spiritualism or talking to the dead, of suffragism, the women's rights movement. It gave birth to all kinds of mystical figures, mediums, channelers, many of whom really settled a central New York state and dispersed different religious ideas around the nation. There is a very powerful vortex connected to spirit in that area. And therefore, there are certain places on your planet that are more likely, more probable than other places because of those vortices for certain realizations and cognitions to be awakened in humanity. When you get enough individuals of similar intent, shall we say, congregating in some of those vortices, things can, in a positive way, explode. You can amplify and magnify that energy many times over within such a vortex. The Fox sisters are some of the most influential figures to emerge from the Burned Over District. Uh, Kate and Margaret Fox were two adolescent girls who lived in a small village outside of Rochester, New York, in central New York State. And in the winter of 1848, they told their shocked Methodist parents that the bangs and raps that were being heard in the family log cabin were spirit raps and that the girls had devised a kind of language to communicate with the spirit world, not much different than Kelly and John Dee. And in this case, they were consorting with spirits through uh, sound and noise that were heard throughout the family cabin. Uh, so different figures descended upon the cabin to investigate the girls, newspaper reporters, judges, preachers, and many of them came away concluding that Kate and Margaret were telling the truth. And thus was born the movement called spiritualism or talking to the dead. The adjoining area of the Hudson Valley was also home to a lot of people who were engaged in spiritualism, channeling, mediumship, talking to the dead. Inevitably, people who were interested in reaching larger audiences migrated 
out of the burned over district and might have traveled down the Hudson Valley to New York City. And one of the most influential group of seekers, a group that I'm personally very attached to, was called the Miracle Club. This was a small circle of spiritual seekers who assembled together in New York City in 1875. They were interested in probing mediumship, Kabbalah, reincarnation, different Eastern and Western esoteric traditions. And although they existed for only a short time, this became the nucleus that shortly after went on to found the Theosophical Society in the fall of 1875, which is an organization still existing today, dedicated to studying world religion in all of its variants. And it really ignited the revolution in alternative spirituality that swept the globe and continues to today. Christianity has had a powerful influence on humanity. Through the tales and messages woven through the New Testament, humans are taught lessons of love and unity, as well as loss and betrayal. But the question remains, how much did this religion influence humanity's ability to channel at the quantum level? Ages ago, humanity was actually more open to receiving spiritual communication. A lot more people than today were really open to their psychic abilities. They didn't just believe that there were spirits out in the wild, in the natural world, that their ancestors walked among them. It was a part of their daily life. It was a part of their existence, that they knew that the spirits were there. When you start learning about channeling, you will come across this idea that channeling experiences run in families. So we're really curious about if we could see this in the DNA, in the actual genetics. So we did a small pilot study where we vetted various psychics who were very high functioning. We had them go through many different hoops to test their actual psychic ability. And most of these had people with psychic abilities in their families. Then we got control people who were matched for age, gender, and race, who didn't have any psychic abilities, who performed very poorly on all the tests, and also didn't have any family members that they believed had these abilities as well. We got saliva samples from them and did a genetic analysis to look at the similarities and differences between them. We found something very unique. There was a difference between the two in a part of the DNA called the non-coding part. So this is used to be called the junk DNA, but now it's called non-coding because they know that it plays a pivotal role in DNA's function. So the version of this DNA that the psychics had was the original or what's called the wild type version of these genes, whereas the control group had a mutation. So that's really fascinating when you think about our premise that all humans innately have this capacity. It was this original version. So we took that one step further and looked at large genetic databases to see the expression of this um, genetic code. And we found that we looked at two pieces. One was the spread of Christianity, because we know that Christianity obviously persecuted people who expressed these traits. 
And we did find an association between the spread of Christianity and the mutation, meaning less psychic ability or no psychic ability. We also had this hypothesis that perhaps it would be associated with technology because as we become more dependent on technology for location and food sources, etc., that we wouldn't need to be able to tune in to know where the water is or where the herd of buffalo is, and it would not select for psychic ability. And that also had an association. So the countries that had increased technology had more expression of this mutation, so less uh, psychic abilities in essence. Christian practice that came in that their Bible talked about how mediumship, about how channeling, about connecting with spirits was an evil practice. People who were absolutely in tune with things, people who were natural healers, who had this ability, were brought to a near non-existence. And that would have affected our genetic line, that the people who had a natural proclivity or psychic ability for channeling were no longer in the gene pool. Now that those bonds of Orthodox Christianity are not as tight as they once were, people are starting to open their abilities. They're starting to come around more. And I'll bet you we're going to start seeing more and more of those genes in the whole genetic structure of the world starting to increase and grow even more because more people are becoming psychic today. More people are getting in tune and they're becoming aware. We're moving from the time where people are being attacked being an oracle into a time where they're being consulted. As more and more discover and tune their extra senses, what messages will be delivered to inspire and remind us about the power of unconditional love? If all beings love themselves unconditionally, they would have the capability of loving others. There would be no resistance or judgment. Judgment is just a projection from the individual judging. We often say to judge another's path is, is inappropriate for you know not what the soul's choice and expansion is to be by the learnings they're having from whatever they're choosing or deciding for on their path. Just because you would not choose it does not mean it's not right for their path. You are doing everything you can do by sharing information you believe to be helpful with others. What they do with that information, whether they use it or not, is absolutely none of your business because you don't know their path. You have to let go of any need that someone has to understand or listen or believe what it is you're sharing. Then it comes from the unconditional love. And then you actually make it more likely that they will probably choose it at some point. But even if it's 10 or 100 years from now or in other lives or other dimensions, eventually they'll remember what you taught, what you shared, and it may be useful to them somewhere down the road. They don't have to know it in this life. So we would always suggest that everyone let go of the idea that anyone needs to learn these things. Because again, remember, you don't change the planet you're on, you're shifting to other worlds. If you share information and give them the opportunity 
to choose something more positive, something that will allow them to shift to more positive versions of Earth. You have done everything that you can, and that's it. You cannot in any way, shape, or form insist that they must understand. That's not your business. Om Shiva. <laughs> All right. The next one we're going to explore is called Connecting Through the Quantum Field. Are channelers actually connecting with aspects of their higher selves? From quantum physics and cosmic entanglements, to the neuroscience behind what happens in the brain while channeling. The world's leading experts investigate these spiritual practices and compare experiences and explore the multidimensional nature of the infinite electromagnetic spectrum of which we are all a part to unfurl the paranormal mysteries of our unified universe. And that will be 28 minutes. Connecting through the quantum field. It was from Gaia. Okay. We're finding it. It takes a while. Maybe we should look for it ahead of time and you know where it's all at every time. Mm-hmm. There you go. Okay. All right. This is 28 minutes, everyone. Here we go. The 1920s are commonly referred to as the Roaring Twenties. During this legendary time, some of the greatest inventions and discoveries to help humanity unite became fringe theories. Game changers throughout history spoke of a substance around us called the ether and inspired great minds to study and invent ways to harness the energy of this mysterious quantum field or etheric net that surrounds us. As the roar echoes through this cycle of the 20s, our understanding of the invisible forces in this beautifully connected and conscious universe becomes more illuminated. But how do we connect through the quantum field? Resonance identification. Training to gain familiarity with a certain frequency that is representative of what you desire to make a connection to. 
and in becoming familiar with that frequency, allowing yourself to fall into the support of that energy so that you are not trying to maintain it. You are simply riding a wave, riding a frequency, a vibration of energy that is representative of the connection between us. This is the mechanism behind all forms of channeling or cognition through consciousness. I want to start with a really exciting study we did with trans channelers. So there were five trans channelers that we took to Mount Shasta, California, and we rented this beautiful house and we spent three days together. And in those three days, we had multiple different sessions with many different types of channeling. And it was really an exploratory study to see how channeling worked and to ask a variety of different research questions to the channelers in a channeling state to see what answers they gave. At times, we struggle with the human vessels. As you all know, we have multidimensional lanes of conversation that we can express between us at the same time. One of the things that they talked about when we asked about source was that the channeler and the supposed channel being were aspects of each other. And so this lines up with this concept that we're all interconnected and we're all one. And so even if it's perceived as a different personality per se, that when you step back and look at the big picture of the wholeness of all of reality, it is an aspect of the channeler. When we speak in terms of channelers or modern day prophets, we think in terms of whether they were able to see the future. But from a 21st century perspective, we may be able to dispense with terms like future in terms of how we understand past, present, future, and think more in terms of there being an infinitude of events that go outside of linear time, which is really what our primary interpretations of quantum physics, our models like string theory give us, that everything is happening all at once. So it may be that the clairvoyant is not gleaning the future so much as he or she is gleaning what's actually going on infinitely and all at once in the cosmos or the world around us. The universe is this great consciousness that we can all work with and work inside of. And you can think of our little consciousness that we have here as just permutations of that great universal consciousness. Now, with the universal consciousness everywhere all the time, the Akashic Records is its memory. Now, the thing that's cool about the memory of the universal consciousness is it doesn't know time or space. It's completely nonlinear. So you have access to the memory of the universe just by tuning into it. And that's an interesting way of using channeling. One of the most unexpected and radical discoveries of the early quantum physicists was something called non-locality, which means that to understand what they were discovering required the entire universe to exist and evolve as a unified entity with no limitations in space and time. And yet, we experience our universe as being founded on space and time. 
where within space and time, there is a cosmic speed limit. It's called the speed of light. So there was a huge debate going on between the quantum physicists and people like Albert Einstein as to who was right. And the answer is they were both right. Because if we go back to the very first moment of our universe, that I sometimes refer to as the first moment, not of the Big Bang, but of the Big Breath, a space began to expand. Time began to flow in one way only. And what that meant is our entire universe had this experience of evolution where one moment followed the next for 13.8 billion years. The fact is, we've known through Einstein's theories of relativity, for example, that time itself is conditional. Linear time itself is really a necessary illusion that we five sensory beings use to navigate our way through life, to get through life. We know from different interpretations of quantum mechanics that we very probably live in a reality where an infinitude of events are playing out constantly and they become localized only through perspective. But we know through different models of time, space, speed, that we are probably going to have to come to terms with some conception of interdimensionality to understand the things that we are observing in our world today. As a scientist on your planet might be prone to do, attempt to reduce everything to its simplest form. In other words, they are seeking the idea of a unified field theory by attempting to unite and connect how all of what appears to be multiple forces or effects are actually simply different expressions of one single effect, well, you have to include the idea of reducing time and space as well. So the full reduction of space is into a dimensionless point. The full reduction of time is into a timeless now. Therefore, everything that exists Everywhere, every when, no matter what you call past, present, or future, all exists simultaneously in that dimensionless space, in that timeless now, and therefore is easily accessible anywhere, any when, because every single location and every single time frame is simply another perspective of the same moment and the same place, just from a different point of view. But it makes sense to me that if we were all one at the Big Bang and we expanded out from there that we would still be connected somehow. And that interconnectedness or what I've called the Big C, which is kind of the fundamental nature of reality, when you hold that worldview, the phenomenon that we're experiencing totally makes sense. Not only am I personally experiencing this phenomenon, but I see it all around me. It's incredibly common. You know, all the surveys that we've done have shown that almost everybody has had at least one channeling experience. There's been surveys done all over the world showing very high percentages of people that have had these experiences. Many scientists have had periods of time which were so intense that they felt they were on the receiving of great, great insights and wisdom. Albert Einstein had his year of miracles. 
in, in 1905. Isaac Newton had his in 1666. Newton in that time came up with incredible ways of describing mathematically what he was discovering, but he made incredible um, discoveries around the nature of light and optics and gravity, of course. Um, Einstein, in his year of miracles, were realizing the relativity of space and time and connecting them together in absolute space-time. So both of them recognized that they were receiving this sort of higher vibrational wisdom. They were channeling it. Another powerful physicist that some believe was tapping into higher forms of information was Nikola Tesla. In the late 1800s, he created the basic system of radio. He went on to invent several ways to harness and transmit energy and shifted from employee to rival in Thomas Edison's growing energy empire. Both Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison were interested in this idea of invisible forces. What else is electricity? What else are x-rays? What else are radio waves? What else are wireless signals? And so both inventors believed that our world was suffused with invisible forces and energies, and these weren't limited to things that could be used to power a, a, a locomotive or send an electrical signal through a wire, but also had a psychical dimension. So both were very interested in the extra physical dimension of life. And Edison, uh, back in his days when he was part of the early Theosophical Society in New York City in the 1870s, disclosed to some members that he was attempting to create a device that could function as a kind of spiritual telegraph and used to communicate with the other side. Tesla, he was being guided. He was channeling, if you would, just as each and every one of you has a brilliance, significant gift that is unique to you alone. And that's what we're imploring you to do. The deeper we dive into the quantum world, the more it becomes clear. This universe is supremely sophisticated in design and structure. But there's one theory that may help us understand how cosmic connections work. I'm not a physicist, but I love learning about quantum physics and this whole concept of entanglement. So at the Big Bang, we were all interconnected and it expanded from there. And so at one point, we were all entangled with each other. And so now they have demonstrated repeatedly in laboratory environments the entanglement of photons, where you take two photons and entangle them, take one of them halfway across the world. When you move the spin of one, the other one spins in the same direction instantaneously. That's absolutely incredible. And they've done that with a variety of different things now, not just photons, with uh, things, larger molecules called buckyballs, and even with diamonds. So... If you take this concept of entanglement and take it to a macro scale, it leaves a lot more room for these phenomenon of channeling. 
quantum physics discovered that our universe can only exist and evolve as a non-locally unified entity. That means that on one side of the universe, something can happen that is synchronistically mirrored at the other side of the universe. It's sometimes called quantum entanglement. But the problem with that is it suggests that it only happens at a tiny scale of the quantum world. Whereas in 2018, a team at MIT actually were able to entangle photons of light in the laboratory with starlight coming from 600 light years away. And that entanglement, which means that they act as one, was triggered by the light from something called a quasar over 12 billion light years away. So what they're able to experimentally show is that such entanglement is the breadth of our universe. It's an innate phenomenon and attribute of our universe. That's why channeling works. That's why supernormal phenomena work. That's why all that we're talking about is natural phenomena. They're natural because our universe exists and evolves in this way. Basically, channeling is, is, is what they are discovering with this communication of one atom being able to transmit information to an atom in another star, in another solar system, in just less than a second. Because they are the same, they became the same. And even if they are in different planets, in different solar systems, different galaxies, they are entangled, they are connected. That's quantum uh, mechanics and, and all these things that, that scientists were trying to explain. So uh, we are also atoms. <laughs> we are made of atoms, particles. So we can also become someone else and receive a message from another solar system in less than a second. Theos has the quantum field is all around us. It's just like electricity. It's always been all around us, still is. And that it just took away light for electricity to harness that and to make it useful to us. And it works the same way all over the world. Turning on lights and computers and all that kind of thing. But it's not limited to that conduit in your house or business or wherever it is. It exists all the time. Well, the quantum field, the connectivity that we're talking about, we are just learning now how to be the conduit for that and tap into it. I think it's hard for the human mind to grasp that we can all be one and yet still feel very separate and unique and distinct. In the Mount Shasta study, they talked about the electromagnetic spectrum. So we know that that spectrum is very wide and has many, many different frequencies in it from visible light to infrared to ultraviolet, etc. 
But when you think about that spectrum, it's all one thing. But if you took one frequency of that spectrum, that frequency would have very unique characteristics to it. So we can liken this human experience as Helene being the one frequency on that electromagnetic spectrum. So I feel unique, I feel different, I feel separate, and yet I'm still part of this vast, wide electromagnetic spectrum that goes into infinity on both sides. The word aura has been used to describe an energetic field around the human body. It is known to be created by a measurable electromagnetic energy, as well as the emanation of a more ethereal or subtle energy. The National Institute of Health has named this mysterious aura the human biofield. Sometimes during a channeling, electronics in a room like recorders and cameras may be affected by the channeling itself. And this is because when I'm making a connection to Bashar, I'm raising my frequency to match his frequency a little bit closer. But like every human, I have an electromagnetic field. And therefore, my electromagnetic field is affected by that, the frequency changes, and it can start interacting with electronic equipment in the area. And that can sometimes cause things to just completely shut down. Whatever happens in the channel's body's electromagnetic field is simply the result of whatever state of being is representative of the information or the state of our connection happens to be at that moment. It's not something I have to intentionally do. When we did the EEG experiment in the documentary First Contact, we did that specifically not only to demystify the idea of channeling as being an unusual thing, but to find out what is really going on in the brain when I'm in a channeling state or anyone is in a channeling state. And we discovered some very profound differences occur in that state from what you would call your normal daily waking state. One of the most profound differences that affected me a lot was to find out that there are certain centers in the brain that are responsible for processing what I would consider my personality. And that during the channeling, those all shut down. So if the parts of my brain that process my personality when I'm awake shut off, who's talking? In the beginning of the channeling, the channel was capable of uh, holding on to, shall we say, or bringing through the idea of about 1.5 to 2% of our energy. In the ensuing years following the initiation of contact with the channel, it was thus then capable in the channel's body of expressing our energy up to about 3%. On average now, we are expressing about 5% of our total energy. So we're looking at a picture of Daryl's baseline EEG. And what I've done is to record Daryl's baseline when he is not channeling and compare that to his EEG when he is channeling. Now here is a picture of Daryl's raw EEG baseline again, in which we see a very rounded and rhythmic dominant frequency, we call it, in the posterior cortex or the back of the head. And this is a good finding, it's a positive finding, because it tells us that Daryl's nervous system is stable and also that he has what we call good thalamocortical functioning. And this is a common 
feature or characteristic that is found in individuals who are peak performers. So here we have a picture of what disconnects when Daryl begins to channel. And you can see the areas in blue, the functional Broadman areas, we call them, um, that are not used when he is channeling. And it appears that he disconnects from his personal sense of self. He disconnects from the experience of pain. Now, what increases when he begins to channel is, first of all, his processing speed. And processing speed is a very interesting phenomenon because what happens is it develops early in childhood. And by about the age of five or six, and certainly nine or 10 maximum, we reach a set point. And this set point doesn't usually change during the lifetime. And in Daryl's case, it actually went up when he began to channel. And it increased when he listened. The actual frequency of the processing speed was tuned to an exact frequency all over the brain. You have to realize that the only reason the set point changes is because the connection with us and our vibrations as the channel takes on a new frequency means that the channel is a different person with a different set point. Remember, all change is actually a shift to a different reality, a different version of yourself. You may think it's the same person, but it's not. Literally, it's not. Therefore, the change in set point actually represents a measurable aspect of the fact that a person has become a different person in a different reality and is now operating on a different frequency. To summarize sort of what I found here in, in Daryl's brain in comparison with the channeling state, he starts from a very stable resting state. And then he experiences changes that statistically less than 1% of the population would experience in the same way. He increases his processing speed. He tunes it exquisitely to one frequency all over the brain. And then he's able to create a resonant holding environment for the peak performance or the channeling to happen. Uh, he pumps energy into the right frontal cortex and the right auditory cortex so that he can empathize and, and hear very, very clearly. And because of the gamma frequencies in the anterior cingulate, he can shift gears. He'll be able to, to shift gears and navigate cognition, thoughts, and emotions very, very flexibly. And he'll be able to interpret from a higher perspective, from a more evolved place in his mind, much like from the highest mountaintop. We wanted to take a little bit more of a scientific approach. Again, not to prove anything to anybody, but just to show that it can be discovered through a more scientific approach that there are different things happening, that altered states are real in channeling, and that something profoundly different is happening in people when they get into that state. Whatever you want to believe that is, is up to you, but something different is happening. So with my scientist hat on, there's no tool that we have today that can definitively say what the source is. So when we talk about proving what the source is and if this really is a non-physical being, a separate physical personality, I can't really definitively say that one way or another from a scientific perspective. We are looking to develop objective tools where we can tell 
if there is a different frequency in the room or some sort of shift in the environment. And yet today, we can't really prove one way or another if it actually is a discarnate being that's entering the person's body. From a personal perspective, my felt sense when I'm actually doing this phenomenon is that the sensations are different when it's, say, my grandmother supposedly talking to my mother or when it's my main guide that's supposedly talking through me or some other supposed being talking through me that energetically it feels very different in my body my voice is different my mannerisms are different and it feels distinct as more and more humans consciously connect with other dimensions what messages will be delivered to help empower our understanding of the vast and expanding cosmos the earth is only one choice of incarnation it's only one choice out of billions of choices and billions of planets that are not unlike earth and science is bringing that forth as we speak a recognition of this if you would they also as we speak 12 dimensions about the earth they've already discovered 11 the 12th will be a discovery as well soon so all of this is broadening the aperture of knowledge of the human experience on earth but not limited to earth Rama's going to find something to share in the meantime. I am going to read Caroline Oceana Ryan. Uh, and of course it's called A Message to Lightbringers. And this is dated yesterday, February 17th. Depending on where you live, <laughs> the day before if you're on the East Coast. And yeah. So the collective This week's guidance from the ascended masters galactics earth elements fairy el- fey elders angelic legions archangels and other divine beings known as the collective Greetings dear ones We are very pleased as always to have this time to speak with you all of you again and so amidst the snow and the ice the beauty of sedona arizona yes caroline's in sedona arizona still uh, we don't have snow and ice here that's interesting usually sedona's warmer okay uh, even the sun desires to come forward yes you can see it there It came out a moment ago 
from behind those clouds. Now, we will say that the sun, even though it loves to show off and loves to share its beautiful warmth, or his beautiful warmth, if you prefer, is not afraid of the clouds and not impressed by them, one might say. So even though you as a human being have been taught that difficult moments, dense moments, cloudy or shadowy moments are to be avoided or to be cured as soon as possible, the sun understands that, quote, this is all part of the mix. This is all part of the earth life that I am engaged in. And I am flowing these powerful solar rays down into the earth right now. Because not only is this the time of my own transfiguration into a beautiful, far more evolved being, rather it's time for all of you to do the same. And so the sun's not afraid. The sun is not afraid of change. The sun is not afraid of seeing things differently. And neither must you be. Now, we are going to look for just a moment, just for a little bit, at all these issues our writer has mentioned. And they are difficult, yes. And we would point out, as you see someone going through something horribly difficult, they've been bullied at school to where they feel their life is not worth living. Or they've been beaten or killed by people in authority. Or they have been in situations of domestic abuse. Or perhaps been trafficked. Or just your average tax-paying person who has been lied to from cradle to grave, lied to about where their hard work is going, where their money is going. Who is really running things in their country and on this planet? And you're looking at all of this. You're saying, this is complete injustice. And I am very tired of it. I want the fifth dimension to be here. And all this nonsense to stop. And that is completely understandable. Absolutely understandable. And it is coming to an end, dear one. A breath of fresh air. And yet, who has stirred up all that mud except all of you with your beautiful light-filled presence? It is not that you are reacting to the density of what you're seeing What is happening is that the density is being created out of reaction to all the tremendous light that you, all of you, are holding. And you are beautifully planting all the light into the earth so as the change, as to change her for good. So, as to make her a place of miracles a place in which the beautiful citizens of other cultures, non-terrestrial cultures, may come by and land and speak 
with everyone and not be afraid that someone's going to try to blow them up and in the process kill many innocent people, i.e. trains in Ohio. And the only way to get from this place where you are at the moment to where you desire to be, which is a peace-filled earth full of joy and pure food and water, pure air, safety for your children and elders. The only way to do that is for all of you to carry on holding this light that you came in to anchor and that you're transmitting very, very powerfully and very, so very beautifully. And this old structure that calls itself a power structure and thinks it's the right to manipulate and the use, think it thinks it has the right to manipulate and the and the and to use as they continue with their desperate behavior. The best thing you can do is to hold within yourselves a place of peace as soon as you are able to reach it again. It may take a little while. You may be in a position where something happens and you're just shocked and you have to cry and let out the tears. Let out the tears of unhappiness about it. And that's all right. It's perfectly fine to do that, dear ones. And then two things have to happen. For one, you need to realize that you have had your lifetimes of contributing to that structure that calls itself powerful, which some call the powers that were. They very wisely call it out. We call it that. And you have also had your lives in which you were crushed by it. Yes. And in this life, by far, even though many of you have suffered, you have come to a real, you have come to, you've come in to realize, all right, I've played on both sides of that street. I've been the one that others go to for comfort and assistance. And I've been the one that others ran from, needing assistance away from me. And in this life, even though things have been rough at times, I have burnt off an awful lot of the density that I came in with that I collected in other lives and now I'm going to hold the light and celebrate this new earth that I came in to experience and not only experience rather also help to create and you cannot help create it dear ones without understanding understanding overstanding that your inner life is always going to be reflected back to you in outer circumstance. This isn't to say that all the mayhem happening in this world is your fault. It's simply to say what you see, what troubles you, 
that is what you need to clear. As you clear it within you, you clear it for many thousands of others, maybe millions, depending on how deep the work goes. So let's be quiet for a moment. Think of something that has been very difficult for you, perhaps over the past month or two, perhaps in your life in general. Go into your breathing again. Page here. And so sit with hands open, palms up. As you breathe out, you're going to release both victim and savior role. As you feel it, feel you need to release the abuser role as well. Go ahead, do that. We would just breathe out and let all of that flow from you as though it were flying into the air and being carried by a very great current of light far away from you. <laughs> Let's see, far away from you, where did I go there? We're going to assist in this process, and your spirit teams are here assisting as well. This means releasing all of the labels, the ego identifications, releasing the feeling that you're just here to do great things, when in fact it's the smaller things, small acts of love and kindness that are the more miraculous ones every time. Just keep breathing in deeply through the nose, slowly, deeply, and breathing out through pursed lips or the open mouth, even as you're not sure what you're releasing. That's fine. This is completely fine, dear ones. Trust that your higher self is drawing out of you those associations, those vibrations, those memories, those old beliefs, which of course are not natural to you. There's something that was taught. That's what a belief is. Sort of a social attitude or a philosophical attitude. Just trust that all that's being drawn out of you. Just put it into that beautiful stream of light and let it flow away. Keep breathing out. Each time, open your hands a bit more. And all this is flowing out from the center of your being, not so much from the mind, which is highly limited for the most part. Yet all of this is flowing out from the heart space and from the spirit. And now think of another area of your life which you would love to release something from. This may have to do with something such as fear. This may have to do with guilt. This may have to do with feeling of loss, of being locked out, of not ever belonging. Now, many of you came here as starseed. That's understandable. As you feel that you don't belong, that is not surprising. In a sense, you don't. Can you stop fighting that? Can you just smile at, at this strange planet you've landed on and say, this is an interesting trip I've taken. 
What an interesting journey. I'll have to tell you them about it. I ha- I'll have to tell you about it back home. Quite naturally, you'll have moments where you miss your beloved ones and miss being in your home culture. Perhaps the water of the seas there is a different color than you see on Earth. What was that? <laughs> That's all right. It's understandable that you would feel it, a feel a bit lost and alone at times. Yet you're not lost because you know that universe, what universe you're in. And you absolutely choose to be here at this time. No one could hold you back, dear ones. So now, breathe that feeling out. Breathe out that feeling, whatever it is, that other heavy feeling. I know what you're going to play. That's a good one, Rama. Yes. You've been carrying it so long. And you can do this as many times as you need to. We're all working with you and all of us in the collective and your spirit team. We're all very much desiring that you come to a place where you release struggle. You release resistance. And not only in the mind, rather in the sense that you understand that there is no resistance as you are coming into your higher selves. Your higher self does not live in resistance. There, just this, this beautiful light in the universe, knowing entirely who they are, celebrating that, laughing with joy. There's no sense of, well, I made a wrong turn here, and I shouldn't have done that. And that was a complete mistake, that relationship. That relationship that has cost you the most mentally and emotionally and maybe physically was the one that you were most meant to have in this life and think of a few other others that were difficult one may say one might say in a crude sort of way that these were old scores that you needed to settle and that is not to say that you needed to get back at someone or or they needed to get back at you Although it may certainly look that way, it more has to do with the idea that you needed to see yourselves triumphant in exactly those situations that have been hardest for you to in hundreds of other lives. Indeed. Last page. (laughs) As you don't feel terribly triumphant, we would say that's all right. Your gains, your wins, as far as the realizations and the growth you came in to achieve does depend on your emotions. And yet, these two can lighten up. When again, you cease to resist that it is you, that it is you that have experienced or are experiencing right now. What's interesting is how the human spirit will desire things to shift as quickly as they have in other dimensions. So we say, we would say, as you're looking at this great red mountainous summit, this beautiful huge rock, ask yourself, was it 70 or 80 years in the making? Probably thousands of years. 
and you are far more magnificent as anything you see here, as beautiful and brilliant as the, as this is. So have so here amongst the trees and the rocks of Sodoma, we bless and thank you, dear ones, for being so powerful, so full of bravery, to come here as these incredibly sentient, aware, sensitive, empathetic healers, and to face what we have, what you have faced, both in your own lives and in many other people's lives. So you've known those you've known and those you hear about. And do things need, and do things need to keep getting harder and to feel more and more difficult? No, of course not, dear ones. No, they needn't. The more you accept with love what is happening in the world, the more you will see your earth calm. And okay, Rama, mm. jump in. Okay. As this is going to go right to the edge of the end, but I think it's a good one. Let's do it. It's called The Power of the Third Eye. Here we go. history, the third eye has been a topic sequestered to secrecy, isolated and occult. But in the brain, the third eye is in the center. Through the imagery of ancient mysticism, this all-seeing eye has had several interpretations. Most believe that we have some sort of psychic eye within us. But the question is, are the visions we see with it a form of channeling? I wanted one simple answer. I wanted to just discover the one easy way to know how channeling works. And what we found at Mount Shasta was that there were likely so many different ways that channeling works. And that it depended on the type of channeling that the person was doing. And so in a channeling that we received about how it worked, there was this idea that information in the form of light came through the pineal gland. The pineal gland is a master gland transmuted that light in some way to influence the DNA because our pineal gland has light sensors within it. It's the small gland within the center of the brain. And it has long been anecdotally known to be associated with psychic abilities and channeling abilities. The pineal gland is right where the third eye is, okay? The sixth chakra. This is something that Plato even talked about. He told us that we have a third eye. It may be the seat of seeing and so anything we can do to clear off our pineal gland 
and open it up is going to support us in this oracle work. The pineal gland is the more spiritual trigger in my view of things. It is a catalytic converter, if you will, for spirit energy, your quintessence coming down through your body, rising up from somewhere else in your body, and catalyzing within the pineal gland. I've seen pineal glands that have the energetic colors of a Pixar movie. And that is a person who is awake, but they don't know how awake they are yet. And so they need to do their work, yoga, tai chi, prayer, chanting, a walkabout, whatever they need to do. Find a place where they're their happiest, and that will catalyze that even more. The pineal gland is important equally to the basal ganglia. The basal ganglia is really the endpoint of the intuitive system in the brain. Because the gut level intuitive system and the uh, vagal system tell the brain what to do and the pineal what to do. When language comes up into the brain, the basal ganglia is the one that translates that into whatever sector, the visual, auditory, kinesthetic, language aspects of the brain. And then the pineal, which is really kind of like the all-seeing eye in the brain watching all this happen and it will catalyze at a different level. The brain catalyzes it at our human level. The pineal gland catalyzes our spiritual level. And so it's our job to integrate the two. There's a fascinating relationship between solar flares and geomagnetic activity and channeling experiences. So when geomagnetic activity is high, we see a higher incidence of expressive type channeling experiences like seeing ghosts or poltergeists or mind over matter type experiences when geomagnetic activity is low there's a higher prevalence of clairaudience clairvoyance telepathy things like that i think that's a very fascinating relationship between our planet and us being on the planet and our larger universe what's also fascinating about that is it connects to our pineal gland and so we see this connection between geomagnetic activity and the pineal gland and the pineal gland and this supposed relationship to channeling experiences several channeled messages center around connecting with the cosmos above to provide guidance and power to us below. The ancient practice of sun gazing during the sunrise and sunset hours has been thought to stimulate and ignite visions within this mysterious all-seeing eye in our brain. What happens when we consciously tune and connect our sixth chakra with the other chakras? to understand our, our innate abilities to, to channel in other words just to open our awareness to the to the greater nature of, of reality itself is, is how do our bodies tune with this cosmic information this universal information that's available to us and our bodies themselves of course are informational coherent informational entities which are always within themselves 
and also in our surroundings and with the whole universe sharing information whether aware of it or not and there are certain attributes of our bodies such as some of our endocrine glands such as our nervous system that are particularly attuned that particularly able to transduce large amounts of information and our pineal gland which is the, the perceived ajna chakra our insight chakra is one of those it's an amazing informational network that can process enormous amounts of information and then share it throughout our bodily perspectives we have other aspects that the chakras generally are deemed to be sort of moderators of that informational transfer between us and the wider cosmos chakras are the electromagnetics that come off of your nervous system there are seven primary chakras and when i look at them and you can have your own experience but i think this is a place for you to start you feel something say in your belly because the third chakra is located in the solar plexus when you feel butterflies that's your third chakra ticking off so it extends out of the body in the front and extends out of the body in the back same with the heart the front and the back throat front and back sixth chakra where you can see front and back seventh chakra up to your quintessence and your quintessence comes down through it and feeds all of the energy centers in your body what's so interesting about it is that it integrates with the nervous system of the spine there's one in the root that extends straight down in between the legs off of the coccyx the tailbone of the body the second chakra is in the lower abdominal area and goes through the front and the back of the body these are the primary ones and they guide your life the southern hemisphere guides the root and rudimentary parts of your primal life the upper chakras they're your spirit world and the heart is the integrator the chakra system is an energy dynamic system that is operating in energy field that are um both parallel and interdimensional and so they're operating gateways like a stargate that opens up different levels of information throughout the universal field of intelligence and the more you begin to understand that the chakra is not just a spinning ball of energy it's a stargate ancient mystical traditions talk not of a sevenfold chakra system which are is our sense of personal self so if you like it's our informational field that moderates and mediates our personal sense of self and plugs us into that greater cosmic wholeness but they talk about a 12-fold chakra system where as part of mystical journeys our awareness expands as it were to higher vibrational levels of awareness where we can literally tune progressively with more and more archetypal expansive aspects of universal consciousness but it seems to me that now we are everyday mystics in the sense that more and more people are expanding our awareness beyond that sevenfold chakra system into transpersonal awareness 
And for me, that has been guided by this understanding of a, an 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th chakra. They're revealing that we have this ability and perhaps this evolutionary opportunity to be embodied as what the ancients and the mystical traditions would call Christed or Buddhic consciousness. So the more that we attune our bodies through inner practices, mindfulness, meditation, this was the ancient tradition, we are literally tuning up our entire informational system to more easily access such universal, non-local, cosmic information. So learn about chakras. They're valuable. They're an important part of your radar, of how you feel in your body and in the world around you. You learn to play with them because they're guiding you. They are a reflection of your nervous system. They are a reflection of your spirit and your soul inside your body. And they will help guide you. They help you heal. The powerful art of plant medicine has been used to help humans ignite their third eye, unlock dormant memories, and pierce the veil to other dimensions. Shamans throughout history have been the major guides for humanity to discover the spiritual and healing powers of the plant kingdom. But shamanism also has several other forms of connecting with the spirit world. Many, many traditions, many traditions have worked with multidimensional communications, channeling, to gain great guidance. I remember stories of researchers going into the Amazon jungle and speaking with the shamans there who have an encyclopedic knowledge of plants and plant medicine. And when asked, how did you get to this? The response was, we were told. The plants told us. The plants were guiding us as to what was beneficial for us. And I think, you know, such channeling, such openness to this sort of guidance is universal across human experience. Shamanism is about relationship. It's about the relationship to nature, ancestor, food, community. Everything is a relationship. When we look at shamanism, right, and people think shamanism, they always associate it to plant medicine. They just, the Western world has basically turned shamanism into a Hollywood gimmick. When people think shaman, they think Native American culture, Peruvian culture. They don't understand that the core of shamanism has come from Africa, Mongolia, and has spread out from the Maoris to the Aboriginals and the Sami people, the Nordics. When we talk about medicine in shamanism, the way we look at medicine is the information and knowledge that you bring through your being. So you are medicine to the world. So a lot of times people think medicine, they think just plant medicine. That's a very different thing. The other understanding of shamanism is what type of shaman are you? Now, there's earth shamans who, as you know, deal with different types of medicines. They're very knowledgeable of the different medicines that are available. And they know how it's going to affect the spirits of the body because it's all connected to the earth, the body, right? So this is Mother Nature. 
So a lot of times when people think of Mother Nature, they think Mother Nature is Earth. Your body is made up of everything that Mother Nature is. So this is Earth. So they are aware of what Earth requires in order to to heal it, to replenish it, to give it its sustenance that it needs in order for it to continue to be ever expanding and ever living. Then there are water shamans. Water shamans deal more with emotional content. And then there are the fire shamans. African tribes, there's a lot of fire shamans. They represent the aspect of fire, which is the masculine. It's a very masculine ritual. And it also is there to break your mind. It's there to take your mind apart by intensities until you literally come undone. And then that's how you actually start to heal and change and so forth. The air shamans are the ones who create sound, chanting, music, anything that can take you into a trance-like state. A lot of times you see people who are speaking in tongues, shamans who will use music that take you into a trance. This is air shamanism. And then the spirit also has the spirit shamanism, which is what I am, where we not only make sounds, but we also commune with all the spirits. So the spirit shaman is one who uses frequency. We use sound. We can have things come through us and and bring new information through sound. So like if I was to have a spirit come through I can like right now I can hear the spirit speaking in the spirit world one spirit is saying and I see these three men they're dancing in the spirit world saying this over and over I hear this so then I just let it come through and I speak it into this world and then powerful things start to happen As with most knowledge passed down through shamanic practices, misuse and misunderstanding of these sacred practices and plant rituals have connected humans to spirits from less desirable dimensions. So there's controversy today about the use of psychedelics in the oracle field and by anyone in general. There are two sides of the coin here. One is that Yes, these plants are a major opener for us to be able to get information. On the other, there are hazards that can come with it, including getting connected with beings that you might not want. And there's discussion as to whether these astral realms are being hijacked by unfriendly forces. And this also goes along with how these plants may be transmuted, hybrided, changed around. They're not exactly what they used to be when we were working in a more pure way with them. So there are some risks that go along with using them. That said, many, many people are starting to open up to the reality of other dimensions and be able to, and are being able to receive information. Psychedelics are a very interesting way of bringing about the channeling state because they they do have the ability to open that gateway to intelligent infinity. And anyone who's taken psychedelics, at least at a certain dosage, understands the ability these plant medicines have to connect you with higher consciousness. 
but it does come at somewhat of a price tag because psychedelics use up enormous volumes of our vital energy, which can get us into these very high states and then sort of drop us out of them very abruptly. Ayahuasca and other psychedelics give you an experience in your brain. They don't change your spiritual aptitude, not at all. They may give you an experience that feels very spiritual and that's authentic to that person, but it doesn't last. They still go back to the office grumpy or searching or what, and we're always searching. We're always searching. But if you really want to shift the gears inside your precious neurons and open up your heart and open up the soul so it starts moving through you, the simplest practices are always the best. And that really is meditation. And also beyond that, your skill of observation, paying attention to the way you feel. Everybody's empathic. Everybody's empathic. Some are off the scale empathic and it's hard on them. I understand, but pay attention to it and learn to rise above it. You won't need the psychedelics. They're interesting. So I've heard, but they're also really hard on the body and somebody who's had uh, brain issues and brain surgery and was lucky enough to come through it and still stand up vertically, you don't want to mess with your brain. You need it. I think that we need to be wise in our use. We need to have a lot of teaching and guidance in this realm if we're really going to um, have sacred medicines be useful and not turn into something negative. The natural teachers provided by the earth are for the purpose of helping to remind you where you really come from, what you really are, connecting you to different levels of your consciousness, to different dimensions of experience. The natural teachers of the earth, when not abused or falling into a crutch or an addiction, can be very helpful. But always remember that once you have allowed yourself to experience the vibrational state that is created by allowing yourself to work with those plant teachers or other natural teachers from the earth. Once you are familiar with that frequency, you don't necessarily need the teacher anymore to recreate it. Beyond a certain point, it becomes an addiction and a crutch, whether physically or psychologically. So, It's always about self-empowerment. It's always about taking responsibility for the vibration, knowing that once you know what a vibration felt like, you're already in that state, even if it doesn't feel the same. Because you cannot experience what you're not already the vibration of. So you have to be the vibration of an experience to even remember you had an experience. That's the trick. A unified message delivered through mystics, shamans, plants, and messengers, reminds us that a balanced connection to the planet is a powerful practice for spiritual transformation. We are reminding you to channel your incredible life force energy. And the higher, the the more that you embody these things from this higher intelligence, the more information can come through. But where is it going to go if it is not utilized, if it is not put into action to create uh, new systems, new ways of seeing health, new ways of connecting with the body, new ways of collaborating, with reconnecting with the Earth's intelligence, yes? What about the Earth's intelligence? What is coming up 
through Earth at all times. Incredible intelligence and life force allowing you to be. And in, there's incredible amounts of information that we are just generally not aware of. And so this is that saying of above and below. It is with, within all things. For thousands of years, we have been walking this planet, this earth, this land, staring at the waves of the water, wondering who we are. From all over the horizon, he reached us the question, who are we? Who am I, human? As messengers guide us to find the divinity within all things, and our spiritual sight becomes stronger. What messages will be received when we consciously connect our third eye to the rhythm of our heart in this beautiful planet? There are journals of consciousness that no one can take on you. And yet as you take them, you take steps in other terms for others. And uh, you leave a mark for your brothers and sisters to follow in their own explorations. If you could see yourselves as we see you, there would be no discontent, no argument. You would honor each other appropriately with love. You would be collaborative and not separating, not judging. You would be assisting each other more fully than you do today. And it's better today, even though it seems not, than it's been in the past. When you love yourself enough, there is that solid state within you that you call God. And from that place of being, is the utopia, the peace you seek in the world. And it is happening now. Okay, Rainbird, it's happening now. And you're here now with us. I pass this talking stick with all of heaven and earth and angels and fairies and feathers and rainbows and that Excalibur and that Quetzalcoatl talking stick. Here it comes. I got it. I got it. <laughs> what a day. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So thank you. Thank you, thank you for everything. And I'm getting a couple hours sleep before I... <laughs> 
I take a flight, so I'm trying to catch it. Where are you going? I'm going to go and look on the in the flight system in Linz, Austria. You're going to Austria? Yeah, Linz, Austria. That's where the flight system is. And then I'm going with a bunch of knowledge speakers to go have peace with the Creator. <gasps> what a gift. Say, Rainbird. I know. I'm treating myself. (laughs) So glad you figured that one out. Um, I look forward to hearing next time we get together the experience you had. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. Thank you. I will, I will share something, I'm sure. So, uh, yeah, we're going to do something. All right. So thank you for everything today. Yeah, I'm going to pass this talk stick back because I want to go back to sleep. <laughs> okay, Robin, you're on. Real quick, we get to okay. the song, right? Huh? Just a song. Just a song. Yeah, it's past time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Here we go, everyone. Sweet dreams, Rainbird. Gets you triple, triple per hour. Rest. Om Namah Shivaya, everyone. Something's happening. Something's good. Something's happening, and I knew it would. Satnam. Satnam Ki. See you in your dreams and on the bridge, everyone. Love is coming your way everywhere. And blessings. Everything we could possibly need, want, and desire is at hand. Namaste. Aloha. Satnam, everybody.